You're listening to Heisenberg. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Penguin Random House Audio presents Star Wars Thrawn by Timothy Zahn. Read for you by Mark Thompson. Chapter One All beings begin their lives with hopes and aspirations. Among these aspirations, is the desire that there will be a straight path to those goals. It is seldom so, perhaps never. Sometimes the turns are of one's own volition, as one's thoughts and goals change over time. But more often, the turns are mandated by outside forces. It was so with me. The memory is vivid unsullied by age, the five admirals rising from their chairs as I am escorted into the chamber. The decision of the ascendancy has been made, and they are here to deliver it. None of them is happy with the decision. I can read that in their faces. But they are officers and servants of the Chiss and they will carry out their orders. Protocol alone demands that. The word is as I expected, exile. The planet has already been chosen. The Aristocra will assemble the equipment necessary to ensure that solitude does not quickly become death from predators or the elements. I am led away. Once again, my path has turned. Where it will lead, I cannot say. The hut was small, apparently made from local materials, situated in the center of the forest clearing. Surrounding it were eight tall rectangular boxes with two distinct sets of markings. So this, Captain Voss Park said, is what you brought me all the way down from the strike fast to see? Yes, Captain, I did, Colonel Mosh Barris said sourly. Turns out we may have a problem. You see those markings? Of course, Park said. Bogoland's script, isn't it? It's Bogoland's script, but not Bogolanese. Barris said. The translator droids can't make top or bottom of it, and the two power generators behind the hut don't match any Imperial designs. Standing to the side, watching his captain and the Strikefast senior troop commander discuss the mysterious settlement they'd found on this unnamed world, Cadet First Class Eli Vanto tried to make himself as inconspicuous as possible, and wondered what he was doing here. 
None of the other ten Myomar Academy cadets had been ordered down with Park shuttle. Eli didn't have any particular expertise in unknown artifacts or tech. It wasn't like he needed planet-side experience anyway. He was on track to become a supply officer. There was no reason he could think of why he'd been singled out this way. Cadet Vanto, Barris said. Eli wrenched his mind back from his musings. Yes, Colonel? The droid said there are half a dozen trade languages out here that use Bogallan's script. You're our expert on obscure local languages. He gestured to the crates. So? Eli moved closer, wincing a little. So that was why he was here. He'd grown up on the planet Lysatra in this part of wild space, pressed up against the so-called unknown regions. His family's shipping company worked mostly in and around their homeworld, but they did enough business in the unknown regions that Eli had picked up proficiency in several of the local trade languages. But that hardly made him an expert. It could be a variant of Sabisti, sir, he said. Some of the words are familiar, and the syntax is right, but it's not standard. Barris snorted. <laughs> Hard to imagine a standard for a language so obscure that even the droids don't bother with it. Eli held his tongue. Cybisti was actually a perfectly well-defined and eminently useful language. It was the people who still used it and the worlds they lived on that were obscure. You said you can read some of it? Park prompted. Yes, sir, Eli said. It seems to be mostly tracking information in the name of the company that supplied the contents. Also a short bit proclaiming the grandeur and honor of that company. What? They engraved promotionals right on their shipping crates? Barris asked. Yes, sir. A lot of small businesses out here do that. You don't recognize the business name, I assume? Park asked. No, sir. I believe it's Red Bipe or Redder Bipe. Possibly the owner's name. Park nodded. We can see if there's anything in our records. What about the second script? Sorry, sir, Eli said. I've never seen it before. Terrific, Barris muttered. So whether it's a smuggler base or the survival camp from a shipwreck, it still comes under UA protocols. Eli winced. The unknown alien protocols were a relic from the glory days of the Republic, when a new species was being discovered every other week, and the Senate wanted every one of them contacted and studied. The modern Imperial Navy had no business handling such chores, and even less interest in doing so, and the High Command had repeatedly said so. Rumor at the Academy was that Emperor Palpatine was working to revoke the protocols. But for the moment they were still standard orders, and far too many of the senators supported them, which was going to put a crimp in the strike fast schedule. The ship's officers and crew weren't exactly thrilled at having a bunch of cadets underfoot anyway, and Eli could tell they were looking forward to dumping them back on Myomar. This was going to delay that happy send-off for at least a couple of extra days. Agreed, Park said. Very well. Have your troops make themselves comfortable while I have a tech analysis team sent down. Keep an eye out in case your smuggler or castaway comes back. 
Yes, sir. Barris's comlink signaled, and the colonel pulled it out. Barris! This is Major Wyan at the crash site, Colonel. A taut voice came. Sorry to interrupt, but I think you'd better come see this. Eli frowned. He hadn't heard anything about a crash. There was a crash, sir? He asked. One of the V-Wing starfighters went down, Park said, nodding across the clearing where the distant lights could be seen flickering through the tendrils of evening mist wafting through the trees. Eli nodded silently. He'd noticed the lights earlier, but had assumed they were just more of Barris's survey team. I'll be right there, Barris said. With your permission, Captain. Go ahead, Park said. I'll stay here with Cadet Vanto and see what else he can tell us about the writing on these crates. Eli had gone through nearly all of it when Barris and a black-uniformed, black-helmeted Navy trooper returned carrying a V-wing pilot's flight suit. A flight suit stuffed with grass, leaves, and strange-smelling red berries. What is this? Park demanded. This is what we found near the crash site, Barris said grimly, as they set the suit on the ground in front of the captain. The body's gone. Nothing left but this... this... He waved a hand. Scarecrow, Eli murmured. Park sent him a sharp look. Is this something you people do out here? Uh, some farmers still use scarecrows to keep birds out of their crops, Eli said, his face warming. You people. Park was letting his core world prejudices peek out. They're also used in festivals and parades. Park looked back at Barris. Have you looked for the pilot? Not yet, sir, Barris said. I've ordered a troop perimeter set up around the settlement, and I'm having another platoon of troopers sent down. Good, Park said. Once they're here, expand your search and find the body. Yes, sir, Barris said. We might want to wait until morning, though. Your soldiers are afraid of the dark? No, sir, Barris said stiffly. It's just that we also found the V-Wing survival pack. The blaster, spare power packs, and concussion grenades are missing. Park's lip twitched. Primitives with weapons. Wonderful. Very well. Search until dark, then resume in the morning. We can keep the search going all night if you'd like. Park shook his head. Hard enough to navigate unfamiliar terrain in the dark. I've seen too many night patrols get disoriented and start jumping or shooting at one another. And the mist you've got rolling in will just make it worse. We'll keep aerial surveillance going. But your troopers would do better to stay in camp until daybreak. Yes, sir, Barris said. Maybe whoever took the grenades will be considerate enough to blow themselves to pieces before they get to us. Perhaps. Park looked up at the darkening sky. I'll head back to the ship and arrange for a wider starfighter cover pattern. He lowered his gaze to Eli. Cadet, you'll stay here with Colonel Barris's team. Study the settlement and see if there are any more inscriptions. The sooner we learn everything we can, the sooner we can leave.
It was nearly full dark by the time Barris's men finished creating their perimeter. The tech team had set up an examination table protected by a transparent weather canopy where they could study the grass and leaves they'd taken from the flight suit. They'd started their work when Major Wyan and his search party returned empty-handed from the forest. So they hadn't found the V-Wing pilot's body. Still, there were no indications of wounded or dead among his team, either. With grenades and a blaster in the hands of primitives or a castaway of unknown species, Eli was privately willing to call it a draw. So that's what was in the flight suit? Wyan asked walking over to where Barris was watching as the two techs spread out the scarecrow's stuffing. Yes, Barris said. The breeze momentarily shifted direction, and Eli caught a whiff of an odd aroma he'd smelled earlier, probably from some of the berries the techs had crushed for analysis. So far it seems to be just local flora. Maybe the whole thing was some kind of religious ritual. There came the flash and thundercrack of an explosion from behind them. Cover! Barris shouted, spinning around and dropping to one knee as he hauled out his blaster. Eli hit the ground behind one of the big crates, then peeked cautiously around its side. Halfway to the edge of the clearing, a patch of grass was smoldering with the afterburn of the explosion. Beyond it, Navy troopers were running toward the closest part of the sentry line. Blasters drawn and ready. Someone flicked on a searchlight. The brilliant glow sweeping across the forest and lighting up the mist flowing between the trees. Eli followed the spot of light with his eyes, searching for a glimpse of the enemy who was attacking them. And instead, watched as Barris was slammed flat on his face by a second explosion. Colonel! Wyan shouted. I'm all right! Barris shouted back. Behind him, the collection of grasses and leaves on the examination table was burning brilliantly. The table itself canted half over by the blast. On the table's far side, the two techs were shakily getting back up onto hands and knees. Swearing under his breath, Eli stayed flat on the ground, bracing himself for the inevitable third explosion. The inevitable failed to happen. One by one, he heard the perimeter troops check in with Barris, confirming the defenses were secure. Wyan conducted a search of the first twenty meters of forest outside the clearing and reported that the unknown attackers had fled. Though considering that no one had apparently seen anything in the first place, the fact they didn't now didn't strike Eli as being very comforting. The explosions themselves were equally mysterious. They definitely weren't concussion grenades, Wyan said. Not nearly powerful enough. Our best guess is that they were blaster power packs with the Sturm Dowels pulled out. That doesn't sound like something savages would be able to figure out, Eli said, frowning. Very well deduced, cadet, Wyan said sarcastically. Colonel Barris thinks our castaway has come back, he gestured to the hut. I didn't call you over here to get your opinion on our tactical situation. I called you to see if you'd found anything in the hut or storage crates that would give us a hint as to his appearance or tech level. Not really, sir, Eli said. 
From the shape of the bed and design of the eating utensils, he's probably humanoid. But there's really nothing more. What about the power generators? He has to have some tech skill to work those, doesn't he? Not necessarily, Eli said. They're mostly automated. Wyan scowled into the night. So why the attack? He muttered under his breath. And why such a puny one? If he's smart enough to figure out Sturm Dowels, he's smart enough to pop a grenade. Maybe he's trying to scare us away without wrecking his home, Eli offered. Wyan gave him a sharp look, perhaps preparing to repeat his warning not to offer military advice. But he didn't. Perhaps he was remembering that Eli had experience in this unimportant part of the galaxy. And how did he get into the camp? There was a small scratching sound near Eli's feet. He started, oh, but it was only some small ground creature scurrying through the grass. Maybe he lobbed the blaster packs in with a catapult or something. Wyan raised his eyebrows. Through the weather canopy? Eli winced as he looked over at the still smoldering mass of burned grass. No, of course not. A lobbed-in explosive would have bounced off the canopy and never made it to the table. Stupid of him. I guess not, sir. You guess not, sir? Wyan echoed sarcastically. Thank you, cadet. Get back to your work. And this time find us something useful. Yes, sir. Major? Barris called, striding across the clearing. Sir? Wyan said, turning to face him. Captain's sending some V-wings for a grid search, the colonel told him. In the meantime, take a squad and set up some floodlights at the perimeter. I want the forest rim lit up like the inside of a spark module. Then fine-mesh the hemisphere sensor screen. I don't want any more explosives getting through without us at least knowing they're coming. Wyan's reply was lost in the sudden roar as a pair of B-wings shot past at treetop level. What? Barris asked. I was reminding the colonel that there are a lot of birds flying around, Wyan repeated. Small ground animals, too. I nearly twisted my ankle stepping on one a minute ago. If we fine-mesh the screen too far, we'll have alarms triggering all night. Fine. Forget the fine-meshing, Ferris said. Just get those lights up! And suddenly, directly ahead, the nearest trees were silhouetted by a fireball erupting somewhere in the distance. What the— Wyan barked. V-Wing crash! Barris snapped, keying his comlink. Rescue team to the transport, now! At least this time, the pilot's body hadn't been taken. Unfortunately, his blaster, power packs, and concussion grenades had. And the rumors and speculations were flying. Eli was out of most of the quiet discussions, working as he was in the castaway's hut. But every now and then, one of the techs would come in to collect something else to analyze. They were usually eager to talk, to lay out their own thoughts and pretend they didn't have any fears. But they did. So did Eli. The floodlights blazing away at the edge of the forest had succeeded in warding off further attacks. But the masses of insects and nightbirds that glow attracted were almost as unnerving. 
The V-wings flying overhead gave an illusion of safety and protection, but Eli tensed every time one went past, wondering if this would be the next one to be knocked out of the sky. And on top of it all was the why. Why was this happening? Was someone trying to scare the Imperials away? Or was the attacker trying to pin them down or run them in circles? Or worst of all, was this some kind of macabre game? And was the grass-filled flight suit a feint, a distraction, or just some native ritual? That one at least received an answer. About midnight, after a comm consultation with Captain Park, Barris ordered the stuffed flight suit to be thoroughly examined. Only then did they discover that the helmet's comm link was missing. Clever little snakes, Barris growled as Eli edged closer to the conversation. What about that one? The comm link's still here, Wyan confirmed, peering into the second downed pilot's helmet. They must not have had time to remove it. Or just didn't bother, Barris said. Because they could already eavesdrop on our communications. Exactly, Barris said. Well, that ends now. Call the strike fast and have them shut down that circuit. Yes, sir. Barris shifted his glare to Eli. You have something to add, cadet? Or were you just doing a little eavesdropping of your own? Yes, sir, Eli said. I mean, no, sir. I wanted to report that I found a couple of coins between the inner and outer shells of one of the crates that date to the beginning of the Clone Wars. So it looks like our castaway's been here at least that long. Hold on, Barris said. Coins? A lot of shippers out here put freshly minted low-value coins in with their crates, Eli explained. It's a good luck thing as well as a way to make sure the dates on the manifest don't get altered. They take them out and put in new ones whenever the crate comes back to them. So, assuming the castaway got the crates new, it means he's been here for several years, Wyan said thoughtfully. Might explain some of his behavior. Not to me it doesn't. If all he wants is a ride back to civilization, why doesn't he just walk out of the forest and ask? Maybe he was on the run when he crashed, Wyan suggested. Or maybe he came here voluntarily and just wants us to go away. In which case he's going to be sadly disappointed, Barris said. All right, cadet. Keep looking. Do you want me to assign a tech to help? There's not much room, sir. We'd probably just get in each other's way. Then get back to it, Barris said. Sooner or later... Our friend's going to push his luck too far. When he does, we'll be ready. They had five casualties among the Sentry Perimeter Navy troopers that night. Three of them were incapacitated at the hand of the unseen enemy. Their chests or helmets slammed by concussion grenades. No one saw anything, either before the attacks or afterward. The other two casualties were accidentally shot by their own nervous comrades, who mistook them for intruders in the misty darkness. By the time dawn began to lighten the sky, Barris was back on the comm link to the strike fast. By the time the sun finished burning off the nighttime mist, 
two squads of stormtroopers had arrived. They consulted with Barris, then headed briskly into the forest, blaster rifles held ready across their chests. Personally, Eli doubted they would have any better luck finding the mysterious attacker than Barris's own troopers had. But he had to admit that the presence of the white-armored warriors brought a welcome boost to morale. He was taking apart the last crate to look for more marker coins when he heard a soft but pervasive screech erupt from somewhere outside the hut, followed instantly by shouts and curses. A general alert? Snatching out his comlink, he keyed it on. Ah, and just as quickly keyed it off, holding it as far away from himself as he could as the screech from outside exploded in his ears. Someone was jamming their comlinks. Full alert! He heard Barris bellow from across the clearing. All troopers, full alert! Major Wyan, where are you? Eli hurried around the side of the hut, nearly getting bowled over by a Navy trooper heading toward the perimeter. The woman's face was ashy under her heavy black helmet, her expression grim, her uniform spattered with dust. Eli came within sight of Barris just as Wyan reached him. All comlink channels are out, sir, Wyan reported. I know, Barris snarled. Enough is enough. There are 18 stormtroopers beating the bushes out there. Send some naval troopers to recall them. We're pulling out. We're leaving, sir. You have an objection? No, sir, but what about that? Wyan jerked a thumb at the hut. The protocols require us to study it. Barris glared at the hut for a couple of seconds. Then his face cleared. But they don't require us to study it here, he said. We'll take it with us. Wyan's jaw dropped. To the strike fast? Why not, Barris said, as if still thinking it through. There's plenty of room in the transport for all of it. Tell the techs to break out the heavy repulsor lifts and get busy. Wyan threw a considerably less than enthusiastic look at the settlement. Yes, sir. And tell them to move it, Barris called after Wyan as the Major hurried away. The only reason to jam our comlinks is if he's getting ready to launch a major attack. Eli pressed himself close to the hut as he looked around the edge of the forest. He couldn't see any lurking enemies out there, but then none of them ever had. Three minutes later, a squad of grim-faced troopers and techs arrived at the encampment and began attaching repulsor lift hoists to the generators and storage crates. One of the techs stayed with Eli as the others began transferring their prizes to the transport, the two of them studying the hut's exterior and figuring out where to attach the hoists in order to keep the building intact. They were still discussing the procedure when the first of the stormtroopers began to reemerge from the forest in response to Barris's orders. The jamming continued as the rest of the troops filtered into the encampment, turning to face the forest in defensive formation for the attack they all knew was coming. Only it didn't. Barris's stipulated half hour ended with the encampment packed aboard the transport, leaving the entire group ready to leave except for one small hitch. One of the 18 stormtroopers was missing. What do you mean, missing? 
Ferris demanded, in a voice that carried across nearly the entire clearing, as three of the stormtroopers headed purposefully into the forest again. How does a stormtrooper go missing? I don't know, sir, Wyan said, looking around. But you're right. The sooner we get out of here, the better. Damn right I'm right, Barris said. That's it, Major. Get the techs aboard the transport, with your troopers following in standard rearguard formation. What about the stormtroopers? Wyan asked. They've got their own troop carrier, Barris said. They can stay behind and beat the bushes to their heart's content. We'll leave as soon as everyone else is aboard. Eli didn't wait to hear more. Barris's order hadn't specifically mentioned him, but he was more tech than trooper. Close enough. He turned toward the transport and paused. One of the stormtroopers was standing rigid guard just outside the hatchway. His weapon held ready across his chest. If he took exception to Barris's order, abandoning him and his companions... Without twitch or warning, the stormtrooper abruptly dissolved in a violent explosion. Eli was flat on the ground in an instant. Alert! He heard someone shout, the voice distorted by the ringing in his ears. A handful of troopers were charging toward the forest, but Eli couldn't tell if they were on an actual trail or just hoping to randomly catch their attacker. He looked back at the transport, his breath caught in his throat. The smoke of the explosion was clearing away, revealing that the ship itself had sustained only minor damage. Mostly cosmetic. Nothing that should interfere with flight operation or hull integrity. The trooper's armor, no longer pristine white, was scattered in bits and pieces in a small radius around the spot where the man had been standing. The armor was all there was. The body itself was gone. No, Eli heard himself mutter under his breath. It was impossible. A blast that caused so little damage to the ship behind it couldn't possibly have disintegrated a body so completely, especially not without doing the same to the armor that had encased it. A movement to his left caught his eye. Emerging into the clearing were the three stormtroopers who'd gone to look for their missing comrade. They had indeed found him, or at least what was left of him. Eli had half expected the transport and troop carrier would be attacked as they lifted into the sky. But no missiles, laser pulses, or catapulted grenades followed them up. Soon, to his relief, they were safe in the Strikefast's hangar bay. Captain Park was waiting beside the transport's hatch as the men filed out. Colonel, he said, nodding gravely as Barris emerged behind Eli. I don't recall giving you permission to leave your position. No, sir, you didn't, Barris said, and Eli had no trouble hearing the weariness in his voice. But I was the commander on the scene, I did what I deemed best. Yes, Park murmured. Eli looked back over his shoulder to see the captain shift his gaze from Barris to the transport itself. 
I'm told you brought the alien settlement up with you. Yes, sir, Ferris said. Everything that was there, right down to the dirt. I can put the text back to work on it whenever you want. There's no hurry, Park said. You'll accompany me back to my office. Everyone else is to report for debriefing. He turned to face the line of techs and Navy troopers, and his eyes fell on Eli. Quickly, Eli twisted his head back around. Eavesdropping on officers was very bad form. Hopefully, Park hadn't noticed. Unfortunately, he had. Cadet Vanto! Bracing himself, Eli stopped and turned around. Yes, sir? You'll accompany us as well, Park said. Come! With Park in the lead, they left the hangar bay. But to Eli's surprise, they didn't go to the captain's office. Instead, Park led the way up to the hangar bay control tower, the lights of which had been inexplicably darkened. Sir? Barris asked as Park stepped to the observation window. An experiment, Colonel. Park gestured to the man at the control board. Everyone out? Good. Dim the lights in the bay. Barris stepped to Park's side as the lights outside the observation window faded to nighttime levels. Cautiously, trying to stay as inconspicuous as possible while still getting a good look, Eli eased to a spot just behind Park on his other side. The transport and troop carrier were prominently visible directly below. Beyond them, at the other end of the bay, were three Zeta-class shuttles and a Harbinger courier ship. What sort of experiment? Barris asked. The testing of a theory, Park said. Make yourselves comfortable, Colonel, Cadet. We may be here a while. They'd been there nearly two hours when a shadowy, human-shaped figure emerged stealthily from the transport. Silently, it slipped across the darkened hangar bay toward the other ships, taking advantage of the sparse cover along the way. Who is that? Barris asked, leaning a little closer to the transperisteel divider. Unless I'm mistaken, that's the source of your troubles down on the surface, Park said with obvious satisfaction. I believe that's the castaway whose home you invaded. Eli blinked, frowned. One man? One man? Barris apparently didn't believe it either. That's impossible, sir, he protested. Those attacks couldn't have been the work of a single person. He must have had some help. We'll wait a moment and see if anyone joins him, Park said. No one did. The shadowy figure moved across the floor to the other ships, where it paused for a moment, as if considering. Then, deliberately, it stepped to the door of the middle Zeta shuttle and slipped inside. It appears he was indeed alone, Park said, pulling out his comlink. He's in the middle Zeta. All weapons on stun. I want him alive and unharmed. 
after all the trouble the castaway had created on the planet's surface, Eli had expected him to put up a terrific fight against his captors. To his surprise, he apparently surrendered to the stormtroopers without any resistance at all. Perhaps he was taken by surprise. More likely, he knew when resistance was futile. At least Eli understood now why Park wanted him along. The prisoner's cargo crates were labeled with a Cybisti variant. If he spoke the language itself, and if it was the only language he spoke, the Imperials would need a translator. The group was halfway to the hatchway where Park, Barris, Eli, and their stormtrooper escort waited when the hangar bay lights came back up. The prisoner, as Eli had already noted, was of human shape and dimensions, but there the resemblance to normal humans ended. His skin was blue, his eyes a glowing red, and his hair a shimmering blue-black. Eli stiffened. Back home on Lysatra, there were myths about beings like that. Proud, deadly warriors that the stories named Chiss. With an effort, he tore his eyes away from the face and his mind away from the old myths. The prisoner was dressed in what appeared to be skins and furs, apparently sewn together from the indigenous animals of the forest where he'd been living. Even marching in the center of a rectangle of armed stormtroopers, he had an air of almost regal confidence about him. Confidence. That was definitely part of the stories. The stormtroopers brought him to within a few meters of park and nudged him to a halt. Welcome aboard the Vanisher Star Destroyer Strike Fast, the captain said. Do you speak basic? For a moment, the alien seemed to be studying him. Or would Cybisti be better? Eli added in that language. Barris threw a glare at him, and Eli winced. Again, stupid. He should have waited for orders. The prisoner, too, was gazing at him, though his expression seemed more thoughtful than angry. Captain Park, for his part, only had eyes for the prisoner. You asked him whether he spoke Cybisti, I assume? Yes, sir, Eli said. My apologies, Captain. I just thought... The stories all say that the Chiss use Cybisti in their... The what? Park asked. The, the Chiss, Eli said, feeling his face warming. They're, uh... Uh, well... They've always been thought of as a wild space myth. Have they now? Park said, eyeing the prisoner. It would appear they're a bit more substantial than that. But I interrupted. You were saying? Just that in the stories, the Chiss used Sabisti in their dealings with us. As you also used that language with us, the prisoner said calmly, in Sabisti. Eli twitched. The prisoner had answered in Cybisti, but he'd responded to a comment that Eli had made in Basic. Do you understand Basic? He asked in Cybisti. I understand some, the Chiss answered in the same language, but I'm more comfortable with this one. Eli nodded. He says he understands some Basic, but is more comfortable with Cybisti. 
I see, Park said. Very well. I'm Captain Park, commander of this ship. What's your name? Eli opened his mouth to translate. No, Park stopped him with an upraised hand. You can translate his answers, but I want to see how much basic he understands. Your name, please. For a moment, the Chiss was silent, his gaze drifting around the hangar bay. Not like a primitive overwhelmed by the size and magnificence of the place, Eli thought, but like another military man, sizing up his enemy's strengths and weaknesses. Mithron Nuirodo, he said, bringing his glowing eyes back to Park. But I believe it would be easier for you to call me Thrawn. Chapter 2 A life path may change because of important decisions or events. Those were what drove my current path. But sometimes the smallest event can also drive a turn. In the case of Eli Vanto, that force was a single overheard word. Chiss. Where had Cadet Vanto heard that name? What did it mean to him? He had already spoken one reason, but there might well be others. Indeed, the full truth might have several layers. But what were they? On a ship as large as this, there was only one practical way to find out. Thus did my path take yet another turn, as certainly did his. Thrawn, Park repeated, as if trying out the name. Very well. As I said, welcome. I want you to know that we didn't intend to intrude on your privacy. We were looking for smugglers and happened upon your home. One of our standing orders is to study all unknown species we come across. Yes, Thrawn said in Cybiste. So also said the traders who first contacted my people. He understands, sir, Eli translated. He knows about that order from traders who've contacted his people. Then why didn't you come out? Barris demanded. Why did you harass and kill my men? It was necessary, Thrawn began in Cybiste. Enough, Barris cut in. He understands basic. That means he can speak it. So speak. Why did you harass and kill my men? For a moment, Thrawn gazed thoughtfully at him. Eli looked at Park, but the captain also remained silent. Very well, Thrawn said in basic. The words were heavily accented, but understandable. It was necessary. Why? Park asked. What did you hope to accomplish here? I hoped to return home. You were shipwrecked? I was... He looked at Eli. Jishu Eswani. Eli blinked. He was... He says he was exiled, he told the others. 
The words seemed to hang in the fume-scented air of the hangar bay. Eli stared at Thrawn, thinking back to the campfire stories of his childhood. The tales had spoken of Chiss' unity and military prowess. Never once had the stories talked about them exiling one another. Why? Park asked. Thrawn looked at Eli. In basic, if he can, Eli said. The Chiss looked back at Park. The leaders and I disagreed. Disagreed to the point of exile? Yes. Interesting, Park murmured. All right. So that's why you ran Colonel Barris's men in circles. Now tell us how. It was undifficult, Thrawn said. Your spacecraft crashed near my place of exile. I had opportunity to examine before following soldiers arrived. The pilot was dead. I took his body and hid it away. And filled his flight suit with grass, Barris put in, hoping we wouldn't notice you'd stolen his equipment. Nor did you, the Chiss said. Important most was that you would take the flight suit and rotted Piyush berries with you. The berries? Barris echoed. Yes. Rotted crushed Piyush berries are lure for small animals of night. Eli nodded to himself. Rotted? Fermented? Animals of night? Nocturnal? It was as if Thrawn had had a fairly good basic dictionary to work with, but was missing some of the more technical words and had to improvise. His grammar was a bit shaky, too, again suggesting that he'd learned it out of books instead of from practical conversational experience. Did that imply that Chiss had had only limited recent contact with anyone outside unknown space? So you strapped the gimmicked blaster power packs to the animals? Barris said. That's how you got them past our sentry perimeter. Yes, the Chiss said. Also how I later attacked soldiers. With a sling, I threw more berries to their armor. You then crashed a starfighter, Park said. How? I knew spacecraft would come to search. In preparation, I had strung some... He paused... Ohuludwu. Monofilament line, Eli supplied. Monofilament line between treetops. The spacecraft struck. And at that altitude, the pilot wouldn't have time to recover, Park said, nodding. It wouldn't have done you any good to capture the fighter intact, by the way. They don't have hyperdrives. I did not want the spacecraft, Thrawn said. I wanted the pilots... Again, a pause. Ezenti Ofu Osenji. Equipment and comlink, Eli said. But you didn't take his comlink, Barris objected. We checked the suit at the encampment. It was still there. No, Thrawn said. What was there was the comlink from the first pilot. Eli nodded to himself. Cleverness, tactics, and maintaining control of the situation. 
those were indeed the hallmarks of the Chiss, at least according to the stories. But still, exile? Ingenious, Park said. And we thought we knew what had happened, so we never bothered to check the serial number. So when we discovered the first comlink was missing and locked it out of the circuit, you still had one that functioned. So you killed a man just to get his comlink? Barris said harshly. Clearly he wasn't as impressed by the alien's resourcefulness as the captain. Why did you keep attacking my men? For the fun of it? I regret the loss of life, Thrawn said gravely. But I needed soldiers with fuller armor to come. With fuller... Barris broke off. The stormtroopers? You wanted stormtroopers to come? Your soldiers wear helmets, the Chiss said, tracing an imaginary brim around his forehead. No good for me. He touched a hand to his face. I needed cover of face. The only way you could enter the encampment undetected, Park said, nodding. Yes, Thrawn agreed. I used explosive on one to obtain armor I could study. How did you do that without anyone hearing the explosion? Barris interrupted. It was as I began feedback noise from Comlink, the Chiss said. The noise enclosed the noise of explosive. From the armor, I learned how to kill the soldier without noise or observable damage. I took a second soldier and his armor and walked to the ship. While we were moving your equipment inside? Barris asked. I selected a moment when no one was inside, Thrawn said. With small branches, I stood the armor upright and set it outside the doorway. An explosive inside destroyed it. A distraction so that we wouldn't realize there were actually two missing stormtroopers, Park said. Where did you hide during the trip up? Inside the second power generator casing, Thrawn told him. It is nearly empty, as I have used its parts to maintain the first. I gather you've been here for quite a while, Park said. I can see why you wanted so desperately to leave. Thrawn drew himself up. I was not desperate, but my people need me. Why? They are in danger. There are many dangers in the galaxy. Dangers to my people. Dangers to yours. He made an odd gesture. You would do well to learn of them. Yet your people exiled you here, Park pointed out. Do they disagree with you as to the magnitude of these threats? Thrawn looked at Eli. Repeat, he asked in Cybisti. Eli translated the captain's question. We do not disagree on threat, Thrawn answered in his accented basic. We disagree on process. They do not accept belief in... Easy bully, halusalu. Eli swallowed hard. They don't believe in preemptive strikes. 
So your people need protection, Park said. His voice subtly changed. How would you do this? Alone and without ships or allies? Eli frowned. An odd question in an odd tone of voice. Was the captain fishing for information on possible Chiss allies? Thrawn didn't seem to notice. I do not know, he said calmly. I will find a way. I'm sure you will, Park said. In the meantime, you've had a busy day, and I'm sure you could use some rest. Commander? Sir? One of the stormtroopers stepped forward. You and your squad will escort our guests to the deck officer's office while suitable accommodations and refreshments are prepared, Park ordered. Thrawn, I take my leave now. We shall speak again later. Thank you, Captain Park, the Chiss said. I will look ahead to it. Eli was in his quarters, working on the after-action report he'd been ordered to complete when they came for him. Eli had never been in the captain's private office. He'd never even been in this part of the strike fast. And he'd never been in the company of this many high-ranking officers. It was like a board certification session. Or a court-martial. Get it, Vanto. Captain Park greeted him. He gestured to a chair that had been set in front of the line of officers. Be seated. Yes, sir. Eli sat down, fervently hoping that his shaking wasn't visible. First, I want to commend you for your conduct during the recent action, Park said. You behaved admirably under fire. Thank you, sir, Eli said. Though as he remembered it, he'd done very little except stays clear of the fighting and confusion as he possibly could. Tell me, what do you think of our prisoner? He seems very confident, sir, Eli said. Why were they asking him? Very much in control, he considered. Except maybe when he was captured in the hangar bay. You may have caught him by surprise there. I don't think so. Park said. He surrendered quite readily, with no attempted resistance or escape. He cocked his head slightly. You seem to know something about his people. Not really, sir, Eli said. We have stories about the Chiss. More like myths, really, that have been passed down through the generations. As far as I know, none of them has been seen on La Sautra or anywhere in the area for hundreds of years. But you do at least have myths, which is more than we have in the Strikefast records, Park said. What do these stories say about them? They're supposed to be great warriors, Eli said. Clever, resourceful, proud, intensely loyal to one another, too. This exile, they must really hate the idea of preemptive strikes to do that to him. So it would appear, Park agreed. I see you're on track at Myanmar to become a supply officer. Y yes, sir, Eli said, the change in subject momentarily throwing him off balance. 
My family is in the shipping business, and they thought Imperial service would be a step up. Have you had any training in teaching or tutoring? Nothing formal, sir, Eli said. Was Park going to recommend he switch to a teaching track? He hoped not. He'd spent his youth flying cargoes for his family, and he didn't want to be stuck in an office or classroom somewhere. For a moment, the captain gazed at him. Then he leaned back in his seat and looked at the other officers flanking him. A wordless signal passed among them. Very well, cadet, Park said, turning back to Eli. As of this moment, you're assigned as liaison, translator, and aide to our prisoner. You will also... Sir? Eli blurted out, feeling his eyes go wide. But I'm just a cadet. I wasn't finished, Park said. Along with translation, you'll also be coaching him in basic. He has the fundamentals, as you saw, but he needs a more extensive vocabulary and some correction with pronunciation and grammar. Any questions? Uh, no, sir, Eli managed. The surprises were coming way too fast. Actually, yes, sir, I do. Why does he need to know basic? Aren't we putting him back on the planet? There was a quiet stir among the officers, and Eli had the sudden sense that he'd just crossed an invisible line. He tensed. No, Park said. His voice was calm, but there was an edge to it, as if this was a question he and the others had already hashed over and hadn't necessarily agreed on. We're taking him to Coruscant. To... Eli clamped his mouth shut. Visions of ancient kings parading defeated enemies through the streets, flashing through his mind. But surely that wasn't what Park had in mind, was it? I believe the Emperor will be interested in meeting him and learning about these chiss, Park said. There was something in his tone that suggested the explanation was as much for his officer's benefit as for Eli's. I also believe that they could prove an important asset to the Empire. Do your myths include any suggestion of where their home planet might be located? Just that they come from the unknown region, sir. Nothing more specific. Pity, Park said. No matter. That will be another of your duties over the next few days. To learn as much as you can about him, his home world, and his people. Yes, sir, Eli said, feeling his heart doing bounce-ups. From lowly cadet to translator and tutor to a being straight out of Lysatra's stories. And the only downside was that it might cost his future because he'd already seen that the Empire was a massive construct of giant, unforgiving machinery. If he strayed even a few degrees off his chosen career path, he might suddenly find himself relegated to some other track, something obscure that might send him to the core deck of a forgotten starbase and abandon him there. Still, this little detour in his path should only fill a week or so while the Strikefast transported Thrawn to Coruscant. After that, Eli would return to Myanmar with the other cadets, and with a story he'd be able to tell people for the rest of his life. And really, what could go wrong?
You seem amused, Cadet Vanto said. He leans back in his seat. Amused? Thrawn asked. Entertained, with a feeling of humor, Vanto said. He switches back to Cybiste for the explanation. Was there anything in particular about this story that you found humorous? I found the story quite interesting. Some of my stories you find interesting, Vanto said. Wrinkles form across his forehead. Others you seem to find unbelievable. A few of them you find amusing. This was one of those. I do not mean to offend, Thrawn said. But I myself am Chiss, and never have I heard of any of my people wielding such a power. I'll concede that one, Banto said. The wrinkles partially smooth out. I told you right from the beginning that these stories are barely above the level of myths, but you asked to hear them. I appreciate your willingness to share, Thrawn said. One may learn a great deal about a people by the stories they tell of others. And? Vanto asked. The wrinkles return. His head turns slightly to his right. I do not understand. I ask what you've learned about humans, Vanto said. His eyes narrow slightly. I misspoke. Apologies. I meant to say I could learn about one person, you, from the stories you choose to tell. And what have you learned about me? Vanto asked. His eyes return to normal size. His vocal tone lowers in pitch. That you do not wish to be here, Thrawn said. You do not wish to act as translator and assistant. You certainly do not wish to act as interrogator. Who said I was an interrogator? Vanto asked. His tone rises slightly in pitch and volume. The musculature beneath his sleeves tightens. You wish to return to your numbers and inventory lists, Thrawn said. That is where your talents lie, and where you desire your path to lead. Fascinating, Vanto said. His tone takes on a new rumbling texture. The corners of his lips tighten briefly. I suppose that as a big, important military commander, you find logistics and supply beneath your dignity? Do you? Of course not, Banto said. His torso stretches slightly upward in his chair. His voice takes on a fuller tone. Because I know better. My family has done that kind of work for three generations. I'm just doing it for the Imperial Navy now, instead of for my own family, that's all. I presume you are good at it. I'm very good at it, Vanto said. Lieutenant Osterigi told me I'm one of the best cadets he's ever had aboard. As soon as I finish my last term at the Academy, I'll be guaranteed an assignment aboard a ship of the line. Is what you wish? Thrawn asked. Absolutely, Vanto said. A fuller tone partially fades from his voice. What I don't know is why you care. Why I care about what? Why you care about me, Vanto said. His eyes narrow again. 
His tone returns to the lower pitch. You've been studying me. Don't think I haven't noticed. You asked me to tell you one of the legends I learned as a child. Then you ask about my home or background or childhood. Always small questions. Always delivered very casually. What I want to know is why. He folds his arms in a crisscross pattern across his chest. I am sorry, Thrawn said. I meant no harm. I was merely interested in you, as I am interested in everything about your empire. But why me? Vanto asked. You never ask about Captain Park, or Major Barris, or any of the other senior officers, or even about Emperor Palpatine, or the Imperial Senate. They are not connected to my immediate survival, Thrawn said. You are. With all due respect, he couldn't be more wrong, Vanto said. He shakes his head back and forth, sideways. Captain Park could order you shoved out an airlock at any time. Major Barris could trump up charges or implicate you in something and have you shot. <laughs> As for the Emperor... The musculature of his throat tightens briefly. There is an enhanced infrared glow from his face. He has absolute power over everyone and everything in the Empire. If he isn't amused or pleased with you, you'll end up dead. Captain Park seeks honor and promotion, Thrawn said. He believes me to be the path to that end. Major Barris dislikes me, but will not risk angering his captain. As for the Emperor, we shall see. Fine. Vento said. The musculature of his throat relaxes partially, but not fully. Personally, I'd be a lot more concerned about him, but that's up to you. But I'm still the bottom man on the roster. Why do you even care about me? You are my translator. You hold my words in your hand, and their meanings. A misjudged translation will confuse or anger. A deliberate error could lead to death. Great spit, Banto said. He makes a snorting sound through his nose. Forgive me? I call crate spit, Banto said. You've picked up a lot of basic in the past couple of days. You speak it as well as I do. Probably better. You don't have a wild space accent people can make fun of. The last thing you need is a translator. You make my case for me, Thrawn said. What is meant by crate spit? It's a slang term for nonsense, Banto said. The left corner of his lip twists upward. Especially nonsense that the speaker knows is nonsense. I see. Crate spit. I will remember that. Don't, Vanto said. His tone is deep, the word sharply clipped. It's not polite. It also reeks of backwater places like Lysatra. Backwater means any planet that's not part of the core worlds and the elite and powerful people who live there. I presume there exists a hierarchy of worlds and people who inhabit them. Finally, a question about the actual empire, Vanto said. Yes, 
Absolutely, there's a hierarchy. A big, impressive, mostly unwritten, but absolutely rigid hierarchy. If you were counting on me to introduce you to the high and mighty, you're going to be seriously disappointed. You give yourself too little credit, Cadet Vanto, Thrawn said. Or perhaps you give the social hierarchy too much. I'm content to have you as my translator. I'm glad you're pleased, Vanto said. His tone rises slightly in pitch. His throat musculature still shows tightness. Not that you had any choice in the matter. Perhaps, Thrawn said. Tell me, when do we arrive at your capital world? My orders are to have you in the forward hangar bay. That's the one you tried to escape from? At 0700 tomorrow morning, Banto said. And I will meet with the Emperor soon after that? I have no idea what happens after that, Banto said. The muscles under his tunic stiffen slightly, and wrinkles return to his forehead. But odds are it won't be anyone even close to the Emperor. Probably some senior administrator. Maybe even a junior one. Will you come with me? That's up to the captain, Banto said. I do still have other duties aboard the strike fast. I also need to prepare for my return to the Myomar Academy. Your duties and studies are of course important, Thrawn said. We shall see what decision Captain Park comes to. Until morning, cadet, I bid you farewell and good evening. Yes, Vanto said. The tension in his musculature decreases, but it is not entirely gone. Until morning. Captain Park's personal Lambda shuttle left the hangar at precisely 0705 the next morning. Apart from Park, Thrawn, and Eli, the passenger list included Major Barris, three of the Navy troopers who'd been on the planet when Thrawn was running everyone in circles, and two stormtroopers, presumably also part of the group who'd seen the alien in action. There were also ten heavily armed Navy troopers. If Park was worried about hard-eyed, high-command administrators, he also wasn't taking any chances on his prisoner making a break for it once they reached the planet. Like everyone else in the Empire, Eli had seen hundreds of hollows of Coruscant. He'd also spent a couple of hours studying planetary maps the day after Park announced they were heading there. None of it prepared him for the breathtaking grandeur of the real thing. He gazed at the passenger cabin's repeater display, watching in utter fascination. The entire planet was surrounded by half a dozen rings of orbiting transports, passenger ships, and military vessels, each awaiting its turn to head to the surface. Elsewhere, steady streams of outgoing ships created subtle fountains of light as they joined the various exit corridors for passage through the atmosphere, then scattered in all directions once they reached space. As the Lambda continued inward, Eli watched the array of glittering star-like points that covered the planet slowly resolve into buildings and towers. Still closer, and the grid lines of repulsor lift vehicles wove their packed way between the towering buildings, doing their intricate dance 
as they headed for a thousand destinations. A sobering thought occurred to him. Right now, he could probably see more vehicles than were on his entire home planet. The pilot eased them into one of the higher lanes, one that seemed reserved for military vehicles. They were close enough now that Eli could pick out specific landmarks. There was the Royal Imperial Academy, where the Empire's elite trained for the Army and Navy. Beyond it, and to the east, was one of the industrial areas, with tall towers spewing superheated wastewater vapor high into the atmosphere. In the distance beyond that, he could see an open area that was far below the tops of the surrounding towers, yet still many levels above the actual planetary surface. A landing area, most likely, probably for elite politicians or larger military vessels. He spotted the top of the Imperial Senate building in the other direction. He caught his breath. If the Senate was there, and the Royal Academy back there, they weren't heading to either the Admiralty or the Imperial Security Bureau headquarters, which he'd concluded were the two most likely destinations. They were heading straight for the Imperial Palace. The Imperial Palace? No, that couldn't be. Not for a single random blue-skinned near-human captured on an unnamed world out in wild space. There was no possible way the Emperor would even notice such an event, let alone take a personal interest in it. And yet, that seemed to be exactly what had happened. Surreptitiously, Eli looked across the aisle where Thrawn and Park sat together surrounded by guards. The captain looked unnaturally stiff, as if he couldn't believe their destination any more than Eli could. The guards looked the same way, except that some of them looked quietly but genuinely terrified. As well they should be. These were the men and women whose mistakes had allowed Thrawn to get aboard the strike fast in the first place. There were dark stories about what the Emperor did with people who'd failed him. But Thrawn himself didn't look frightened, or even concerned. All Eli could see in his face was that maddening confidence of his. Maybe Park hadn't told him where they were going. Maybe he hadn't told him about the Emperor's history or his reputation. Or maybe he'd told Thrawn everything, and the Chiss simply assumed that whatever their destination, he would have things under control. Eli turned back to the display, the old stories of Chiss military power echoing through his mind. As far as he had been able to ascertain, that whole culture and society had been lost from Republic knowledge for centuries, maybe even millennia. Now, suddenly, they'd re-entered history. Was Thrawn's level of confidence unique to him? Or were all the Chiss like this? As someone who might someday be called upon to fight them, he hoped fervently it wasn't the latter. Eli had almost managed to convince himself that the group would merely be meeting with some palace official, 
when they were ushered past a pair of red-robed and red-helmeted imperial guards into the emperor's throne room. Even more than Coruscant itself, the hollows and vids Eli had seen of Emperor Palpatine paled in comparison with the real thing. At first glance, the emperor didn't seem like much. He was dressed in a plain brown hooded robe, with no ornamentation or glitz of any sort. His throne, while massive, was solid black and very simple, again with no ostentation about it, raised a mere four steps above the floor. In fact, the darkness of his robe made him almost disappear from sight into the black of the throne. It was as the group drew closer that the eeriness began. First was the emperor's face. The hollows and vids always showed him as a dignified older man, aged somewhat with the experience of life and the cares of leadership. But the hollows were wrong. The face beneath the hood was old, old and creased with a hundred deep wrinkles. Not ordinary wrinkles either, the kind Eli's grandparents had earned from years under the open sky. These creases were less like age and more like scars or burn tissue. The history stated that the Jedi traitor's last attempt to seize power had been an attack on then-Chancellor Palpatine. The histories hadn't mentioned that his victory over the assassins had come at such a terrible cost. Perhaps that was also what had happened to his eyes. A shiver ran up Eli's back. The eyes were bright and intelligent, all-knowing and utterly powerful. But they were strange, unique, disturbing, damaged perhaps by the same treachery that had ravaged his face. Intelligence, knowledge, power. And even more than with Thrawn, a sense of complete mastery over everything around him. The Emperor watched in silence as the party walked toward him. Park led the way, Barris and Eli behind him, followed by Thrawn and the Navy Trooper and Stormtrooper witnesses. The guard contingent Park had brought remained outside the door, six of the Imperial Guards having taken over their escort duty. It seemed to take forever to reach the throne. Eli wondered how close they would be permitted to approach, and how Captain Park would know when he had reached that point. The question was answered as Park came to within five meters, and the two Imperial Guards at the foot of the steps glided to positions directly in front of him. Park stopped, the rest of them following suit, and waited. And waited. It was probably only five seconds, but to Eli, it felt like a medium-sized eternity. The entire throne room was utterly still, utterly silent. The only sound was the thudding of his pulse in his ears. The only movement, the shaking of his arms in his sleeves. Captain Puck, the Emperor said at last, his gravelly voice neutral. I'm told you bring me a gift. Eli winced. A gift? 
for the chiss of the stories, that would have been a deadly insult. Thrawn was behind him, and Eli didn't dare turn around, but he could imagine the expression on that proud face. I do, your majesty, Park said, bowing low. A warrior reportedly of a species known as the Chiss. Indeed, the Emperor said, his voice growing even drier. And what, pray tell, would you have me do with him? If I may, your majesty, Thrawn put in before Park could answer. I am not merely a gift. I am also a resource. One you have never seen the like of before, and may never see again. You would do well to utilize me. <laughs> would I? The Emperor said, sounding amused. Certainly you're a resource of unlimited confidence. What exactly do you offer, Chiss? As a start, I offer information, Thrawn said. If he was offended, Eli couldn't hear it in his voice. There are threats lurking in the unknown regions. Threats that will someday find your empire. I am familiar with many of them. I will learn of them soon enough on my own. The Emperor countered placidly. Can you offer anything more? Perhaps you will learn of them in time to defeat them, Thrawn said. Perhaps you will not. What more do I offer? I offer my military skill. You could utilize that skill in making plans to seek out and eliminate these dangers. These threats you speak of, the Emperor said. I presume they're not simply threats to my empire. No, your majesty, Thrawn said. They are also threats to my people. And you seek to eliminate all such threats to your people. I do. The Emperor's yellowish eyes seem to glitter. And you wish the help of my empire. Your assistance would be welcome. You wish me to assist the people who exiled you? The Emperor said. Or was Captain Park incorrect? He spoke correctly, Thrawn said. I was indeed exiled. Yet you still seek to protect them. Why? Because they are my people. And if they withhold their gratitude and refuse to accept you back... What then? There was a slight pause, and Eli had the eerie sense that Thrawn was giving the Emperor one of those small smiles he was so good at. I do not need their permission to protect them, Your Majesty. Nor do I expect their thanks. I've seen others with your sense of nobility, the Emperor said. Most fell by the wayside when their naive selflessness collided with the real world. I have faced the real world, as you call it. You have indeed, the Emperor said. What exactly do you wish from my empire? A state of mutual gain, Thrawn said. I offer my knowledge and skill to you now, in exchange for your consideration, 
to my people in the future. And when that future comes, what if I refuse to grant that consideration? Then I will have gambled and lost, Thrawn said calmly. But I have until that time to convince you that my goals and yours do indeed coincide. Interesting, the Emperor murmured. Tell me, if you served the Empire, yet a threat arose against your people, where would your loyalties lie? Which of us would command your allegiance? I see no conflict in the sharing of information. I'm not speaking of information, the Emperor said. I'm speaking of service. There was a short pause. If I were to serve the Empire, you would command my allegiance. What guarantee do you offer? My word is my guarantee, Thrawn said. Perhaps your servant can speak to the strength of that vow. My servant? The Emperor asked, his eyes flicking to Park. I do not refer to Captain Park, Thrawn said. I speak of another. Perhaps I assumed incorrectly that he was your servant. Yet he always spoke highly of Chancellor Palpatine. The Emperor leaned forward a little, his yellowish eyes glittering. And his name? Skywalker, Thrawn said. Anakin Skywalker. Chapter 3 War is primarily a game of skill. It is a contest of mind matched against mind, tactics matched against tactics. But there is also an element of chance that is more suited to games of cards or dice. A wise tactician studies those games as well and learns from them. The first lesson of card games is that the cards cannot be played in random order. Only when laid down properly can victory be achieved. In this case, there were but three cards. The first was played at the encampment. The result was entrance to the strike fast. The second was played aboard ship. The result was the promise of passage to Coruscant and the assignment of Cadet Vanto as my translator. The third was a name. Anakin Skywalker. Interesting, the Emperor said. His eyes are steady and do not blink. The skin of his face is unmoving. And your name? You already know it. I wish you to speak it. Mithron Yuruodo. So it was you, the Emperor said. He leans back in his throne. The corners of his lips curve upward. His eyes remain unchanged in size. When Captain Park's message arrived, I'd hoped it was. Jedi Skywalker survived the war then. Sadly, he did not, the Emperor said. 
I mourn his passing, Thrawn said. He was a most cunning and... May I consult my translator? You may, the Emperor said. His eyes narrow slightly. The yellow tinge now appears stronger. Ikua? Courageous, Vanto translated. His face radiates extra heat. The muscles beneath his tunic show stiffness. His lips compress tightly before and after he speaks the word. He was a most cunning and courageous warrior, Thrawn continued. I had hoped to meet him again. Most courageous indeed, the Emperor said. His head turned slightly to his neck. His eyes rest briefly on Vanto, then return. His fingers press gently against the arms of his throne. But before his end, he detailed for me the circumstances of your meeting, and spoke highly of your abilities. So you wish to become my advisor on matters of the unknown regions? I've said that already. And if I offered more? The Emperor asked. What larger offer would you make? You can see the power that I have created, the Emperor said. His eyes are strongly focused, his lips showing a small curve. Or you can be part of it. My home is lost to me, Thrawn said. Jedi Skywalker's services are lost to you. If you wish my direct service as a replacement to his, I am honored to offer it. Interesting, the Emperor said. His eyes linger a moment, then shift their direction and focus on Captain Park. You were correct to bring your prisoner to me, Captain. You and your men will return to your ship and your duties. The High Command will provide a suitable reward for your service and initiative. Yes, Your Majesty, Park said, bowing again. Thank you. A favor, Your Majesty, Thrawn said. Speak, Mithrawn Yorodo, the Emperor said. His eyes narrow. I am still inexpert at your language. I would request that my translator be transferred to duty at my side. The Emperor sits motionlessly, without speaking. He then presses his hands onto the throne's armrests, and rises to his feet. Walk with me, Mithron Yuruodo. The two guards at the foot of the throne stepped a meter to either side. The Emperor descended to the floor, and turned to his left, toward a garden area at the side of the chamber. The garden is small, but contains a variety of plants. Most are set in large pots or in long floor trenches lining the curved flagstone walkways. A few brightly colored flowers grow directly from the decorative stone. Small trees with shimmering bark stand at the periphery like sentinels of privacy. The distance from garden to throne ensures privacy from those still waiting there. There is 
an artistic foundation to the garden's arrangement. There is a pattern in the interaction of curve and line, in the melding and contrast of shape and color, in the subtle play of light and shadow. It bespeaks power and subtlety and great depth of thought. An interesting space, Thrawn said. Did you create it? I designed it, the Emperor said. He stopped within the first curve of bushes. Tell me, what do you think? Subtlety and depth of thought. You did not bring me here to speak of translators, Thrawn told him. But you wished Captain Park and the others to so believe. Good, the Emperor said. His tone is deeper. The corners of his lips lift. His mouth opens slightly, revealing his teeth. Good. Anakin spoke of your insight. I'm pleased to learn he was correct. The unknown regions intrigue me, Mithron Urodo. There is great potential there. There is also great danger. There is great danger here as well, the Emperor countered. The corners of his lips turned downward, and his eyes narrow. Certainly there is power here, Thrawn said. But there is only danger to your enemies. You do not consider your people to be among those enemies? You spoke of an interest in the unknown regions. How may I assist in satisfying your curiosity? You seek to avoid my question, the Emperor said. His lips compressed together. Tell me, do your people regard the Empire as their enemy? I am not accountable for the future actions or goals of my people, Thrawn said. I can speak only for myself. And I have said already, I will serve you. Until you find it convenient to escape from my reach? I am a warrior, your majesty, Thrawn said. A warrior may retreat. He does not flee. He may lie in ambush. He does not hide. He may experience victory or defeat. He does not cease to serve. I will hold you to that, the Emperor said. Why do you wish to have your translator? He knows something of my people, Thrawn said. I wish to explore the depth of that knowledge. If he has knowledge of the unknown regions, then perhaps I should instead keep him here with me. His knowledge is little more than stories and tales. Thrawn said. He will not know worlds or peoples, nor will he know hyperspace lanes and potential safe havens. That knowledge lies solely with you? The Emperor asked. His tone lowers in pitch. For the moment, Thrawn said. Later, it will lie also with you. Once again... Your eloquence belies your need for a translator, the Emperor said.
His lips again turn upward. But I will give him to you. Come, let us rejoin the others. The group was still waiting between the lines of guards. This is he? The Emperor asked, pointing at Vanto. It is, Your Majesty, Thrawn said. Cadet Eli Vanto. Captain Park, how much longer does Cadet Vanto have before graduation? Three standard months, Your Majesty, Park said. We were scheduled to return him and his fellow cadets to Myomar when we were sidetracked by the smuggler pursuit that ultimately brought us to Thrawn's place of exile. You will return the other cadets as planned, the Emperor said. Cadet Vanto will remain on Coruscant and finish his training at the Royal Imperial Academy. Uh, yes, Your Majesty, Park said, looking briefly at Vanto, then at Thrawn. I'll inform Admiral Foss of this change. Vanto's face radiates more strongly than before, and the muscles in his throat have stiffened. He begins to open his mouth, as if to speak, but closes it with no words spoken. He does not understand, nor will he, not for a long while. The Myomar Academy, situated in the expansion region, was staffed and attended mostly by residents of backwater worlds. There, Eli had been among his own kind, about as relaxed and comfortable as it was possible to be, given the excruciating pressure of the Empire's most intense training regimen. The Royal Imperial Academy, in contrast, was staffed exclusively by the elite of the Empire, with a student body to match. From the moment Eli and Thrawn set foot off the shuttle from the palace, he could feel everyone's eyes fixed firmly on the newcomers. And he had no doubt that most of those eyes were hostile. The alien and the backwater yokel. This, Eli thought glumly, was a classic joke in the making. Commandant Deanlar clearly thought likewise. So, he ground out, his eyes flicking back and forth between the two of them as they stood at attention in front of his desk. Is this Admiral Foss's idea of a joke? Thrawn didn't answer, apparently leaving this one to Eli. Great. The Emperor himself sent us here, sir, Eli said, not knowing what else to say. That was a rhetorical question, cadet, Deanlar growled, glaring at him from under bushy eyebrows. You do have complicated words like rhetorical and wild space, don't you? Eli clenched his teeth. Yes, sir. Good, Dean Lark said. Because we use a lot of big words here, we wouldn't want you to get lost. He shifted his glare to Thrawn. What's your excuse, alien? My excuse for what, sir? Thrawn asked calmly. Your excuse for living! Dean Lark bit out. Well? Thrawn remained silent. And for a few seconds, the two of them locked gazes. Then Dean Lark's lip twitched. Yeah, like I thought, the Commandant said sourly. 
You're damn lucky the Emperor's taken a fancy to you. Though why, I can't guess. He paused, as if expecting Thrawn to explain it to him. Again, the Chiss didn't respond. Fine, Dean Lark said at last. Foss's message said you were some kind of fancy-faced soldier already. That all you needed was a little orientation in Imperial procedure, equipment, and terminology. That scans out to a six-month course for the typical raw recruit. Probably two years for cadets from the back end of nowhere, he added, looking at Eli. There were times, Eli had learned, when it didn't pay to say anything. This was one of them. He kept his head up, his eyes focused straight ahead, and his mouth closed. So here's the deal, Dean Lark said, turning back to Thrawn. Cadet Vanto has three months left before commissioning. That's how long you have to come up to speed. You fail, and you're out. The Emperor might disagree, Thrawn said mildly. Dean Lark's lip twitched. The Emperor would understand, he said, but some of the air had gone out of his bluster. His own mandate to the Academies is to turn out officers worthy of Imperial service. Anything less and the whole Navy suffers, officers and enlisted alike. Of course, if the Emperor wants to put you in by fiat, he can do that. He raised his eyebrows. I hope you'll prove good enough that he won't have to do that. We shall see, Thrawn said. I guess we shall. Dean Lark pursed his lips. One other thing. Foss said you were to leave here as a lieutenant instead of the standard rank of ensign. Something about getting you into command position as quickly as possible. I figure why waste time? Pulling open a drawer, he extracted a lieutenant's rank insignia plaque and gave it a spinning flip that landed it on the edge of the desk in front of Thrawn. There you go. Congratulations, Lieutenant. Cadet Vanto can show you which way is up. Thank you, sir, Thrawn said politely, picking up the plaque. I assume the proper uniforms will be delivered to our quarters. Yes. Dean Lark said, frowning. You sure you even need a translator? Your basic seems pretty good. Eli felt a flicker of hope. Dean Lark had already made it clear that he wasn't happy with this arrangement. He couldn't touch Thrawn directly, but maybe he could express some of his displeasure by refusing to accept Eli as Thrawn's translator. If he did, Maybe there was still time for Eli to get back to Myomar and finish his schooling in more comfortable surroundings. There are yet many idioms and technical terms I'm unfamiliar with, Thrawn said. His service will be most valuable. I'm sure it will, Dean Lark conceded reluctantly. Fine. Now get the hell out of here! I mean, dismissed cadets. You've been assigned a split double. Your men outside will have a mouse droid take you there. Schedules and directions are on your computer. Assuming you've figured out how to turn it on. I'm familiar with your computer systems, Thrawn said. I was talking to Vanto.
Dean Lark said sarcastically. Dismissed! The yeoman was as stiff as the commandant, but he was efficient enough. Two minutes later, Eli and Thrawn were following a mouse droid as it skittered its way along the walkway leading to barracks two. And just like that, Eli's life had been completely upended. His career trajectory with the Navy, so carefully calculated and implemented, was gone. Worse, just because he'd been solidly on track to graduate from Myanmar didn't mean he would make it in the much tougher environment of Royal Imperial. Even with only three months to go, he could still wash out. Especially since his time would now be split between his studies and playing word games with Thrawn. An alien who was even more of a fish ashore than Eli himself. An alien who could not possibly succeed. Eli knew what Imperial Academies were like. He'd heard all the running jokes about Falleen, Umbarans, Nymoidians, and other aliens. And Royal Imperial, smack at the center of the Empire, would almost certainly be the worst of the lot. Thrawn had as much chance of surviving here as a wounded bird in a nest of blood spites. When he went down, would Eli go down with him? He had no idea but he guessed he probably would. You seem thoughtful, Thrawn said. Eli made a face. The Chiss had no idea what he'd let himself in for. Just wondering how we're gonna do here. Yes. Thrawn was silent a moment. You spoke once of a planetary and social hierarchy. Tell me how that hierarchy... He paused. Benisu... Eli sighed. Manifests. Thank you. How that hierarchy manifests here. Probably the same as in any military academy, Eli said. The commandant is on top, the instructors are below him, and the cadets are below them. Pretty simple, really. Are there good relations between each level of authority? I don't know, Eli said. They all have to work together, so I suppose they all get along. But there is rivalry between cadets. Of course. And the cadets have no official military rank or hierarchy until graduation. There's an unspoken social order, Eli said, frowning. Nothing official. Wow, the questions. This... Thrawn opened his hand and gazed down at the lieutenant's rank plaque lying across his palm. I wish to understand why he gave it to me. Well, it wasn't from the goodness of his heart, Eli growled. It wasn't to save time either. Explain. Eli huffed out a breath. <sighs> Look, there are three reactions you're going to get as soon as you start flashing that plaque around. One... Some students and instructors will see you as Dean Lark's pet and resent you for it. What is a pet? In this case, slang for a favored student, Eli told him. That group will resent you for all the privileges you're supposedly getting. I do not expect to get privileges. Doesn't matter. They'll still figure you're getting some. Reaction number two, some will see you as a failed officer who's been sent back for a refresher. That group will treat you with complete contempt. So this is not so much a gift 
as a weapon. A weapon against you, yeah, Eli said. And then there's group three. They'll think you're a joke. No, on second thought, they'll probably think you're a test. What sort of test? A really hard kind, Eli said. Yes, this had to be what Dean Lark was going for. Okay, here. You're not supposed to show disrespect to superior officers. I assume it's also like that in the Chiss military, right? Normally, Thrawn said, his voice going a little dry. Eli winced. For a moment, he'd forgotten how Thrawn had arrived in the Empire in the first place. Well, officially, we're not allowed to disrespect aliens either, he went on hurriedly. I say officially because that's what the general orders say we're supposed to do. But that's not always what we really do. You dislike non-humans? Eli hesitated. How was he supposed to answer that? There were a lot of different non-human groups in the Separatist movement, he said, choosing his words carefully. The Clone Wars killed a lot of people and devastated whole worlds. There's still a lot of resentment about that especially among humans. But were not other non-human groups allied with the Republic? Sure, Eli said. And most of them did all right. But humans still carried most of the weight, he considered. Well, that's the perception anyway. I don't know if it's actually true. Thrawn nodded. Either agreement or simple acknowledgement. Either way... Would it not be more reasonable to resent only those non-human groups that opposed you? Probably, Eli said. Well, okay, definitely. And it probably started that way. But sometimes that sort of thing seeps down to other groups. He hesitated. On top of that, there's a lot of contempt in the core worlds toward the people anywhere past the mid-rim. Humans and non-humans alike. And with me from Wild Space... And you from the unknown regions? We're about as far into the sneer zone as you can get. I see, Thrawn said. If I understand, I am untouchable for three reasons. I am an officer. I am not human. And I am from the disrespected edge of the Empire. So the test for the cadets would be to see how creative they can be in their disrespect toward me? Basically, Eli said. And how close to the line they can get without stepping over it. Which line? The line where they've done something that can't be ignored. Eli said, trying to think. Okay, try this. Someone could shove you off a walkway and claim you were the one who bumped into him. But he couldn't break into your quarters and wreck your computer. See the difference? In the second case, there's no way he could claim you were the one at fault. Unless he claimed I had stored stolen data on the computer, and he was attempting to retrieve it. Eli winced. I hadn't thought of that, he said. But yeah, that's exactly how it would work. Though in that case, he'd have to prove you had stolen data in order to get away with it. It could be planted after my quarters were entered. I suppose, <laughs> Eli said. This just got better and better. Looks like we're going to be walking on eggshells for the next three months. Thrawn was silent another few steps. I assume that is another idiom, he said. Perhaps it would be better if you did not walk on these eggshells alongside me. 
Yeah. Well, you should have thought about that before you asked the Emperor to stick me as your translator, Eli said sourly. You want to call the palace and tell him you've changed your mind? I still require your services, Thrawn said. But you could join the others in expressing your contempt for me. Eli frowned. Come again? Excuse me. Eli rolled his eyes. Sometimes Thrawn caught these idioms right away. Other times he didn't have a clue. That means I want you to repeat that, or otherwise explain what you mean. Were the words not clear? Hmm. Very well. You may make it clear to the others that I am no more than an assignment. One, moreover, that you resisted and thoroughly dislike. I don't dislike my assignment, Eli protested, the polite lie automatically coming to his lips. And I don't dislike you. Do you not? Thrawn countered. Because of me, you were taken from your ship and brought to this academy, which you fear. Eli felt something stir inside him. Who said I was afraid? He demanded. I'm not afraid. I'm just not looking forward to spending my last term with a bunch of core world snobs, that's all. I am glad to hear that, Thrawn said gravely. We shall endure it together. Yeah, Eli said, frowning hard at him. Had he just been maneuvered into supporting the Chiss against whatever the Royal Imperial could throw at them? Apparently he had. Which didn't mean he couldn't backpedal on that any time he wanted to. And that time might very well come. I can hardly wait, he said. Change of subject. Did you really meet General Skywalker? I did, Thrawn said, his voice going distant. It was... An interesting time. That's it? That's all you're going to tell me? That it was interesting? For now, Thrawn said. Perhaps we will speak more of it later. He opened his hand and looked at his new rank plaque. I cannot help being non-human or coming from a region of low respect, he said. But perhaps it would be best if we kept this... A secret between us. He slipped the plaque out of sight into his tunic. Eli nodded. Works for me. Ahead, the mouse droid rolled to the front of a three-story building and stopped, waiting for someone to open the door for it. I guess we're here, Eli added. Let's see what the Admiralty has sent ahead for us. And then we will learn our schedule and duties, Thrawn said and prepare as best we can for the onslaught. Eli sighed. Yeah, and that. Chapter Four To some extent, the direction of one's chosen path automatically selects for the paths that may cross it. A warrior's path will intersect the paths of other warriors, allies and enemies alike. A worker's path will intersect with the paths of other workers. But as with games of cards or dice, sometimes unexpected crossings occur. Some are driven by chance, others by design, others by a change in one's goals. 
Some are driven by malice. Such manipulations can prove effective in the short term, but the longer term consequences can be perilously difficult to predict. The path of a enterprise is one such example. A deep and perceptive study of it can serve as a valuable lesson and as an even more valuable warning. Ms. Price! Arinda Price paused and turned around. Hurrying toward her down the long corridor was Arik Uvis, a data pad in his hand, an intense expression on his face. Arinda glowered to herself. Uvis, with one of his rock-brained questions or comments, wasn't something she really wanted to deal with right now. But he wasn't going away and the Price Mining's corporate building was far too small for her to successfully avoid him all day. Might as well get it over with. He caught up to her and stopped. Miss Price! <sighs> he repeated, breathing a little heavily. The man was in his mid-thirties, about Orinda's own age, but in far worse shape. Glad I caught you. <laughs> what can I do for you, Mr. Uvis? Orinda asked keeping her face and voice neutral. I heard a rumor that your father's just uncovered a heretofore unknown vein of dunium, Uvis said. Is that true? It is, Orinda said, wondering darkly who had let the news slip. Dunium was one of the hardest metals known, making it a key component in the manufacture of warship hulls and under the Imperial Navy's recently accelerated shipbuilding program, the price of the metal had skyrocketed. Even a hint that a fresh line had been found would be enough to initiate a feeding frenzy among refiners and ore buyers alike. May I ask how you heard of it? That's not important, Uvis said. What's important is that we guard the find so that we can take full advantage of it. I'm sure my mother's already on it, Arinda assured him. We have several contacts among brokers capable of handling something like this. Uvis snorted. <laughs> I'm sure you do, he said in a vaguely condescending tone. Small local people, no doubt, who work on a promise and a handshake. Not all of them are small, Arinda said, trying hard not to let her irritation show. Uvis was an outsider from the Corps who'd been more or less forced on them by Governor Azadi's office six standard months ago. She could probably count his trips outside the capital city area during that time on one hand. Not only did he know virtually nothing about Lothal, but he clearly didn't care to learn. But so what if they are? If any one of them can't handle the full contract, we'll just make deals with two or three or four. Everything's interconnected here. And I have no doubt that system works fine for the average backwards Outer Rim world, Uvis said with strained patience. But some of us have higher ambitions for Lothal. Arinda snorted under her breath. Ambitions for a backwater dirtball like Lothal? <laughs> right. Good luck with that one. 
I'm serious, Uvis insisted. Now that we have a Dunium vein... We have a Dunium vein? Orinda cut him off. Price mining. Not you, and not Lothal. We have it. Fine, Uvis said. Just remember the governor's office and I are included in that we. We're your partners, remember? Not for long, Orinda said. As soon as the profits from the Dunium start rolling in, we're buying out of your loan. We can do that. The contract says so. The contract didn't anticipate something like this. Uvis took a deep breath. Look, Rinda, here's the reality. Yes, you've got wealth now, more than you ever dreamed of. That means it's your big chance. Not just price minings, but yours, personally as well. Really, Orinda said, trying to make the word sarcastic, but she couldn't quite pull it off. Because he was right. This kind of sudden wealth might finally make it possible for her to get out of here. Not just out of the family business, but off Lothal completely. But it's also going to attract attention, and not necessarily the good kind, Uvis continued. You need... He broke off as a hammer-headed Ithorian appeared around the corner and hurried past them, a stack of data cards in her hand. Someone's niece, Arinda vaguely remembered, working a two-week internship. The Ithorian grunted a good morning, then disappeared around a different corner. You need support, Ufus said. More than that, you need protection. Governor Azadi can give you that. The nebulous thought of finally getting off Lothal vanished in a sudden cloud of suspicion. Protection? She countered. Or do you mean takeover? No, of course not, Uvis protested. Really, Arinda said. Because we've heard this before. Other people have come to Lothal, lots of them, looking for ways to lift us up out of the dust and coincidentally make themselves rich. Sooner or later, they all find out that the people here are stubborn, set in their ways, and not interested in having fancy hats from the core tell them what to do. I'm glad Lothal has come to terms with mediocrity, Uvis ground out. But that pattern is over. The fancy hats will be coming back, this time to stay and they'll eat small fish like price mining for breakfast. Don't threaten me, Uvis, she warned. I'm not threatening you, he said. I'm trying to tell you that everything's about to change. There are a dozen ways a big mining corporation can move in on a small operation like yours and either take it over or bleed it dry. I don't want that, you don't want that, and Governor Azadi most definitely doesn't want that. With an effort, Arinda got a fresh grip on her temper. So Uvis had already told Azadi about the Dunium? Damn! In a tight-knit community like Capital City, that meant half the citizens knew by now. And if half the citizens knew, a good quarter of the outsiders in the area probably knew too. 
I assume you have a solution to offer? We do, Uvis assured her. We start with you selling the governor another 21% of price mining. That would... What? Arinda demanded, feeling her jaw drop. Absolutely not. You're not getting a controlling interest. It's the only way to keep some predatory megacorporation off your back, Uvis said. With the power and office of the governor protecting you, we can make deals with real refineries, the kind with money and influence. No, Arinda said flatly. Uvis took a deep breath. Yeah, I know this is a big step, he said, his tone soothing now. But it's the only way. I said no. Arinda repeated. You need to at least tell your parents about the governor's offer, Uvis persisted. At least your mother. There's the general manager. She needs to know. Which part of no is confusing you? Uvis's face darkened. If you don't, I will. No. What you'll do is get out of my sight, Arinda told him. Actually, what you can do is get off our property. He snorted. <laughs> Please, I own 30% of price mining. You can't just throw me out. The Price family owns 70%, Arinda countered. And the guard droids answer to us. For a long moment, they stared at each other. Then Uvis inclined his head. Very well, Ms. Price, he said. But hear this. You can sit on your dirty little world, a big frog in a small dust puddle, and think you can stand alone against the galaxy, but you can't. The sooner you realize that, the less it'll cost you. He raised his eyebrows. And your parents. Goodbye, Mr. Uvis. Arinda said. Goodbye, Ms. Price, he said. Call me when you're ready to see reason. Uvis himself was gone, but the cloud he'd left over Arinda persisted. A dozen times that day, she thought about going to her mother and letting her know about Uvis's warning and offer. But each time she decided not to. The mine had been in her family almost all the way back to the first planetary settlements, and she knew that both her parents would go down fighting rather than give it up. They had full legal rights to the mine, the land, and the business. Moreover, the Lothal legal system, where any challenges would be heard, was loaded with acquaintances, suppliers, clients, friends, and friends of friends the one advantage of living on a sleepy frontier world. Whatever corporations or slicksters or sleazy grubbers from the governor's office tried to throw at them, they would weather the storm. She worked late, finishing up the day's data sorting and drafting a data release for whenever her parents decided to announce the news. Just because half of Lothal probably knew by now didn't mean they wouldn't eventually have to say something official. It was nearly sundown when she finally left the office. She headed for home, driving slower than usual. 
watching the colors in the western sky and the fading light as it bounced sparkles off the shrubs and intricate rock formations lining the roadway. On the horizon, the lights of capital city's buildings were coming on, a softer and whiter glow than the reds and pinks of the setting sun. From somewhere in the distance came the happy shrieking of children at play. Off on the horizon, she could see a pair of airspeeders, probably with teenagers at the controls, showboating over the rolling, grass-covered hills as they chased the setting sun. It was the kind of primitive beauty that travel advisors raved about. Orinda hated it. That hadn't always been the case. For a while, back when she was a child, she'd loved the quiet life, the wide open spaces, and the companionship of children of so many different species and backgrounds. But during her teen years, she'd begun to see the quietness as dullness, the open spaces as lack of culture or excitement, the familiar acquaintances as stifling and boring. Often lying awake in bed, she'd gaze out the window at the stars and wished with all her heart that she could escape to a real world somewhere, a place with excitement and bright lights and sophisticated people. But she never had. And with the passing of her teen years and her transition to the responsibilities of adulthood, she knew she never would. The pain and frustration had subsided somewhat over the last decade, but they had never entirely disappeared. She still hated her life here. But it was a familiar, constant hatred, like a dull ache that had never quite healed. She slowed the land speeder a little more, watching the interplay of city light and sunset glow. In worlds with excitement and bright lights, she suspected, many of the inhabitants never even saw the horizon, let alone a sunset. Of course, they probably didn't care about such things. If she were there, she doubted she would care either. Could Uvis have been right about the dunium deposits being her chance to finally escape? She snorted. Of course not. That whole pitch had been a mind game, designed to distract her from his attempt to talk his way into controlling the company. Let him try. She didn't especially like her life here, but it was her life, and Price Mining was her company, and she would see Uvis in hell before she would let anyone steal it. The last wisps of color had faded away, and she was pulling her landspeeder into her garage when her calm chimed. She glanced at the ID. It was her father, and keyed it on. Hello, father, she greeted him. What's up? Herinda? You need to get to the police station right away, Talmor Price said, his voice nearly unrecognizable. Your mother's been arrested. Arinda stared. What? What in the world for? And who ordered it? The complaint came from the governor's office, Talmor said, his breath coming in short spurts. The charge is embezzlement. Talmor Price had worked in the family mine all his life, and Orinda had seen him act calmly and decisively in dozens of crisis situations. 
but this crisis wasn't mine-based, and for once, he clearly had no idea what to do. The police didn't seem to know what to do either. Talmor and Arinda were on a first-name basis with several of them, but this time, those personal contacts weren't enough to smooth things out, or even cut through the bureaucratic clutter. All the police could say was that Elenia was in custody. Her bail request had been denied, and they'd been ordered not to allow her visitors. The person behind the order hadn't been named, but everything had come directly from the governor's office. Not that Arinda didn't already know who was behind it. Arikuvis works with Azadi's office, Tom Moore pointed out as he and Arinda left the station. Maybe he can help. Maybe, Arinda said, a twinge of guilt briefly warming the ice that had formed in her soul. In retrospect, she should have told her parents about her last conversation with Uvis. At least they wouldn't have been so utterly blindsided by this cowardly attack. I'll go see him after I drop you off. Thanks, when I'm okay, Talmor said. We can go see him together. I really think you should go home, Orinda persisted. A plan was slowly forming in the back of her mind the kind that worked best without witnesses present. Barkin was going to keep trying for bail. If he gets it, you don't want to be all the way across Capital City when Mother's ready for you to come get her. I suppose, Talmor conceded. You'll let me know what Uva says, won't you? Absolutely, Marinda promised. But I'm not expecting anything right away. Try to get some sleep, okay? I'll try. He eyed her his eyes narrowing slightly. Be careful, Arinda. Don't worry, Arinda assured him grimly. I will. It was pure good luck the Senator Domus Ranking happened to be on Lothal, instead of on the distant world of Coruscant, where he spent most of his time. According to the press releases, He'd come back to his homeworld for a short vacation and some meetings with Governor Azadi and other political and industrial leaders, and was slated to leave in two days. Arinda arrived precisely at nine in the morning, when Ranking's office opened, and gave her name and reason for her visit to the smiling woman at the reception desk. Two hours later, she was finally ushered inside. Ms. Price... Ranking greeted her, standing courteously as she came in. Please sit down. Thank you, Senator, Orinda said, passing between the pair of silent guards flanking the doorway and continuing on to the chair in front of Ranking's desk. Thank you for seeing me. It was probably inevitable, Ranking said with a smile, waiting until she had seated herself before resuming his own seat. I understand your mother... Elenia has been arrested for embezzlement. Yes, she has, Orinda said. And she's innocent. Ranking leaned back in his chair. Tell me more. Yes, Senator. Orinda keyed her datapad and tapped for the first file. First of all, my mother's finances, she said, setting the datapad on the desk and turning it around to face him. You'll see that there isn't a boost in any of her accounts. If she embezzled, the money had to go somewhere. She could have set up a secret account, Ranking pointed out. 
possibly even off-world. Agreed, Arinda said. But if she embezzled, the funds, by definition, had to come from price mining. I ran everything from the company's side, digging through all the vectors she had access to. There are no indications of missing money, credit, or resources. No virtual transactions either. That you could find. I know more about Price Mining's computer operations than my mother does, Arinda said. There's no way she could pull off something that I couldn't track. Hmm, Ranking said. I presume you realize how that makes you look. Yes, and I didn't embezzle either, Arinda said, reaching across the desk and keying for the next file. This is the company's profit data for the past two years. You can see there are regular dips and surges over that time period. Galactic market fluctuations, Ranking said, nodding. Happens in every industry. Your point? You can see a pattern, Arenda said. Dips here, here, and here. If there was embezzlement, it would probably have been time to hit just the right spot to maybe not get noticed. You say if there was embezzlement, Ranking said. I was under the impression that Governor Azadi's office had confirmed there were funds missing. So I've heard, Arinda said, bracing herself as she again tapped the data pad. Now came the tricky part. But it may not be as simple as missing funds. Here's a security video from a party at the company two weeks ago right in the middle of the latest financial dip. She pointed to a broad-faced being with fuzzy jowls and wide-set eyes dressed in a dark brown tunic. You see the Lutrillian here at the side? Yes. That's Pomi Harchmack, Arinda said. She handles the heavy equipment inventory operations. Her account is separate from the main operating fund account. Now... There. See how she slips out of the room right at the height of the party? Yes, Ranking said. Where does that hallway lead? To the central office cluster, Arinda said. Her desk is in there, from which she can access the entire inventory system. Oh, and a fresh order of digging heads had just come in, with the funds slated to go out the next morning. A perfect time for her to act. Also a perfect time for a drinking party-goer to go to the restroom, Ranking pointed out. What makes you think that's not what she's doing? Because she leaves three more times in the next two hours and is gone at least ten minutes each time, Arinda said. What does that have to do with anything? Because that's how financial transactions work here, Arinda said. I don't know how it is on Coruscant, but on Lothal, secure fund shifting usually requires two or three touch points, and the authorization codes sometimes bounce back and forth over an hour or more. Ranking grunted. Pretty inefficient. Extremely inefficient, Orinda agreed sourly. It was yet another part of Lothal's quaint approach to life that she found infuriating. But we're stuck with it. The banks and supply houses all have their own ways of doing things, and none of them like turning everything over to computers or droids. 
Everyone wants to have a personal touch in big transactions. Yes, that does sound like Lothal, Ranking conceded. He poised a finger over the datapad. May I? Certainly. He tapped the datapad to fast forward the recording. As far as Arinda could tell, he had no suspicions that what she told him was anything but the truth. And it was, really. Except that Arinda remembered her mother mentioning earlier that day how Pomi Harchmack had been having digestive problems. Which meant all those disappearances almost certainly were to the restroom. Maybe Harchmack was innocent. Maybe there were no missing funds, and Uvis was simply making a bald-faced play for control. Or maybe the stomach thing had been a deception, an excuse, and Harchmack was genuinely guilty. Arinda didn't know. She also didn't care. All she cared about was drawing enough suspicion off her mother to persuade Ranking to intervene. Once he did, Harchmack's guilt or innocence was her own problem. May I make a copy of all this? Ranking asked. Actually, I already made you one, Arinda said, pulling a data card from her pocket and placing it on the desk. He smiled wryly as he picked it up. Rather sure of ourselves, are we? Just the opposite, Arinda said. If I couldn't get you to see me in person, I thought you might at least look at the evidence I'd compiled. I'm glad I decided to take the time, Ranking said. Give me a moment. He finished watching the security recording, then silently pushed the data pad back across the desk to Arinda and turned to his computer. For the next few minutes, he worked the keys, gazing at the display. Arinda remained where she was, trying without success to read his expression. Finally, he hit one last key and turned back to face her. Here's the situation, he said, his voice grave. First, as matters stand, I can't lift the embezzlement charge. Arinda stared at him. That wasn't the answer she'd been expecting. What about Harchmack? I just showed you there's another suspect who's at least as viable as my mother. Oh, she's viable, all right, Ranking agreed. And I have no doubt she'll be detained as soon as I pass this on to the police. But without proof of your mother's innocence, Governor Azadi isn't going to release her. Can we at least get her out on bail? You really don't understand what this is about? Ranking asked, giving her an odd look. This is Azadi's attempt to take over price mining. Azadi's or Uvis's? Does it matter? Probably not, Arinda conceded. That's why I came to you instead of pleading my case to him. I hoped that if I gave you enough ammunition, you could stop him. Now you're telling me you can't? Ranking raised his eyebrows. What makes you think I want to stop him? He asked. What makes you think I'm not part of his plan? Orinda pursed her lips. What did make her think that? Because if you were part of the plot, you wouldn't have told me about it. You'd have kept quiet or encouraged me to make a deal to sell out. Very good, Ranking said, favoring her with a small smile. You're right. There is a certain 
rivalry between the governor and me. And there is a way I can help your mother, but I don't think you'll like it. I'm listening. I can get the charges dropped, Ranking said. Sounds good so far, Arinda said. What about the company? That's the part you won't like, Ranking said. You'll have to sign the mine over to the Empire. Arinda had suspected something like that was coming. Even so, the words were like a punch in the gut. The Empire? Ranking held out his hands, palms upward. You're going to lose the mine, Arinda, he said. Either to Azadi or to the Empire. Because of the Dunium. Basically, Ranking said. Bear in mind that Coruscant can take it by fiat with no compensation at all. Right now they'd prefer to play nice in this part of the Outer Rim, but that restraint won't last forever. This way, at least you'll get your mother out and new jobs for your family. Arinda shook her head. I don't think they'd want to work the mine for someone else. Oh, I wasn't talking about keeping them here. Ranking assured her. Not at Price Mining or anywhere else on Lothal. Governor Azadi is a vindictive man, and as long as they're in his jurisdiction, he might be tempted to mess with them out of pure spite. Fortunately, there's a mine I know on Baton that needs an assistant manager and an experienced foreman. I already have an offer. Arinda smiled tightly. The two hours you kept me waiting outside. Ranking shrugged. That and other things. Unfortunately, there's no data work position for you at the moment, but the owner says he can put you on inventory until something better opens up. I see, Arinda said, watching him closely. Lothal was awash with petty politics, and over the years she'd learned how to navigate them. If the same rules applied to the Imperial version, I suppose I could just stay here on Lothal until then. I wouldn't advise that, Ranking said quickly. Not with Azadi unhappy with you. Unhappy with me? Ranking's lip twitched in a small smile. <laughs> unhappy with me, then, he conceded. He probably wouldn't hesitate to try squeezing me, either. Arinda said slowly, as if she were just now working it out. That wouldn't be good for either of us. Hardly, Ranking said, a mixture of amusement and resignation on his face. Let's skip to the last page. What exactly do you want? I want to go to Coruscant, Arinda said. You must have a hundred good assistant positions you can offer. I want one of them. In exchange for what? Ranking asked. Favors have to work both ways. In exchange for not making trouble when the Empire takes over price mining, Arinda said. Maybe you've forgotten what people are like here, but they won't be happy about a bald-faced takeover. Oh, I remember just fine, Ranking assured her. Why do you think I'm taking this approach instead of just letting the Empire move in directly and cut Azadi off at the knees? 
Lothal's like every other frontier planet in the Outer Rim. Unruly and a potential pain in the rear. But a new Dunium vein is worth the trouble? It's worth a lot of trouble. Ranking took a deep breath, eyeing Orinda closely. All right. As it happens, I do have a job on Coruscant I can offer you. There's an opening in one of my citizen assistance offices. What are those? My job is to represent Lothal's interests on Coruscant, Ranking said. That includes citizens visiting or temporarily working there. It turns out that there's a decent-sized contingent of such displaced citizens working in the Coruscant mines. Arinda's surprise must have shown, because he smiled. <laughs> Not real mines, of course. Not like yours, he said. These are more like reclamation operations, where centuries' worth of dumped slag, metal shards, and other debris is dug up from around the foundations of old industrial plants. The Lothal contingent is always in flux, so I have an assistance office in the area to help them with housing and general orientation, as well as guiding them through the Coruscant bureaucratic maze. How many people are we talking about? About 500 at the moment, Ranking said. But there are miners and support personnel from a dozen other Outer Rim worlds working the reclamation projects as well. And that number probably comes to 10,000 or more. I have people who understand bureaucracy, but no one who understands mines and the specific needs and language of miners. I think you'd be a great asset to me. I'm sure I would, Orinda said. What would my housing and salary be? And when would you want me to leave Lothal? Housing would be modest, but salary would be far higher than here, Ranking said, studying her face. Enough to maintain your current lifestyle, even at Coruscant prices. As to leaving, I could take you there as soon as the agreement with the Empire for price mining is finalized. Unless you'd like to help settle your parents on Baton first, of course. That would probably be best, Arinda said. Assuming I can persuade them to go along with this plan in the first place. I hope for their sake that you can, Ranking warned, his voice going darker. It's either this, or your mother's next mining job could be on Kessel. Then I'd better go talk to them. Arinda stood up and slipped her data pad back into its pouch. I assume you can get the visitor ban on my mother lifted? I'll give the order as soon as you're out the door. Thank you, Orinda said. I'll be in touch. Five minutes later, she was driving down the roadway, her mind spinning with conflicting thoughts and emotions. So this was it. After years of waiting, after years of knowing it would never happen, she was finally getting off Lothal. Not just off Lothal, but to Coruscant. And all it would cost was her parents' jobs and dignity and several generations of the Price family legacy. It wasn't as if Ranking was being completely altruistic, either. 
part of his goal in accepting Orinda's thinly veiled demand was clearly to split up the family, which would help stifle any legal challenge or local stirring they might decide to mount. But machinations and plots aside, one point stood out clearly. Coruscant. As a child, she'd wanted to see the lights and colors and big buildings of that distant world. In the turmoil of her teenage hopelessness and desperation, the glittering capital had seemed the epitome of the life she so desperately wanted. Now, when all hope was past, she was finally going to get there. Ranking had his own reasons and agenda, but then so did Arinda. Because along with the lights and colors and big buildings, Coruscant was first and foremost the center of imperial political power. The power that Azadi had used to put her mother in prison. The power Ranking was using to take their mind for the Empire. The power that Arinda would someday use to take it back. So her parents would accept Ranking's terms. Arinda would see to that. And then she would go to Coruscant and work in Ranking's little assistance office and be a good girl and a model employee. Right up until the moment when she found a way to take him down. Chapter 5 All opponents are not necessarily enemies, but both enemies and opponents carry certain characteristics in common. Both perceive their opposite as an obstacle, or an opportunity, or a threat. Sometimes the threat is personal. Other times it is a perceived violation of standards or accepted norms of society. In mildest form, the opponent's attacks are verbal. The warrior must choose which of those to stand against and which to ignore. Often that decision is taken from his hands by others. In those cases, lack of discipline may dissuade the opponent from further attacks. More often, though, the opponent finds himself encouraged to continue or intensify the attacks. It is when the attacks become physical that the warrior must make the most dangerous of choices. Don't you see? Vanto demanded. His voice is harsh and strident. His hand gestures are wide and expansive. He is angry and frustrated. If you keep ignoring these episodes, they're just gonna get worse. How would you have me respond? Thrawn asked. You need to tell Commandant Deanlark, Vanto said. His voice is still harsh, but his gestures are calming. The anger abates, but the frustration remains. A month in and you've already had run-ins with four separate cadets. Three, Thrawn corrected. The second incident was unintended. You only think that because you're not up on core world slang, Vanto said. He makes a gesture mimicking that of the supposed insult. That isn't in any way a mark of respect. But I have seen similar gestures without such intent. 
Not in the core worlds you haven't. Fanto sweeps his hand crosswise in front of him, indicating dismissal. Look, three or four, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you're not being respected, and Dean Lark needs to know that. To what end? Thrawn asked. Look! Vonto pauses, the muscles in his jaw tensing and relaxing as he prepares his statement. The Emperor himself put you here. Even if no one else knows that, Dean Lark does. For his sake, you need to let him know. Because if the Emperor finds out that this has been happening and Dean Lark hasn't done anything, there will be trouble. Commandant Dean Lark is in a poor tactical position, Thrawn said. If he is told and does nothing, he risks attack by the Emperor. If he hears and acts, he risks attack by the families of the cadets. So what would a good tactician do? Ideally, he would withdraw to a better position or a different time, Thrawn said. In this case, he can do neither. Vanto looks toward the window. His facial heat is fading. He grows more deeply in understanding of the situation. So what you're saying is that we're stuck? Only for two more months, Thrawn said. We then graduate and leave this place. And you finally get to put on that lieutenant's rank plaque, Vanto said. He returns his gaze and points to the pocket where the plaque is customarily concealed. His facial and throat muscles again tighten briefly. His frustration increases. Are you disturbed by that? Disturbed by what? Vanto asked. His voice deepens and grows more harsh. Frustration, but also resentment. That you're getting through four years of academy training in three months? and then jumping a rank on everyone else on top of it? Have you forgotten I have already passed through many years of military experience? Vanto again turns his face away. I know that. I just sometimes forget that you... <sighs> I'm sorry I even brought it up. His face smooths out as the resentment fades. His hands open and close briefly with embarrassment. I understand, Thrawn said. Do not be concerned. The incidents will stop when the offenders are emboldened enough to push their actions too far. Vanto's eyes narrow. He is surprised now, with growing disbelief and suspicion. Are you saying you want them to cross the line? I believe the lack of response to verbal attacks makes it inevitable, Thrawn said. Such actions would put them in position for official discipline, would it not? Probably. Vanto holds his hands in front of him in a gesture of confusion. But didn't you just... Uh, hold it. I've got a call. He pulled out his comlink. Cadet Vanto. For a minute, he listened in silence. Their voice is human. The words indistinguishable. Vanto's facial muscles tighten and his facial heat increases. He is first surprised by what he hears, then wary, then suspicious. Sure, sounds like fun, Vanto said. 
His voice is guarded, but holds none of the weariness revealed in his expression. We'll be there. He closed down the comlink. Well, you may just have gotten your wish, he said. We've been invited to the metallurgy lab tonight to play cards with Spank Orbar and Rosita Turoy while they run some corrosion tests on one of their alloy boards. Are we permitted in the metallurgy lab? Thrawn asked. Not unless we have a project we're working on, Vanto said. His lips compressed briefly. His suspicions change to certainty, which we don't. What if we are invited guests of those with such projects? No such thing, Vanto said. Not in the big labs. If some wandering instructor or officer catches us, they will not be happy. And if the card game includes betting, it'll go even worse. Gambling for credits is strictly forbidden. That assures they will not attempt such a trap. No? Why not? Because if we are charged with gambling, they will be also, Thrawn said. Vanto shook his head. You still don't get how it works, do you? His facial heat increases. His muscle tension also increases. Once again, he shows frustration. Orbar's family is from here on Coruscant. Worse, they're connected to the planet Senator. He could probably pull anything short of straight-up murder without getting kicked out. Then we will simply refuse any offers to gamble. Vanto exhales noisily. You're going to go, aren't you? His voice is calmer, indicating unwilling acceptance. We were invited, Thrawn reminded him. You may stay here if you wish. Oh, I wish all right, Vanto said. But I don't think letting you wander around alone is what the Emperor had in mind when he put me here. Might as well find out what Orbar has planned. His head turns a few degrees to the side. He's curious, or perhaps perplexed. Is this what Chiss do? See a trap and just walk into it? Because that's not how the stories say you operate. You would be wise to tread carefully around such stories, Thrawn said. Some have been distorted to the point where no truth remains. Some speak only of victories and are silent about defeats. Some have been deliberately crafted to leave false impressions in the hearer. And which one is this? Sometimes walking into a trap is the best strategy, Thrawn said. There are few traps that cannot be turned against their designers. What card game did he suggest? It's called Highland Challenge, Vanto said. Resigned acceptance? Come on, I think there's a deck in the lounge. I'll teach you how to play. I suppose you're wondering, Orbar said as he dealt out the first hand, why we asked you two here tonight. You said it was to play cards, Eli said watching him closely. Both Orbar and Turoy were playing it cool, getting Eli and Thrawn at the door, making a big fuss of setting up their corrosion test, then pulling four chairs up to one of the lab tables and bringing out the cards. But the courtesy and friendliness weren't real. 
Maybe Thrawn still couldn't pick up the subtleties of human expressions, but Eli could. He'd been on the receiving end of his own set of sly smiles and whispered comments since the day they'd arrived. And he'd developed a fine-tuned sense of when he was about to be hit with a joke, trick, or insult. And Orbar and Turoi were definitely winding up for one of the three. Or something worse. At least it wasn't the gambling thing Eli had worried about. Turoi had put up a small fuss when Eli told her that neither he nor Thrawn could afford the extra credits to bet on their game, and she and Orbar had accepted the condition with rolled eyes and thinly veiled scorn. But the fuss hadn't been big enough, and they'd given in too easily. Something else was in the works, he grimaced, walking into an unknown trap. Was this really how Chiss did things? Oh, sure. The game was part of it, Orbar said, finishing the deal and picking up his cards. Corrosion tests are boring, and you get tired of two-handed games. He shifted his gaze to Thrawn. But mostly, I wanted to pick your friend's brain. On what subject? Thrawn asked his glowing red eyes narrowing slightly as he carefully fanned his cards the way Eli had shown him. Tactics and strategy, Orbar said. I'm having some trouble in a couple of my battle simulation classes, and I figured with all your military experience... At least that's what we've been told, Turoi put in with a smile. She was smiling way too much tonight. Right, <laughs> Orbar said. We figured you might be able to help. I'm happy to share my experience, Thrawn said. Have you a specific question? I'm interested in the idea of traps, Orbar said. His voice way too casual. Take these cards. If I'm holding a king's lane, there's no way any of you can beat me. But you won't know that until it's too late. How would you prepare for that kind of situation? One would first study the probabilities, Thrawn said. A king's lane is indeed unbeatable, but recall that there are three equivalent runs in the deck. Any of them would stagger yours and lead to mutual deadlock. Turoi snorted. <laughs> You have any idea what the odds are against getting two king's lanes in the same deal? She asked. The odds for having two are similar to the odds for having one, Thrawn pointed out. But as you say, such runs are rare. More likely you hold a prince's lane at best, or a cube or triad. In that event, what you described as a trap would more likely be termed simply a battle. His eyes glittered. Or a bluff. Okay, but you're avoiding the question, Orbar said. I asked what you'd do if I had a King's Lane. I didn't ask for a dissertation on game theory. Let us assume you have the cards you suggest, Thrawn said. As I said earlier, even in that case, your chance of success also depends upon which cards I hold. He lifted his fanned cards slightly, 
knowledge that you do not have. The premise is that my hand is unbeatable. There is no such hand, Thrawn said flatly. As I suggested earlier, I might have a king's lane of my own. In that case, a challenge would mean mutual destruction. Your better option would be to avoid my hand and deliver your challenge to a different player. Orbar flicked a glance at Eli. That assumes there's another target worth going after. True, Thrawn said. But mutual destruction is never the preferred option. He gestured around the table. You have not yet made your challenge. It is not too late to choose another. But none would be more satisfying, Orbar said, smiling tightly. As you wish, Thrawn said, shrugging. A moment, if you will. He set his cards face down on the table and slipped his hand into his tunic and drew it out, holding his lieutenant's insignia plaque. He fastened it into position on his upper left tunic and picked up his cards again. I believe you are about to make a challenge. Eli looked at Orbar and Turoi. Both cadets were staring at the insignia plaque. Their eyes widened their mouths drooping open. Orbar threw a quick look at Turoi, got a completely unsmiling glance back from her. What's going on here? A hard voice called from behind Thrawn. Eli jerked his head around. One of the instructors stood in the lab doorway, his fists on his hips, his expression thunderous as he glared at the cadets around the table. I assume you all have authorization to be in here? He growled striding toward the table. Cadets Orbar and Turoi are running a test, sir, Thrawn said, standing up and turning to face the instructor. The other man came to an abrupt halt, his own eyes widening. Enough reaction, Eli thought darkly, to show he'd been in on Orbar's scheme. Lieutenant, he breathed. I... What about him? He asked nodding toward Eli. Cadet Vanto is my translator, Thrawn said calmly. Where I go, he must necessarily accompany me. The instructor's lip twitched. Uh, I see. I... Very well, Lieutenant. Carry on. He spun on his heel and beat a hasty retreat. Thrawn watched him go. Then very deliberately... He turned back to the table and gazed down upon the others. There is no guaranteed winning hand, Cadet Orbar, he said quietly. I suggest you not forget that. Cadet Vanto, I believe we are finished here. Good evening, cadets. A minute later, he and Eli were back out in the reflected light of the planet-wide city surrounding them walking along the path leading toward Barracks 2. Well, that was fun, Eli commented, wincing at the slight shaking in his voice. Would he never get used to confrontations? So you knew he was going to pull that? You yourself suggested his tactic this afternoon, Thrawn reminded him. The timing was the only challenge. The timing? 
If I brought out my insignia plaque too soon, he might have been able to warn off his confederate, Thrawn said. If I had waited until after the instructor's appearance, he could have disciplined me for being improperly uniformed. Or could have challenged your right to wear it, Eli pointed out. You've never worn it before. Because I'm both officer and cadet, Thrawn said. It is a unique situation, which leads to unique opportunities. He smiled slightly. As well as confusion and uncertainties among our opponents. What did you learn tonight? Eli wrinkled his nose. That Orbar and Turoi were jerks to be avoided in the future? True enough, but probably not what Thrawn was going for. Anticipate your enemy, he said. Figure out what he's doing, and try to stay a step ahead of him. A step ahead, or to the side, Thrawn said, nodding. When an attack comes, it is usually best to be out of the target zone if possible, thus permitting the energy of the assault to be dissipated elsewhere. Yes, I can see how that could be handy, Eli said dryly. Though I guess you can't always choose. Oh! And without warning, Thrawn put his hand on Eli's shoulder and gave him a violent shove to the side. Eli's comment ended in a startled squeak as his legs hit the knee-high hedge bordering the walkway. The impact and his momentum sending him sprawling over the barrier onto the decorative crushed stone strip on the other side. The squeak turned into a grunt as his arms and shoulder took the brunt of the impact. He shoved himself back up to a sitting position wincing as the gravel dug into his palms. What the hell? He stiffened. Three hooded men had suddenly appeared, surrounding Thrawn. And as Eli stared in disbelief, they moved in for the kill. For that first stretched out second, Eli's mind refused to believe it. Things like this didn't happen on the Royal Imperial Academy grounds. They just didn't. But it was happening, right in front of him. The first mad charge seemed to have hit a little off-center, probably because Thrawn's action in shoving Eli over the hedge had similarly pushed the Chiss a meter in the opposite direction. But the assailants were quick. They were back on track now, and were converging on the Chiss. And as Eli watched in disbelief and horror, they attacked. The standard academy curriculum included a unit on unarmed combat. Unfortunately, with Thrawn's studies focused exclusively on technology and Navy protocol, he hadn't been given any time in the combat dojo. And it showed. He was doing his best to fend off his attackers, but his defense consisted mainly of trying to push them away, ducking away from their attacks, dodging so that they couldn't all come at him at once, and trying to protect his face and torso. But it wasn't enough. Defense alone was never enough. He needed to start adding in a few counterattacks to make an effort to reduce the odds against him. Right now, he was in a battle of attrition, and no matter how much stamina he had, he would almost certainly run out of strength before his attackers did. And then, unbidden, a thought slipped in at the edge of Eli's mind. This could be the end of all his problems. 
It was a horrible thought, a gruesome thought, and yet it was startlingly compelling. If Thrawn was so badly injured that he couldn't complete his training, he would have no choice but to drop out. The Emperor's grand experiment, whatever he'd hoped to accomplish by bringing the Chiss into the Navy, would have failed. There would be nothing left to do but take Thrawn back to his exile planet and leave him there. And Eli would be free. The Strikefast was long gone, of course, but he could grab a transport to Myanmar, paying for it out of his own pocket if he had to, and be back on track at the academy there within a week. Surely Commandant Dean Lark wouldn't want him to stay at Royal Imperial once Thrawn was gone, any more than Eli himself wanted it. Back on Myanmar, back in his proper career path, back to his life. One of the attackers got in a solid punch to Thrawn's lower torso, sending the chest down to one knee. And a flood of shame abruptly flowed over Eli's soul. What the hell was he thinking? Hey! He shouted, pushing himself up into a crouch. As he did so, he dug his fingers into the crushed stone beneath him, ignoring the flickers of pain as the sharp edges dug into his skin. Hey, you! Bright eyes! Two of the three turned to face him. And with all his strength, Eli hurled two handfuls of gravel straight at their faces. He hadn't really expected it to work, but it did. Both attackers howled in pain, belatedly throwing up their hands against the hail of stone. Eli leaned down and dug his hands into the ground again, wondering if he could get another volley into the air before they could recover and respond. Because if he couldn't, if they jumped the hedge and got to him first, he was in serious trouble. Thrawn was still down on one knee, unable to help, and two-to-one odds would be more than enough to take Eli down. Too late. It occurred to him that the assailants had learned their tactics lessons all too well. Splitting the enemy force in two parts and demolishing them one at a time was a classic approach to warfare. They'd successfully focused their efforts on Thrawn, and now they were going to do the same to Eli. Only they'd miscalculated. Even as the two attackers started toward Eli, the helpless, all but demolished Thrawn leaned toward the man standing over him and slammed his forearm with muscle-paralyzing force into the man's thigh. The man gasped a startled curse, nearly falling as he clutched at his injured leg. His two friends spun back to him, their drive toward Eli wavering as their focus was suddenly split between their two targets. Eli cocked his arms for his next salvo of gravel. Hey! Someone shouted from nearby. Eli turned to look. Five cadets had emerged from one of the buildings and were racing toward the fight. That was enough for the attackers. They turned and hurried away into the night. The man Thrawn had hit in the leg, supported on either side by his two companions. Are you all right? Eli blinked away the sudden sweat trickling into his eyes, his body shaking with aftershock. Was it over? I'm fine, he told Thrawn, climbing unsteadily over the hedge. Strangely enough, his voice wasn't trembling at all. You? My injuries are minor, Thrawn said, easing carefully to a standing position. Yeah? 
Eli said, frowning at him. Thrawn's tunic was badly rumpled, and there were spots of oozing blood on both cheeks. You sure? It appears worse than it is, Thrawn assured him, gingerly touching one of his cheeks. Your assistance was most timely. Thank you. Eli felt his face warm with private shame. If the Chiss knew why he hadn't moved faster... Sorry, I couldn't do more, he said. I was on the wrong side of the hedge, you know. I gather you heard them coming? There is a particular tread all predators tend to use, Thrawn said, walking over to him. A balance between silence and speed. Humans use a version of this tread. Ah. Eli had already known that Chiss eyes were a bit better than those of humans, their visible spectrum edging a bit into the infrared. Apparently their ears were better too. Thanks for getting me out of the way. I've had just enough training to know I'm not very good at this. You are welcome. Thrawn looked at the approaching cadets who had slowed to a jog now that the attackers were gone. And now, I believe, he added, it is finally time for us to see Commandant Deanlark. Chapter 6 A leader is responsible for those under his authority. That is the first rule of command. He is responsible for their safety, their provisions, their knowledge, and ultimately, their lives. Those whom he commands are in turn responsible for their behavior and their dedication to duty. Any who violates his trust must be disciplined for the good of the others. But such discipline is not always easy or straightforward. There are many factors some of them beyond the commander's control. Sometimes, those complications involve personal relationships. Other times, it is the circumstances themselves that are difficult. There can also be politics and outside intervention. Failure to act always brings consequences. But sometimes, those consequences can be turned to one's advantage. All right, Commandant Deanlark said as he made a final notation on his datapad. The skin around his eyes is puffy. Perhaps he is newly awakened. His facial heat is bright and the muscles in his throat are tight. There is a thin coating of perspiration on his face. Perhaps he is nervous. Cadets Orbar and Turoi set up the assault, you say? Did you actually hear them calling in the men who attacked you? No, sir, we didn't, Vanto said. But their comlink records, or the lab's own comm system, should give you the necessary indicators. Yes, they should, Deanlark agreed. His voice goes deeper in tone. Reluctance? Unless the assailants were an entirely separate bunch. They were not, Thrawn said. How do you know? Deanlark asked. His eyes narrow. 
They came across the southwest corner of the parade ground, Thrawn said. At that time, they were already moving with speed and stealth. But the only way for them to have independently identified us was with electro-binoculars. Which none of them had, Bento said. He nods, a gesture of understanding. That also rules out an attack driven by jealousy or xenophobia, since they couldn't have known it was Cadet Thrawn. So it was Orbar or Turoi, or the instructor, he added. His tone rises slightly with thoughtfulness. No, Dean Lark said. It wasn't him. It could have been, Thrawn said. I said it wasn't, Dean Lark repeated. His tone has gone deeper, his face stiff, his eyes gazing with heightened intent. Perhaps he does not wish it to be possible. Bad enough that cadets were mixed up in something like this. We're not going to drag an instructor in, too. He looks back at his data pad. His facial heat increases as he makes a final note. Sir, with all due respect, I don't think politics should enter into this, Bento said. His tone is respectful, but firm. No, you don't, do you? Dean Lark said. His voice becomes harsh. Are you ready to have your name put on a witness list? I could handle it, sir. I doubt that, cadet, Dean Lark said. Orbar's family has a lot of say about what happens on Coruscant. Even if they let you graduate, you'd probably find yourself assigned to some wild space listening post. Is not such manipulation of the justice system in itself illegal? Thrawn asked. Of course it is, Dean Lark said. His lips compress, his facial glow fading slowly. All right. Assuming your assailants haven't figured out a way to bypass the comlink records, we should have their names by morning. It will not be a long search, Thrawn said. They would not risk going outside their closest circle of friends. There are eight other cadets who typically socialize with them, two of whom may be eliminated by considerations of aura. Aura? Isa Thimba. Uh, presence or aura, Vanto translated. The Sabisti term can refer to a person's height, weight, build, vocal quality, mannerisms, profession, and expertise, or some combination. They're cadets, Dean Lark said. They don't have a profession. All ten are in the weapons engineering track of study, Thrawn said. Yes, I suppose they are, Dean Lark said. Which leaves us six suspects. All of them also from the same social level as cadets Orbar and Turoi, I assume. If you're suggesting I'm going to look the other way on this cadet, I strongly suggest you revise your thinking, Dean Lark said. His voice is harsh, his facial heat increased. Perhaps he is angry, or feels guilt. Yes, I'm concerned about the potential political fallout here. I've put up with Orbar's antics for almost four years because of it. To 
two more months and he'll be someone else's problem. So yes, I'd like to see this go away. But I can't let this one slide. And I won't. I'm gratified to hear that, Commandant, Thrawn said. Let me then suggest an alternative means of action. You will find our attackers, but you will not bring charges against them. Dinlark's eyes narrow. His mouth opens slightly, in surprise. You don't want them charged? He asked. And what the hell are we all doing here? As I said, I want them found, Thrawn said. I then recommend they be transferred. Dinlark gave a snort of derision. <laughs> to where, Mustafar? To Starfighter pilot training. Dinlark stares. His expression of surprise deepens. Hardly what I'd consider a punishment. It is not intended to be, Thrawn said. All three show the aptitude and aura necessary for fighter craft pilots. Really? Dinark leans back in his chair. He folds his arms across his chest. I can't wait to hear this one. It was obvious from their method of attack, Thrawn said. From the way they moved both together and singly. I do not have the words to properly explain it, but it was the mark of instinctive combat pilots. Cadet Vanto? Dinark gestures toward Vanto in an inviting manner. Can you corroborate that? Sorry, sir, Vanto said. His expression is thoughtful, but I wasn't concentrating on their tactics and I doubt I would have seen what Cadet Thrawn's talking about even if I had. Such an action would also carry an additional bonus, Thrawn said. The Royal Imperial Starfighter program is excellent, but I believe the program at the Sky Strike Academy is equally capable. Nothing equal about it. Sky Strike's far better with pilots than we are, Dinlark said. He sits up straighter in his chair. His frown fades away. He understands. And there's no reason to tell Orbar and Turoi where their fellow conspirators have disappeared to, is there? Not at all, sir, Thrawn agreed. In fact, I would suggest that the three begin their new training. He paused. Nigikotholu. Is there a word in basic for that? Yes, incommunicado, Bento said. Can they be held incommunicado, Commandant? <laughs> On Sky Strike? Dinark makes a snorting sound. <laughs> it's hard not to be incommunicado there. And you're right. I imagine even Orbar might learn to behave himself after three of his co-conspirators disappear without a trace. Uncertainties are often useful in paralyzing an opponent's plans and actions, Thrawn said. For a human like Cadet Orbar, who believes himself capable of handling all situations, this will also prove a useful lesson for his future. 
one can hope he will take it to his core and become a better person and officer. Not sure I'd go that far, Deanlark said. Not with Orbar, but it's worth a shot. If you're sure you want to do it this way... Allow me to state it more strongly, Thrawn said. If you bring the attackers to court-martial, I will not testify against them. Hmm. Deanlark angles his head a few degrees to the side. Is this how you do things in the unknown regions, cadet? Bypass the law and regulations, and get what you want through blackmail or extortion? We attempt to solve problems. This is the solution that is best for the Empire as a whole. You have anything to add, cadet? Deanlark asked. He raises his eyebrows toward Vanto in question. No, sir, Vanto said. Deanlark shrugs his shoulders. Perhaps reluctant acceptance? I'll get the process started, he said. Maybe give Skystrike's Commandant a call. We'll have the guilty party's names by morning, and their hindquarters off Coruscant by dinner. He smiles. Perhaps sly amusement. That should leave them just enough time to tell Orbar and Turoi they have no idea where they're going before they disappear. <laughs> As you said, Cadet, uncertainties. Exactly, Thrawn said. Thank you, Commandant. Don't thank me. Deanlark's tone deepens. Just be advised that if this thing blows up, your name will be right under mine on the hell-to-pay list. He inhales deeply. You're cleared for duty, both of you. Get back to the barracks and get some sleep. Dismissed. Yes, sir, Vanto said as he stood up. Thank you, sir. Thrawn and Vanto were again on the walkway before Vanto spoke again. Interesting solution, he commented. His voice is thoughtful. I'm a little surprised Dean Lark went for it. I am not, Thrawn said. Did you observe the flat sculpt on the left side wall? Yes, I think so, Vanto said. He frowns, and his voice becomes more hesitant. He is focusing his memory. The one with ocean waves and sailing ship? The sailing warship, yes, Thrawn said. It is a highly valuable work of art, worth far more than a man of Commandant Deanlark's position could afford. I doubt it is, Vanto said. It's probably part of the office decor. And yet still too valuable for even the Academy to purchase, Thrawn said. I conclude, therefore, it was a gift from one or more of Coruscant's powerful families. Meaning, Bento said. His posture straightens abruptly as he understands. Meaning that Dean Lark knows Royal Imperial is beholden to the families. Meaning in turn that he would jump at any chance to avoid a public confrontation. Beholden? Ubu Pahaka. Ah, Thrawn said. Yes. Yeah. 
That is indeed Commandant Dean Lark's position. That was why he so readily accepted my plan. Odd that these comlings do not have a preset emergency signal. What? Vanto frowns in surprise or confusion. Cheese comms have an emergency button, Thrawn said. It allows for aid to be summoned quickly. Yeah, that could be useful, Vanto agreed. You've got them on civilian comms, but not military comm links. Probably needed the space for all the extra encryption chips to make sure no one's eavesdropping on official chatter. It would also be useful to arrange the comlings so that one would not need to draw them from belt or pocket. That would definitely be handy. Vanto gestures to the lieutenant's rank plaque. Maybe you could put it inside the rank plaque. At least you wouldn't have to worry about dropping it. Could that be done? What, put a comlink in the rank plaque? Mm, sure. You'd just have to hollow out the towels from behind. Plenty of room in there for a comlink's worth of electronics. His eyes narrow in further thought. Though, on second thought, you might not have enough room for all the encryption chips. Probably couldn't squeeze in enough battery power for long-range use, either. It was only function aboard ship, then. Right, Vanto said. Which means you still have to carry a long-range version for off-ship use. He sighs in resignation. I guess there's a reason why people do things the way they do. Sometimes, Thrawn said. Not always. I suppose, Vanto said. His tone is thoughtful. Could you really tell they would be good starfighter pilots? Or is that just a way to get them kicked out of Royal Imperial? I could really tell, Thrawn said. You could not? Not even close. He is silent for three more steps. His forehead is creased in a frown. Still doesn't address the fact that they attacked you, you know. You're just going to let them get away with that? Your question assumes they will suffer no punishments, Thrawn said. On the contrary, they will spend tomorrow knowing their deeds are laid bare and wondering what fate Commandant Deanlark has planned for them. They will journey to Skystrike bearing the same fear and uncertainty. Ah, Vanto said. I see where you're going. Even once they're there, they'll never be sure they won't be hauled out of bed in the middle of the night and brought back to Coruscant for trial. That fear will eventually fade, Thrawn said. But not for a considerable time. I suppose not, Vanto said. So they get to walk on eggshells for a few months. Orbar gets to do the same. And Dean Lark doesn't have to face Orbar's family. You also will not need to face that same pressure. I wondered if you'd been thinking about that, Vanto said. So justice is served, sort of, and everyone else comes out ahead. What we call a win-win. He points at Thrawn's face. Except you. My injuries are minor and will heal. I have endured worse. I bet you have. Vanto is silent for another few steps. So is this what the Chiss leaders have to look forward to? I do not understand. This kind of justice, 
Vantos said. Retribution for exiling you. The stories say the Chiss never forget injuries that have been done to them. Your stories assume that memory necessarily leads to vengeance, Thrawn said. That is not always the case. Situations change. Reasons and motivations change. No, I seek no retribution. Really? Because it looks to me like they deserve it. They had reasons for my exile. The preemptive strike thing? Vanto asked. His tone is curious but cautious. He sees information within his grasp, but fears to chase it away. What happened anyway? Did you let someone strike get through the chist lines? No, Thrawn said. I launched a strike of my own. Who was it against? Evil, Thrawn said. Nomadic pirates who preyed on defenseless worlds. I deemed it dishonorable for the Chiss ascendancy to stand unmoving and not assist the helpless. Did you beat them? Yes, Thrawn said. But my leaders were unhappy. Sounds pretty ungrateful, Vanto said. His voice is firm, without uncertainty. Also pretty stupid. Pirates like that would have turned on your people sooner or later. What then? Then we would have fought, Thrawn said. But then we would have been the victims. And you can't fight until that happens? That is the Ascendancy's current military doctrine. Vanto shakes his head. It's still unfair. Sometimes a commander's decisions must be made without regard for how they will be perceived. Thrawn said. What matters is that the commander does what is necessary for victory. Yeah, Vanto said. Lucky for me, I'm on track for a supply officer position. I'll never have to worry about that. Yes, Thrawn said. Perhaps. Now watch, Arinda said pointing to the discolored spot where the conduit entered the apartment wall. Okay, Daisy, turn it on. From the other room came the sound of the restroom water being turned on. A moment later, a small spray of water spurted from the spot. A water leak? Chesna Breaker growled. You dragged me all the way down here for a water leak? It's your building, Arinda reminded her calmly. Your maintenance people kept stalling her off. And I couldn't get anyone in your office to take this seriously. So like a little girl who skinned a knee, you go crying to some bureaucrat in the housing department and get him to issue an order for me to drop everything and come down here? Your government lease says your company is responsible for repairs, Orinda said. You own the company that owns this apartment block. That makes you ultimately responsible. If your people won't obey the law, I guess it'll have to be you personally. Hmm, Breaker said, eyeing her venomously. Come over here a minute. She turned and crossed to the window and looked out across the massive planet-wide city that was Coruscant. Frowning, Arinda followed. You see that? Breaker asked when the two women were once again standing together. 
Out there are the little people you're representing so proudly. You know what they're going to do if you ever get in trouble and need help? No. What? Absolutely nothing, Breaker said. You'll be as forgotten as yesterday's breakfast. She tapped her chest. I'm the one you want to impress, Ms. Price. Men and women like me. Not Daisy What's-Her-Name out there. We're the ones with the power to make or break you. You'd be well advised to remember that. I appreciate your concern for my well-being, Orinda said. But I already have a friend in high places. Who? Senator Ranking? <laughs> Breaker snorted. You go ahead and believe that if you want. You're just the latest in a long line of people he's dropped in a dead-end job and left to rot. I'll keep that in mind, Orinda said. In the meantime, you have some repairs to make, and I have 57 more apartment doors to knock on. As long as I'm here, I might as well see what else is wrong with this place. Don't bother, Breaker growled. I'll have one of my people, one of my little people, check into tenant's complaints. We'll have it all finished by the end of next week. I'll hold you to that, Ms. Breaker. Good day. Ten minutes later, Orinda was in her air car, buzzing her way across the Coruscant sky along with millions of other vehicles. A month ago, she mused, she would have been terrified by the traffic flow. Now she barely noticed it. Just a month ago, she might have agreed with Breaker's suggestion that Ranking had stuck her here in order to get rid of her. For the first two months, the senator had talked to her maybe twice, for no more than three minutes at a time. It had very much looked like he'd forgotten about her. That was about to change. Very, very soon. Her calm chimed, and she pulled it out. The ID said Senator Ranking. She smiled tightly. Very soon, or possibly right now. Orinda Price, she said. Senator Ranking, Ms. Price, Ranking said over the comm. How are things going? Very well, Senator, thank you, Orinda said. I've just taken another landlord to task for failing her responsibilities to her tenants. So I hear, Ranking said, his voice going a little brittle. I just heard from Councillor Jana, who just heard from Ms. Breaker. You're causing a real stir down there. Just doing my job, Senator, Orinda said, smiling to herself. So her little one-woman crusade against corruption and indifference was finally drawing the right kind of attention. I hope you and Councillor Jana aren't suggesting I ignore Coruscant laws and regulations. No, uh, of course not, Ranking assured her. Because the Lothal citizens I'm serving certainly seem happy with our progress, Arinda continued. And that is the reason I'm here. Of course. You're doing a very effective job, which is actually why I called. As you may know, with so many people living on Coruscant, the usual array of government services has been badly strained for many years. 
A new program has been initiated that encourages senators to set up and fund, of course, supplementary citizen assistance offices across the planet. Offices open to all Coruscant citizens? Not just that senator's own transient citizens? Exactly. I have four such offices, and I'm about to open a fifth in the Bartanish Four sector. It occurred to me that you're the perfect person to run it. Really? Arinda breathed, putting some schoolgirl excitement into her voice, even as she sent a cynical smile toward the traffic flow outside. That would be wonderful. When would I start? As soon as you close your office for the day. I'll have someone else reopen it next week. Clear out your apartment and move everything to Bartonish 4. The office there is ready, and I've got an apartment reserved for you two and six away. That sounds great, Orinda said. Two blocks and six levels would put her within perfect walking distance. I'll head back to the office and get things started right away. Good. I'll send you both the office and apartment addresses. Let me know when you'll be arriving, and I'll have someone meet you with the various keys, all right? Sounds perfect, Orinda said. Thank you again. No thanks needed. You've earned it. Take care. The connection clicked off. Orinda put the calm away, smiling again. Ranking didn't mind her annoying the relatively rich and powerful. He just didn't want her activities so closely identified with him. In an anonymous assistance office, with no obvious connection to Ranking, she could make all the waves she wanted without nearly so much political blowback. From Ranking's point of view, it had a couple of nice advantages. Orinda would continue to stir Coruscant's sludge, possibly digging up leverage points against local movers and shakers that Ranking could use in the future. At the same time, her new position would hopefully keep her too occupied to worry about the mine she'd lost to the Empire. What Ranking probably didn't realize was that it was just as much a win-win for Arinda, which was why she'd worked so hard to land this exact job ever since hearing about the project a few weeks earlier. Dealing with actual Coruscant citizens instead of Lothal expatriates would move her a modest step up the social ladder. And in Bartonish Four, she would also move several steps physically closer to the all-powerful Federal District. Small steps, to be sure, but if there was one thing her parents had impressed upon her, it was that the best path didn't have to be quick as long as it was correct and Dorinda was in no hurry. No hurry at all. Suddenly, almost before Eli knew it, it was over. Congratulations, son, his father said, gripping his hand tightly. Thanks, Dad, Eli said. But despite the smiles and cheerful words, he could sense an unexpected reserve lurking behind his father's eyes. His mother's concerns were even more visible. It wasn't hard to figure out the reason. Every glance at the Coruscant skyline, every lingering look at one of the other freshly minted ensigns, 
every lowering of their voices whenever someone nearby might hear. All of it pointed to the fact that a wild space cadet like Eli should never have been at Royal Imperial in the first place. And then there was Thrawn. You're sure he's okay? His mother asked as they walked along one of the garden patches leading back to the barracks. Because if the stories about the Chiss are right... She trailed off. They aren't, Mom, Eli assured her. At least, not the ones you're thinking about. How do you know which ones I'm thinking about? The ones about cunning and cruel vindictiveness, Eli said. If they were, a lot of the cadets you're looking at would never have survived long enough to graduate. He winced as the last words left his mouth. Probably not the best way he could have put that. He's okay, he assured them. Really? Very smart. So that part of the stories is true? His father put in. Yes, Eli said. Let's not talk about him, okay? Fine, his father said. Let's talk about you. What happens now that you're off your career track? Who says I'm off it? Eli countered. Up until I came here, that was the bulk of my training. As far as I know, that's still where I am. Well, I hope so, his father said. I just... You never know about core world nonsense. Eli suppressed a sigh. After all, he put up with at Royal Imperial. But then, that was the way of things. And hanging around that chiss might have affected things too, his mother added. I didn't have any choice, Mom. He once again explained as patiently as he could. No matter how far down the social scale a person was, he added sourly to himself, there was always someone lower. I was assigned to him as his translator. Well, hopefully that's over now, his father said. When do you get your ship assignment? Later today, Eli said. And it might be a ground assignment, not a ship. It'll be a ship, dear, his mother said, patting his arm. You come from a family of voyagers, and you're good with numbers. They'd be silly to put you on a base. Sure, Eli said. Though now that he had a better understanding of Navy logistics, he knew that being good with numbers might be the perfect reason for them to put him at a base or supply depot. And we have to get going, his father said suddenly. Eli frowned, looking at him. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Thrawn approaching at a brisk walk, as his father had apparently also noted. Always someone lower. You really don't have to, he said. If he can stay another day, or even another few hours, we can find out my assignment together. We have to go, his father said, fumbling in his tunic. We have to... Damn. And then it was too late. Good afternoon, Thrawn said, as he joined their little group. You are Ensign Vanto's parents, of course. Welcome to Coruscant. Thank you, Eli's father said, his voice a little strained. You are... Uh... I am Lieutenant Thrawn, Thrawn said. Your son has done quite well. You should be very proud of him. 
we are, Eli's mother said. Her voice was less strained than her husband's, but the blatant curiosity in her face more than made up for it. You're a... you're really a cheers? I am, Thrawn confirmed. Your son has spoken of your legends concerning us. Be aware that not all of them are accurate. But some of them are? Eli's father asked carefully. May I ask which ones? The head? Eli admonished him, feeling his face warming. The most flattering ones, of course, Thrawn said, a small smile touching his lips. Still, even when false, legends can be most informative. I thought you said they weren't all true, Eli's mother said. I did not refer to the legends themselves, Thrawn said, turning his glowing eyes on her. But what is remembered says a great deal about those doing the remembering. For a moment, an awkward silence surrounded the group. I see, Eli's father said at last. Very interesting. But as I was saying, we have to go. What was the problem? Eli asked. The problem? He said damn. That usually implies a problem. Oh, his father said. No, not really. I'd just forgotten we can't use our beck and call here, that's all. We'll have to get an airbus to our landing platform. Which they charged an arm and a leg for, his mother added. But we'll be fine. We need to get back home anyway. She stepped close to Eli and wrapped him in a big hug. Thank you for inviting us here, Eli. Let us know where they put you, and take care. I will, Mom, Eli promised as his father wrapped his arms around them both. Have a safe trip back. We will, his father said. Goodbye. Take care. He released his hug. Lieutenant, he said, nodding gingerly at Thrawn. Mr. Vanto. Thrawn said, returning the nod. Miss Vanto, safe journeys. Thank you. Eli's father took his mother's arm and led her away. For a moment, Eli and Thrawn stood in silence, watching as his parents walked down the path toward the Academy's landing platform. They are concerned about you, Thrawn said at last. Parents' prerogative, Eli said wondering uncomfortably how much Thrawn had been able to read from his brief encounters with them. Had he figured out that a major part of their concern was that Thrawn's presence in Eli's life might somehow have poisoned his future? They're also not all that comfortable here. Big city, core people, you know. Yes, Thrawn said. Your father spoke of a beck and call. What is that? It's a device that can remotely bring your ship to you, Eli said. All my family's business ships are slave-rigged for beckon calls. With some of our clients, it's a good idea to keep your ship and the rest of your cargo out of sight and reach until you've finished your deal. Because of the potential for theft? Basically. Why does the Empire not suppress such criminal activity? Because they can't be everywhere, Eli said. 
And Wild Space isn't exactly high on Corson's list. He nodded at the lieutenant's rank plaque, now attached prominently to Thrawn's tunic. So is that a new plaque Dean Lark gave you at the ceremony? Or did you give him back the old one beforehand? This one is new, Thrawn said, rubbing his fingertips gently across the tiles. Evidently, he forgot he had already given me one. Ah, Eli said, nodding. I guess you can keep the other one as a souvenir. Or find another use for it, Thrawn said. When will we learn our assignments? Eli checked his chrono. Could be any time now. He looked back at his departing parents, now nearly lost among the rest of the family members who'd gathered for the graduation ceremonies. Might as well head over to the Commandant's office and see. Very well, Thrawn said. Why do they not simply send us the assignments on our computers? I don't know, Eli said. Turning his back on the other cadets and their well-wishers, he headed toward the Commandant's office. Probably want to get us used to handling properly encrypted data and orders. Or it's the way they've always done things. Take your pick. Come on. Good chance we'll be the first ones in line. They weren't the first, but they were the second and third. Eli gazed at his data card as he and Thrawn walked past the line of graduates now starting to form, his eyes lingering on the Royal Imperial Academy logo. A new trickle of satisfaction running through his disappointment at his parents' abrupt departure. They might not think much of his transfer to Coruscant, but everyone else in the Navy would. He'd done it. He'd really and truly done it. Against all odds, the wild space yokel had been thrown into the elite of Coruscant and had succeeded. Well, Thrawn prompted. You first, Eli said. And as his time at Royal Imperial was coming to an end, so was his time with Thrawn. It had been interesting, but he was ready to move on. Very well. Thrawn slipped his card into his data pad and peered at the display. Interesting. I am to be second weapons officer aboard the Gozanti-class cruiser Bloodcrow. Nice, Eli said. Gozantis were Corellian design, about 64 meters long with dorsal and ventral laser turrets. They were a bit old, most were of pre-Clone Wars manufacture, but they could still hold their own alongside newer ships. Most were being used as freighters or evac ships, but some were being retrofitted with external clamps to carry starfighters or walkers, which would bring them into the front lines against pirates, smugglers, and slavers. In any role, though, a Gozanti was a good, solid ship from which to launch a career. And you? Thrawn asked. I presume you asked for a supply officer position. I did, Eli confirmed, as he inserted his own data card. Good chance I got it, too. The bigger ships are always hurting for a supply person. Now, he trailed off. What the hell? What is it? Thrawn asked. It took Eli two tries to find his voice. The, the blood crow, he choked out. Eight, Lieutenant Thrawn. He looked up at Thrawn. A red haze of anger dropping over his vision. Did you do this? He demanded, 
Thrawn shook his head. No. Don't lie, Eli snarled. Lieutenants don't get AIDS, ever. You set this up with the Emperor, didn't you? The Emperor does not speak to me, Thrawn said. Nor have I spoken with him since my first day on this world. This didn't happen by accident, Eli ground out. You must have said something. What was it? What was it? Thrawn hesitated, then lowered his head. The Blood Crow is scheduled for duty in border sectors where Cybisti and related trade languages may be spoken, he said reluctantly. I merely pointed out that it might be beneficial to have two officers aboard who understood those languages. Since they aren't programmed into translator droids, Eli bit out, an acid taste in his mouth. But I assure you I said nothing about an aid, Thrawn insisted. If you wish, I will refuse to accept you in that position. Eli looked down at his data pad, feeling the anger drain out of him. The anger and the excitement of graduation. Thrawn could refuse, ask or demand all he wanted. It wouldn't do any good. Once orders were logged into the Navy data system, they might as well be laser etched into granite. So that was that. In a single stroke, Eli's life had been completely upended. Again. Only now, it wasn't just his schooling. This time it was his career. So carefully calculated and implemented that had been snatched away from him. He would enter the Navy not as an up-and-coming supply officer, but as an officer's aide. The career path most solidly guaranteed to go nowhere. And that assumed that Thrawn was even up and coming himself. What if he wasn't? What if he failed? Because he might. In fact, the odds were high that he would. Disrespect for non-humans might not be official policy, but it nonetheless quietly pervaded the Navy. Thrawn would have to try twice as hard as anyone else and succeed twice as often just to stay even with them. And when Thrawn went down, it was almost guaranteed that anyone associated with him would go down too. Ensign Vanto, Thrawn prompted, shall I speak with the Commandant? No point, Eli said, shutting down the data pad and putting it away. The Navy doesn't change orders just because junior officers don't like them. When you're an admiral, we'll see what you can do. I understand, Thrawn said quietly. Very well. I shall strive to achieve that rank as quickly as possible. Eli looked sharply at him. Was the damned Chiss mocking him? But there was no hint of amusement in his face. Thrawn was deadly serious. A shiver ran up Eli's back the ghosts of the old stories whispering through his mind. Chiss didn't make idle boasts or promises, and once they set their minds to something, they succeeded or died in the attempt. Maybe he really thought he could make Admiral someday. Maybe he was right. I'll look forward to it, Eli said. Come on, the order's said to be on the Corellia transport at 1800 hours. We don't want to start our careers by missing our ride.
Chapter 7 There is satisfaction in defeating an enemy, but one must never allow oneself to become complacent. There are always more enemies to be identified, faced, and vanquished. All warriors understand the need to face and defeat the enemy. Both aspects of the task can be challenging. Both can require thought, insight, and planning. Failures in any of those areas can cost unnecessary time and irreplaceable lives. But a warrior may forget that even the task of identifying the enemy can be difficult. And the cost of that failure can lead to catastrophe. Eli had occasionally warned Thrawn of the presence of politics within the Navy. They'd certainly seen evidence of that influence during the Orbar incident. Now, once again, politics had arisen that could directly affect them. I wasn't able to get anything on why Captain Virgilio was replaced, Eli murmured as they followed the procession of officers escorting the new commander, Captain Philia Rossi, on her tour of the Blood Crow. But everyone agrees that Rossi's very well connected. Nowadays, that's all you need to get a command. I see, Thrawn said. Eli grimaced. I see. That was Thrawn's go-to answer when he didn't want to say anything else. There was certainly plenty that he could say. Starting with the kind of Captain Rick Virgilio had been. He'd been excellent at his job walking the necessary balance between standing orders and flexibility. In the 18 months Eli and Thrawn had served under him, the captain had built up a fine reputation for trapping smugglers, rendering aid to distressed vessels, and diffusing potentially damaging political situations on mid-rim and outer-rim worlds. He'd earned the respect of his officers and crew, and highly satisfactory reviews from the governors and other political leaders with whom he'd interacted. Equally important, certainly from Eli's and Thrawn's point of view, Virgilio had taken in stride the presence of an alien officer on his ship. There had been a degree of tension during the first few weeks as Virgilio tested the limits of Thrawn's intelligence, knowledge, and ability. But once the captain learned his new officer's parameters, Eli could detect no difference in the captain's treatment or acceptance of his second weapons officer. When the position of first weapons officer opened up, he'd raised no objections to Thrawn being promoted to that position. In fact, ship's gossip had suggested that Virgilio might have actually recommended the Chiss for the job. Now, without warning or explanation, Virgilio had been removed from the Blood Crow and a younger, less experienced captain brought in. There was little that Eli had been able to learn about the new captain. Philia Rossi had graduated from the Wraithall Academy 12 years earlier and had spent most of her time since then on Socorro, first on the ground, then aboard an orbiting defense platform out in the system's asteroid belts. For the past year, she'd been first officer aboard an ore freighter escort. Now suddenly, she'd been promoted to command of a cruiser. It seemed obvious that the decision had been based on politics and influence rather than merit or even seniority. Still, Eli was willing to give Rossi the benefit of the doubt. 
It was possible that the driving force was less political status than the simple result of personnel transfers. If Captain Virgilio had been promoted to a better, more prestigious command, then someone else had to be brought to the Blood Crow to take his place. But if that was the case, news of Virgilio's promotion had not been passed to the Blood Crow's other officers. Such silence from the high command lent additional weight to Eli's suspicions that the former captain had been retired or even quietly dismissed. Still, there must necessarily be a first command in every officer's career, Thrawn said into Eli's thoughts. I suppose, Eli conceded. I just don't see why her first command has to be on our ship. Ahead, the captain and the short line of officers trailing behind her had reached the number two storage bay. The captain hit the hatch release and stepped inside. First officer Nels Dayland close behind her. Eli winced. Uh-oh, he murmured. The rest of the officers knew what it meant, too. They began drifting to both sides of the passageway, making room for Thrawn to pass when the expected call came. The wait was barely ten seconds. Thrawn! The captain's voice boomed from inside the storage bay. Get in here now! Captain Rossi and Senior Lieutenant Dalen stood at one side of the storage bay. Rossi's facial glow is increasing. Her eyes narrowed in a frown. Dalen stands motionless, his face showing a partially masked expression of discomfort. Senior Lieutenant Dalen tells me this is yours, Rossi said, pointing at the equipment stacked along the bulkhead. It is, Captain. You mind telling me what the hell it's doing taking up space on my ship? He found it in a scrap market we were investigating for smuggler activity, Dalen put in. As I mentioned earlier, I... Your name, Lieutenant Thrawn! Rossi cut him off. Her facial glow increases. Her stance is stiff, her fingers moving slightly. N no, ma'am. Then shut it! I asked you a question, Lieutenant. As Senior Lieutenant Dalen said, the parts were in a scrap market, Thrawn said. They are antiques, remnants of the Clone War. I know what they are, Rossi growled, looking at the piles again. Droidica, buzz droid, two buzz droids, half a step. Her eyes narrowed. Is that part of a hyperdrive ring? Yes, ma'am. These aren't antiques, Lieutenant. Rossi snorts, her lips curling down briefly. These are junk! Perhaps, ma'am, Thrawn said. However, as I am not fully familiar with the technology of that era, I hope to gain insight by studying them. And maybe get them working again? Rossi asked. Don't deny it. I can see fill-ins on both buzz droids. Brand new components. She raises her eyebrows. Her finger movements intensify briefly. They'd better not be components from the Blood Crow stores. No, ma'am, Thrawn said. They were purchased elsewhere. 
At his own expense, Dalen murmured. Senior Lieutenant Dalen is correct, Thrawn said. The buzz droids in particular struck me as potentially useful. They are compact, with specialized drilling and cutting tools that allow them to- Spare me the lecture! Rossi cut him off. Her hand makes an abbreviated slash through the air. The pitch of her voice bowers. You may have read about the Clone Wars, but some of us lived it. And Virgilio just let you bring this stuff aboard? Captain Virgilio permitted me to purchase them. Yes, ma'am, Thrawn said. He also gave me permission to store them here when I was not working on them. Very generous of him, Rossi said. It may have caught your attention that Virgilio isn't captain anymore. I am, and I run a clean ship. I want this garbage dumped before your next watch. Clear? Beside her, Dalen stirred. His stance indicates disagreement. Ma'am, if I might suggest... I ask if that was clear, Lieutenant. Yes, Captain, Thrawn said. May I offer an alternative? If I didn't want to hear from my first officer, what makes you think I want to hear from you? Rossi countered. Senior Lieutenant Dayland, you'll see that he dumps it as ordered. We're done here. Yes, ma'am. Dayland remains standing where he is, making no indication of preparing to leave the bay. With your permission, ma'am, I'd like to hear Lieutenant Thrawn's suggestion. Captain Rossi's eyes narrow further as she stares at Dayland. Her arms are stiff beneath the uniform sleeves, her fingers now motionless, her stance leaning slightly forward. Senior Lieutenant Dalen's expression is tense, but his stance indicates firmness. Captain Rossi straightens slightly. Apparently, no one aboard understands proper respect for their captain, she said, her voice stiff. We'll have to deal with that. She turned back to Thrawn. Fine. Let's hear this alternative. It is my understanding, ma'am, that material aboard an Imperial war vessel is the property of that vessel, and thus under control of the commander, Thrawn said. When I bought these items for 500 credits... 500 credits? Rossi interrupted. Are you serious? Those things aren't worth a tenth that! That would be correct, Captain. Were these standard buzz droids? Thrawn said. But they are of the Mark I version. Quite rare. And apparently quite valuable. Really? Rossi looks at the buzz droids. Her lips pursing. How valuable? When I bought them, they were non-functional, Thrawn said. As you have noted, I have made some progress in repairing them. I would expect that once they are fully restored, they will be quite valuable to collectors. Collectors? Rossi's tone is flat. People with more money than brains. Some also merely have an interest in Clone War antiquities, Thrawn said. 
I am told there are members of the High Command with such interests. Rossi's lips part slightly, her stance straightening. She gazes again at the buzz droids, the muscles in her cheeks tensing, then relaxing, then tensing again. Her fingers are in motion, the thumb and forefinger of her right hand rubbing gently together. Mark Ones, you said? I did. Mark Ones, she murmured. Her voice carries the mix of tension and interest that indicates sudden understanding. Her hand makes a small movement toward her data pad, then stops. All right. I'll meet you halfway. We're due back at Ancien in three months. You can have until then to play with your toys. Once we reach Ancien, I'm taking them, working or not. Clear? Clear, ma'am. Thrawn said. Thank you. Rossi looks at Dayland, then at the droids. The tension lines in her face smooth out. She brushes past Dayland to the bay's exit. At your convenience, Senior Lieutenant Dayland, she called back over her shoulder. Yes, ma'am. Dayland gives a small smile of satisfaction, then follows the captain back into the corridor. They continue aft, the rest of the officers again forming up behind them. Well? Vanto asked quietly as he reached the bay. His expression holds both anticipation and dread. Is she making you throw it all out? Why would you assume that? Because Virgilio let you have it, and Rossi's going to try to wipe every trace of him off the blood crow, Vanto said. His voice holds a low level of bitterness. Trust me, I've seen her type a lot. Interesting, Thrawn said. As it happens, she has agreed to allow me until the end of our current patrol to bring the items to full function. Generous of her. I presume there's a catch? I reminded her that they would become her property. Ah, Bento said. He nods in understanding. And you remembered what I said back when you first got them about collectors and non-intrinsic value? I did. I thank you for that insight. You're welcome, Banto said. I don't suppose you happened to mention that the buzz droids were already fully operational. She did not ask. But I believe she also came to a belated realization that they have a value beyond even the non-intrinsic lure to collectors. Do you remember a metal called Dunium from our technical classes? Oh, I knew Dunium long before I got to Royal Imperial, Vanto said. Dad always put on extra security whenever we were lucky enough to carry a crate or two of the stuff. But there's no Dunium in buzz droids. There was in Mark I models, Thrawn said. It was a shell protecting the brain core. It was removed in later models because the cost outweighed the defensive benefits. So rare and intrinsically valuable, Vanto said. He nods in understanding. You say the captain figured out that last part herself? I believe so. She reached for her data pad presumably intending to confirm her memory of the Mark I construction, 
but then changed her mind. Didn't want to make a big deal of it in front of everyone, Vanto said. She'll wait until she's alone. He smiles with cynical amusement. And then will no doubt congratulate herself on her memory and insight on putting one over on her poor, naive weapons officer. Perhaps, Thrawn said. And we should probably rejoin the others. Right. Vanto starts down the corridor at a quick walk. Hopefully Dayland also won't mention the droids are functional. If he does, Rossi will probably take him right now, and you won't get to fiddle with him anymore. He said nothing at the time. Good for him, Vanto said. Of course he does owe you. Getting blindsided when those Delphidians made a run for it could have been embarrassing. Possibly lethal as well. Very possibly, Vanto agreed. Thrawn! A distant bellow echoed down the passageway. I believe they have reached the electronics repair shop, Thrawn said. And found the other part of your hyperdrive ring, Vanto said. Yeah, we might want to hurry. It took a week for Captain Rossi to come fully up to speed on her new command and to acquaint herself with her ship, her officers, and her crew. She was, Eli had to admit, pretty good at it. By the end of the second week, she was being spoken of with cautious acceptance by most of the crew and was well on her way to good working relationships with most of her officers, with two glaring exceptions. Eli, of course was the second one. The most frustrating part was that he'd predicted the problem right from the start. The captain had an aide, non-human Lieutenant Thrawn had one, and no one else aboard ship did. It wasn't proper protocol. It certainly wasn't proper tradition. And in the Imperial Navy, those two things were the bedrock on which everything else was built. It had taken Captain Virgilio some time to get used to the idea. It had taken Senior Lieutenant Dayland even longer. Neither man, Eli suspected, had ever been really happy with it. Eli wasn't expecting Rossi to ever get used to it or accept it. Unfortunately, there were an infinite number of ways a commander could show her displeasure with something or with someone. Sure enough, over the next month, Eli saw a clear pattern developing. Every nasty, dirty, or undesirable job somehow ended up on Thrawn's list. If it was a job that an officer couldn't legitimately be ordered to do, Thrawn would still be tasked with overseeing the procedure. And as Thrawn's aide, Eli was usually assigned the job right along with him. Thrawn took it with stoic good grace. Eli made sure his own annoyance was equally invisible. The slightest hint of insubordination, he knew, and Rossi would be on him like a tusk cat on a shock. So when the Blood Crow picked up a distress call from a freighter carrying a cargo of static lock Tabana gas, Eli knew exactly who would be leading the boarding party. If I understand correctly, Thrawn said, as Ensign Mary Barlin maneuvered their shuttle between the Blood Crow and the derelict freighter, Dromedar. The most disagreeable part of this duty is the dust. 
Yes, sir, Eli said, looking at the man and woman sitting silently in the jump seats along the shuttle's walls. Neither of them looked particularly happy with their assignment either. Electronics Tech Lanio has had experience with static locking, Eli continued, gesturing to the woman. Care to elaborate on the problem? As Ensign Vanto says, sir, there's dust, Lanio said, her face wrinkling briefly with disgust. A lot of it. Something about static locking brings the stuff out of every nook and cranny on a ship and deposits it neatly on your uniform and skin. You come out looking like a dirt miner. It sticks to fabrics especially well, engineering tech Jaqib added. You usually have to run your uniform through the cleaner twice to get everything out. And we all know how Captain Rossi likes her crew to look sharp, Barlin called back from the cockpit. How does it affect electronic equipment? Thrawn asked. Luckily, the dust is usually coarse enough not to get into properly sealed gear, Lanio said. Emphasis on properly. I've never seen a civilian transport yet where everything was up to proper code. In fact, I bet 50 credits we don't find anyone aboard, Jaqib said. Automated beacon, dead in space. Odds are they got dust in their hyperdrive, couldn't fix it, and took off. I'll take that bet, Lanio said. Easy, Eli warned. No gambling aboard ship, remember? But we're not aboard ship, sir, Jaqib said innocently. This vessel is considered part of the Blood Crow, Thrawn said. If static locking has such serious disadvantages, why is it still used? It's really only used with Tabana gas, sir, Lanio said. The stuff's highly explosive and highly valuable. Big draw for hijackers. Static locking the tanks makes stealing them a risky business. Which means it'll be equally tricky for us if Captain Rossi wants them brought aboard, Jaqib warned. Hopefully it'll just be a matter of fixing whatever's wrong and flying the whole freighter to Ancien. There was a gentle bump. We're here, sir, Barlin reported. Engaging locking collar? Okay, we're set. Atmosphere inside reading normal. Lights on low. Temperature mid-range, gravity functional and standard. Scrub is still running. Life-form readings? Thrawn asked. Nothing useful, sir, she replied. The static locking's still screwing all that up. Okay, scrub's finished. Negative on dangerous chemicals or microorganisms. We're good to go, Lieutenant. Thank you, Thrawn said. Ensign Vanto... Take Tex Lanio and Jaqib aft to the engine section. Ensign Barlin and I will go forward to the bridge. Two minutes later, Eli and the two Techs were moving down the freighter's central passageway, their footsteps echoing in the gloom. Really hate derelicts, sir, Lanio muttered as they walked. Her hand, Eli noted, was resting on the grip of her holstered blaster. Too many ghost ship stories when I was growing up. I heard my share, too, Eli said. Most are just stories. The rest are real incidents embellished out of all recognition. I'm sure this place will look a lot cheerier once Barlin gets to the lighting controls, Jaqib said helpfully. 
Yeah, I don't think so. Lanio growled. All the light in the world. Without warning, the corridor erupted in a blinding blaze of light. Freeze! A taut voice said from somewhere behind them. You hear me? Freeze! Or I swear I'll shoot you where you stand! Vanto's expression is wary as he comes into view. But the tension that was in his voice when he gave the alarm has subsided. He holds an unfamiliar blaster loosely in his hand. Ensign Vanto, report, Thrawn ordered. Lieutenant, Vanto said. He gives a brief formal nod of greeting and acknowledgement. His fingers are half curled in the silent signal that confirms all is indeed well. May I present Neville Signy? He apparently mistook us for someone else. Did he? Thrawn said. Signy is a human with dark hair and the textured skin of one who has worked long years in bright sunlight. He sits on the deck at Vanto's feet. His torso is hunched forward, his face buried in his hands. His expression is largely hidden, but the tensed muscles in his neck and arms hold fear and weariness. His clothes are stained with the same dust that clings to the Imperial's own uniforms. His hands show the scarring and calluses of mild physical labor. Whom did he mistake us for? Signy? Vanto prompted. Yes, sir, Signy said. Still seated, he straightens up and lowers his hands. His face is well-fleshed, with no signs of malnutrition. The skin around his eyes is taut with stress, as are the muscles in his throat. His eyes are dark and wary. Please believe that I thought you were... He breaks off, and his eyes widen. I... Oh. Lieutenant Thrawn asked you a question, Signy, Vanto said. Yes, Signy said. He blinks twice and turns his eyes to Vanto. Sorry, my name. Uh, no, you already know my name. Sorry. The thing is, we were attacked by pirates. Who were they? Vanto asked. Did they mention any names? Were they wearing any kind of insignia? No, Signy said. No names. His lips twitch. At least, nothing I heard. I sort of ran. There is a brief silence. Where did you run? Vanto asked. There's a storage locker back there where Captain Fitz stores a private food stocks. Signy angles his head behind him. Specialized stuff she picks up along our route that she sells whenever she can make a profit. We used to pilfer it, taking from the back and keeping the front intact so she wouldn't notice as quickly. Which left enough room behind the packages where you could hide? I know what you're thinking, Signy said. His voice becomes harsh. I should have stood with the others. Maybe fought. Maybe... He broke off, his throat working. And then they took them. His voice drops in volume. All of them. I heard someone say they were going to go back to their base and find a slicer to get the ship running. But they took everyone else with them. 
What happened to the hyperdrive? Thrawn asked. I've got Lanio checking it out, Vanto said. Best guess is that someone locked it down before the pirates could get to it. Yes, that was it, Signy said. Captain Fitz locked the hyperdrive. I heard them threatening her. Or maybe it was Tomb, our engineer, who locked it. He squeezes his eyes tightly shut. I heard screams. You thought we were the returning pirates? Thrawn asked. Yes. Signy opens his eyes and waves one hand at Vanto. I was scared, and I didn't focus on the uniforms. I never thought anyone would hear the beacon or come looking anyway. When I saw who you were... He trails off. I guess I'm lucky you didn't just shoot me for pulling a blaster on you. We have better self-control than that, Vanto said. He looks at Thrawn. Order, sir. Contact the Blood Crow, Thrawn said. Signy buries his face in his hands again. The muscles in his hands are tight with tension. Report the situation to the captain, and inform her I will be making a thorough examination of the ship. Except for the power compartment, sir, Lanio said as she joined them from around a corner. There's a bad leak in the main reactor. Oh yes, don't go in there! Signy said quickly. He drops his hands from his face. His back stiffens as he looks up. Sorry, I should have warned you about that. It's okay, Lanio said, her voice dry. The indicators and hatch interlocks were a pretty solid hint. Oh, right. Signy sighs. His torso folds over again in a slump. And then tell her... Thrawn continued to Vanto, that I recommend bringing a full operational crew aboard while we attempt to restart the hyperdrive. If we are unable to do so, I recommend attempting to disengage the static locks so that the Tabana cylinders can be removed and transferred to the Blood Crow. Lanio's mouth drops open a few millimeters. Uh, yes, Vanto said cautiously. Sir, I, I suspect the captain will find your suggestions a bit excessive. She may, Thrawn said. Signy's face is still hidden in his hands. Nevertheless, those are my recommendations. Yes, sir, Vanto said. I'll submit them immediately. Thank you, Ensign, Thrawn said. While you do that, Teclania will show me to the Tabana cylinders. Lanio clenches her jaw firmly. Yes, sir, she said. This way. Chapter 8 Leadership and obedience are the two legs on which a warrior's life is balanced. Without both, victory cannot be achieved. Leadership depends on information and comprehension, not so obedience. Sometimes a commander may choose to share details of his plan. Often he may not. In either case, obedience must be instant and complete. Such automatic response relies on trust between commander and those commanded. 
and that trust can only be obtained through leadership. Eli had expected Captain Rossi to take Thrawn's recommendations badly. He wasn't disappointed. A full op crew? Rossi echoed incredulously. Is he out of his mind? Ma'am, the cargo is extremely valuable, Eli pointed out, fighting back a growing annoyance. Rossi had no business simply rejecting Thrawn's suggestions out of hand. But Thrawn, likewise, shouldn't have put Eli in the middle of this in the first place. If he wanted to pitch this crazy plan, he should have done it himself. If we can move either the ship or the Tabana... And if he thinks he's going to play around with 20 Tabana cylinders while my ship is in even the same solar system, he's very much mistaken. Rossi cut him off. Yes, ma'am, Eli said, glowering at his comlink. Now the captain was just being overdramatic. A cascading Tabana explosion was seriously nasty, but it wasn't that bad. But if Lieutenant Thrawn thinks it can be done, it may be worth letting him try. It would hardly be a major loss for the Navy if he blew himself to atoms, Rossi countered sarcastically. But I'm not risking that much of my crew on those odds. Anyway, it's a moot point. A Hodin settlement on Moltok is getting shot at by the local McCurth boss. They need some Imperial muscle to knock their little heads together before it becomes a full-fledged war. We need to go. Yes, ma'am, Eli said, wishing he could just let it go and let Rossi's decision play out for better or worse upon her own head. But Signy needed protection and justice too. So did the Imperial base, or local planetary defense force that had ordered that Tabana shipment. Besides... Thrawn was counting on him. What if just Lieutenant Thrawn and I stayed behind? He suggested to Rossi. Possibly with one of the techs along to assist. We could try to get the ship started and maybe work on the Tabana a little. You could come back and get us after you've settled the Moltok situation. There was a short pause. And Eli could visualize Rossi tapping her fingers on her armrest as she weighed her options. If Eli were a betting man... And if gambling were allowed aboard the Blood Crow, he would bet on the captain going with whatever option had the best chance of Thrawn blowing himself up. If the Tabana didn't do the trick, a shipload of returning pirates might. Very well, Ensign, Rossi said. Inform Lieutenant Thrawn that he can have whatever equipment he needs and up to three crew, assuming he can find that many willing to volunteer. You'll stay with him regardless, of course. An important officer like that can't be without his aid. Eli scowled. He'd called it all right. Yes, ma'am, he said. I'll deliver your message immediately. Given the circumstances, Rossi no doubt assumed the repair party would consist only of Thrawn and Eli. It was probably a surprise to her, and not a pleasant one, when Barlin, Lanio, and Jaqib all instantly volunteered to stay as well. I'm gratified you were all willing to help, Signy said, as he and the others watched from the Dromedar's bridge as the Blood Crow jumped to light speed. I just hope it doesn't end badly for you. It will not, Thrawn assured him. Ensign Barlin, Tech Lanio, 
You may begin when ready. Yes, sir, Barlin said, seating herself at the helm station. Lanio? On it, ma'am, Lanio said, pulling a chair over to the main computer station. Here we go. What are they doing? Signy asked, lowering his voice to a whisper, as if afraid he would disturb their work. They are attempting what is known as an asymmetric backdoor, Thrawn told him. It is a hidden code programmed into many ship computers for precisely this purpose. Signy whistled softly. <laughs> I've never heard of that. Nice. He threw a sideways look toward Thrawn. Never heard of a non-human as an Imperial officer, either. You're some sort of Pantoran, right? Eli took a breath, preparing to point out that Pantorans didn't have red eyes. Of a sort, yes, Thrawn said. What I am is a lieutenant in the Imperial Navy. Right, Signy said again. Sorry, I didn't mean to pry. I just... Uh, no offense. None taken, Thrawn said. Ensign Vanto, go to engineering and unpack the crates I had delivered aboard. We shall join you shortly. Yes, sir, Eli said, frowning slightly. There was something about the way Thrawn was acting. Something he couldn't quite put his finger on. Was he worried about the ship? The Tabana gas? The pirates? Captain Rossi? Actually, when he put it that way, it wasn't surprising at all that Thrawn might feel preoccupied. The crate had been left just outside the cargo bay, where the line of Tabana cylinders stood against the hull. Eli glanced into the bay. Jakeeb was in there, taking the readings Thrawn had ordered, then set to work on the crate. He got the end open, and felt his eyes widen. He'd had no idea that Thrawn was bringing... What in the world? Signy's stunned voice came from behind him. Is that a buzz droid? It is, Thrawn said calmly. I am surprised you recognize it. They weren't exactly a secret weapon, Signy said, walking up to Eli and crouching beside him to peer into the crate. That's a Mark I, isn't it? Rare. Is it functional? Uh, please tell me it isn't functional. Of course it is functional, Thrawn said. It would hardly be of use otherwise. Signy looked at Thrawn, then at the buzz droid, then back at Thrawn. Okay, you've lost me, he said. These things were designed to eat starfighters, right? They also have other uses, Thrawn said. Come, I will explain. He turned and walked through the hatchway into the cargo bay. Signy watched him go, then turned to Eli. Is he serious? About using buzz droids in there, I mean? I assume so, Eli said. Really? Signy looked at the hatchway again, then shrugged and gestured to Eli. After you, he said. This I have to see. Thrawn was standing with Jakeeb, the two having a quiet discussion, when Eli and Signy joined them. Tech Jakeeb confirms my earlier assumptions, Thrawn said. The static lock does indeed seal the Tabana cylinders, but only from this side. 
Excuse me, Signy asked, sounding even more confused. What do you mean, this side? Thrawn gestured. Tech-Jakeeb? The lock's only on the cargo base side of the cylinders, Jakeeb explained. See, they're fastened right against the hull with half-meter struts. That's too short a distance for the lock to go all the way around. It would short out or power drain itself out of existence. So the lock is just on the surfaces inside the bay. Though also around the ends of the cylinder row, I assume, Eli said. He saw where Thrawn was going with this now. Correct, Jakeeb confirmed. Just not on the backside. So if you want to get to them, your best bet is to go through the hull. Hence the buzzdroid, Signy said, sounding awed. I'll be damned. Why hasn't anyone thought of that before? Oh, they have, Jakeeb said. Thing is, it's not quite as simple as it sounds. Because? One, you have to get a buzz droid and probably rebuild it, Jakeeb said, ticking off fingers. Two, once you've done that, big ship hulls are thicker and tougher than the old starfighters. Fair chance you'll wreck your droid before you're halfway through. Third, he looked at Thrawn, raised his eyebrows. Third is that you will necessarily drain one of the cylinders into space when you cut through, Thrawn said. That represents a loss that many are unwilling to accept. Though losing one out of twenty isn't bad percentage-wise, <laughs> Signy mused. Especially if the alternative is to lose all of them. So I gather once you have that cylinder drained, you can cut it into little pieces and dump it out your gap in the hull, which then gives you access to the others from the back. Then you just work your way down the line, cutting all the struts and freeing them one by one? Exactly, Jakeeb said. Takes a while, but once you've got the first one out, it's a purely mechanical operation. He looked at Thrawn again. There is one other slight problem, of course. Venting the Tabana outside the ship theoretically works just fine. But if you spark the vapor in just the right way, well, there could be trouble. As in blowing up the ship? Signy asked. Not that much trouble, Jakeeb said. But it would be a mess. Fortunately, that will not be necessary after all, Thrawn said. His head was cocked a little to the side, Eli saw, as if he was listening to something. Why not? Signy asked. In answer, Thrawn pulled out his comlink. Ensign Barlin, do I hear the hyperdrive going active? Yes, sir, you do. Barlin's voice came faintly from the comlink. Got through the lock, and we're just about ready to go. Does Signy have the destination coordinates? Or are we just going to take the ship to Ancien? Neither, I'm afraid, Signy said softly. Frowning, Eli turned to him and froze. The wretched, nervous, ill-fated crewman had vanished. In his place was someone else. Quiet, calm, and supremely confident. A small blaster held steady in his hand. What the hell? Jakeep breathed. Signy ignored the comment. Pulling out a comlink with his free hand, he flicked it on. We're good, he said. 
Three with the Tabana, two on the bridge. He raised his eyebrows toward Thrawn. I'd appreciate it if you'd order Balin and Lanio to surrender quietly. Why should I deprive them of their right and duty to defend their lives? Thrawn countered. Because if they surrender, they won't be harmed, Signy said. I give you my word. And these? Thrawn asked, inclining his head toward Eli and Jakeeb. None of you will be harmed, Signy said. All we want is the Tabana. He wrinkled his nose. Well, and the ship too. I guess that goes without saying. Before Thrawn could answer, a dozen large, rough-looking men appeared, swarming through the hatchway into the cargo bay. One of them, a thin man with a braided beard, raised his blaster. Blasters down! Signy snapped. They've surrendered. No shooting. Angel, I said down. The man with the braided beard ignored him. What the hell is that? He demanded, jabbing the blaster at Thrawn. That, Signy said, is a lieutenant of the Imperial Navy. Now lower your weapon. He looked at Thrawn. Lieutenant. For a moment, Thrawn studied him. Then he raised his calm link again. Ensign Barlin, a group of pirates are on their way. They've been ordered not to harm you if you surrender without resistance. You will do so. Sir? Surrender, Ensign. That is an order. Thrawn put the calm link away. Would you care to accept my surrender personally, Mr. Signy? That's all right, Lieutenant, Signy said, not moving. I get no particular enjoyment after defeating my opponents. Angel? Disarm them, please. Yeah. Angel grinned evilly. Cause I do enjoy it. So don't get clever. He gestured three of his soldiers forward. Out of the corner of his eye, Eli saw Jakeeb brace himself as he prepared for action. As you were, Jakeeb, he murmured. You've been given an order. Jakeeb hissed out a sigh. Yes, sir. A moment later, the Imperials were disarmed. Good, Signy said. To Eli's eye, he looked more relaxed now that the risk of combat was past. Better call your ship, Angel. Already called, Angel said. I suppose you want me to toss this crowd in with the others? That was the deal. Signy said. No deaths, no injuries. Oh, and in case I didn't mention it, I already have people on the ground at the drop point to make sure you deliver everyone safely. Well, you know now, things don't always go the way you want to, Angel warned. His eyes, Eli noted, hadn't left Thrawn for a minute. Sometimes there are accidents. <laughs> Sometimes there's trouble. There can be... Sometimes there are consequences you really don't want to face, Signy said. He hadn't raised his voice, but something in his tone nevertheless sent a chill up Eli's back. Enough posturing. You have the other two Imperials? Good. Bring them down here. As soon as your ship arrives, you'll transfer them over. I trust you've decided which of your men will help me bring the Dromedar to port. 
Oh yeah, I got your team, Angel said, still eyeing Thrawn. Starting with me, Signy frowned. There's no need for you to come personally, he said. Getting the cylinders will take some time. Whether we break the static lock or use Lieutenant Thrawn's idea of cutting them out through the hull. Plenty of time for you to drop the prisoners and rejoin us. I know, Angel said. I just like your company, that's all. He nodded toward Thrawn. I was just saying that accidents do happen. Not saying they would or wouldn't. Just saying they could. Signy gazed at him, an unreadable expression on his face. He looked at Thrawn, back at Angel. Eli held his breath. Let me sweeten the pot, Signy said. Did you notice that box in the passageway on your way in? Yeah, Angel said. Is that a buzz droid? It is indeed, Signy said. Take it as a bonus. It's probably worth what? He held up a hand toward Thrawn. Two hundred credits, as it is, Thrawn said. Signy snorted. <laughs> you have no idea, Lieutenant. That's a Mark I, Angel. At current prices, it's probably a thousand credits just for the Corps Dunium shell. Angel threw a startled look at the droid. It's got a Dunium shell? Refined, case-hardened, and ready for the right buyer to pull it off and drop it on the black market, Signy confirmed. A thousand credits. Two hundred each for five otherwise worthless Imperials. Just to keep them alive. Angel scrunched up his nose. Fine, he said reluctantly. Sure, I guess so. If that's not good enough, consider this, Signy said. If I hadn't persuaded them to surrender, they would have fought, and some of your men would be dead right now. Maybe even you. I said fine, Angel said scornfully. They keep their noses clean, I'll dump them with the rest. Happy? Signy inclined his head. You may not realize this, Angel but it pays to build a reputation for keeping your word. Not to the folks I work with, it doesn't, Angel said sourly. Fine, let's get this over with. So just because I don't have your plate crystal reputation, you think I can't be trusted to do what I said? Angel looks back over his shoulder at his prisoners and the other pirates. His eyes are narrowed, his lips twisted with the corners downward. The muscles in his throat and back are tight. Not at all, Signy said. His tone is calm, his words conciliatory. His movements are careful and precise. His face shows little expression, but there is a tight muscle behind his cheek. As long as I was here, I thought I'd check up on the other prisoners. Your men were a little rough on a couple of them. Hey! You throw a punch at a Q-loss, it comes back with interest, Angel growled. They're lucky I didn't shoot them dead. Yes, 
Signy murmured. I suppose they are. What is a Q-loss? Thrawn asked. What? Angel demands. His eyes narrow, his facial heat intensifying. His tone is cautious and suddenly angry, perhaps indicating regret for speaking the word. It is a word I have not heard before, Thrawn said. Ensign Vanto? I don't know it either, Vanto said. His tone is cautious, but interested. Some slang thing, I guess. Probably means idiot. Angel takes a step forward toward Vanto. His expression is suddenly furious. His hands form into fists. Listen, pretty boy. Oh. Enough, Signy said. Move on, Angel. We're on a schedule. The Dromedar's crew were locked inside a large, metal-barred cage that had been built into the back third of the pirate ship's aft starboard cargo bay. There were ten of them. Seven humans of varying ages, sizes, and skin tones. Two Gron, each with the three eyes and goat-like snouts of their species, and one Togruta, her cone-horn montrals and striped headtails making her prominent among the prisoners. The Togruta watches as the new prisoners approach, her hands rubbing slowly, vertically along one of the bars of their prison. She looks briefly at each of the Imperials, then turns her attention to Angel. They reach the cage. Angel took a chained key from around his neck and unfastened the deadlock securing the cage door. The lock was a mechanical style, impervious to electronic lock breaking. The key itself was an elaborate wavy shape with multiple nubs and indentations, likely difficult or impossible to duplicate. Three of the pirates leveled their blasters at the prisoners in the cage as Angel disengaged the lock. He swung the door open and gestured. Go! He ordered. Angel waited until the five Imperials were inside, then closed the door behind them and resealed the lock. Satisfied? He asked Signy. Angel handed the key to one of the other pirates, who hung the chain around his own neck and pushed the key deep under his shirt. For now, Signy said. Remember, they all get dropped off as agreed, unharmed. He raises his eyebrows in silent challenge. No accidents. Remind your men. Don't worry. Angel growled. You lubs, back to your stations. I want you at the tripo in six days. He looks again at Signy. His eyes narrow. And be sure you don't bruise any of them when you drop them off. Come on, let's get out of here. He left the cargo bay and headed forward, followed by his men. Signy gives the prisoners a final look. His lips press tightly together, then follows. I gather you're our rescue squad? One of the other humans in the cage asked. Her lip is twisted, perhaps with contempt or sarcasm. Something like that, Vanto said. This is Lieutenant Thrawn. I'm Ensign Vanto. Are you Captain Fitz? Yeah, the woman said. So he snuggled you, too. 
Who, Signy? Yeah, Fitz said. Got aboard the Dromadar with a fake authorization, and then managed to get the drop on everyone. He didn't get everyone, Lanio corrected. He said you locked down the hyperdrive. Yeah, Fitz said again. For all the good it did us. So he talked you into starting it up for him? More or less, Vanto said. Fitz swore. So that's it. The ship's gone, the Tabana's gone, and we're done. They might as well kill us. I wouldn't give up hope quite yet, Vanto said. Lieutenant? Not yet, Ensign, Thrawn said. Patience. Not yet what? Fitz asked. Hey, Bright Eyes, I'm talking to you. Probably figuring out what he's going to say in his report, one of the other prisoners said. Gotta make this mess look good somehow. Watch your mouths, Vanto warned. That's an officer of the Imperial Navy you're talking about. Yeah, I'm real impressed. I said, watch your mouths. Vanto does not raise his voice, but the effect on the prisoners is immediate. Fitz gives him a covert look and lowers her eyes. Her facial glow grows brighter. Sorry, she said in a low voice. Thank you, Vanto said. And if you think Lieutenant Thrawn is wasting time with excuses, you're badly mistaken. Lieutenant? Another moment, Thrawn said. Look, Lieutenant, Fitz began. He said, wait, Vanto said. For what? Fitz clenches her teeth, then forces them to relax. What are we waiting for? For Signy and the others to reboard the Dromitar and jump to light speed, Thrawn said. I'm counting out the estimated time now. You want him to get away with our ship? Be quiet, Captain, Vanto said. But... I said, quiet, Vanto repeated. Again, his voice remained steady and controlled. But the purpose and confidence again quiet Fitz's protest. I won't ask again. The cage fell silent. Thrawn continued to count. And then... It was time. Teglanio, are you familiar with the control electronics for a ship of this sort? He asked. Not this type specifically, sir, Lanio said. She peers through the metal bars at the entrance to the cargo bay. But I looked at the engine control layout on our way through, and it seemed pretty standard. What do you need me to do? If we isolate the bridge, can we fly the ship from here? A murmur passes among the prisoners. Probably, Lanio said. Ensign Barlin? I think we can do it, Lieutenant. Barlin agreed. It'll take some quick rewiring, though. If the pirates are fast enough, they may be able to disable some of the circuits before we can override them. I think we can keep them occupied, Thrawn said. Sounds great, Captain Fitz said. Except that the circuits are out there, and we're in here. I'm guessing not much longer, Captain, Vanto said. Lieutenant, do you need us to give you room? Not at all, Ensign. Thrawn removed his insignia plaque. 
You asked me once what I would do with the spare plaque Commandant Deanlark gave me at the Academy. Fantail leans closer, frowning. He studies the insignia plaque and the electronic components and micro-switches partially visible from the back. His frown clears. That's a beck and call, isn't it? It is, Thrawn said. Wait a second, Fitz said. Are you saying that your ship is close enough to call? No, that doesn't make any sense. Our ship is long gone, Vanto said. He smiles. But that's not what he's calling. Then what? Fitz demanded. Five seconds later, she received her answer. Clone Wars-era hollows showing buzz droid attacks on Republic starfighters were impressive enough. But such combat had taken place in the vacuum of space, with only faint sounds recorded via metal conduction. The droid now cutting and grinding its way through the cargo bay bulkhead toward them was far louder than Thrawn had expected. Move back, he called over the noise, as the edges of the blades, the points of the drill, and the brilliant blade of the plasma torch appeared through the bulkhead metal. Once the droid made it through, the only thing between it and the beck and call would be the cage itself. The timing would be critical to allow it to cut through the bars, but not continue toward the remote and the one who held it. The droid emerged through the bulkhead, throwing off a few final shards of metal. It continued its interrupted vector across the bay, closing into its spear shape as it flew. It struck the cage and popped open again, its hook appendages gripping one bar as the circular saw and torch attacked two of the others. A meter-long section of one of the bars sliced through, clattered to the deck, and the blade moved on to the next bar. This is going to take too long, Vanto warned. Thrawn had already estimated the droid's progress. Vanto was correct. Agreed, Thrawn said. He took two steps to his right, moving the beck and call to the far side of the cage door. The droid shifted toward him. Thrawn repositioned the beck and call, bringing the droid directly onto the door. One final adjustment and the droid's saw began eating into the lock mechanism. Thrawn looked at the entrance to the bay. Within a few more seconds, the pirates in this section of the ship would surely come to investigate. He looked back at the cage door, again gauging the droid's progress. The timing would be close. Look out! One of the prisoners shouted. Three pirates appeared abruptly through the hatchway. Their pace falters, their eyes widening and their mouths dropping open as they see the buzz droid eating through the cage. A second later, they recovered from their surprise and reached for their blasters, their hands fumbling slightly with the last remnants of their shock. Their expressions change from surprise to anger. Thrawn reached through the bars of the cage and flipped the beck and call over their heads to land on the engine room deck behind them. Instantly, the buzz droid closed down its cutting instruments, unhooked itself from the cage, and shot across the bay toward the pirates. The pirates' eyes again widened. Their blasters had been lining up on the prisoners. Now they turned the weapons instead toward the approaching droid and fired. 
even with a dunium inner shell, the buzz droid's inner mechanism was vulnerable to blaster fire. But the outer spherical shell was much stronger. All three of the pirates' shots struck, but none made it through. The pirates fired again, all three shots missing. Two of the men hurled themselves to the deck, attempting to evade the droid's approach. The third was too slow, and was struck a glancing blow that sent him spinning. Beside Thrawn, Jakeeb stepped forward, grabbed the top bars of the cage, and slammed the soles of both feet against the door. The remaining undamaged part of the lock mechanism snapped with the impact. Jakeeb dropped back to the floor and ducked out of the cage. Barlin, Lanio, and the rest of the prisoners were right behind them. There was a brief melee of combat. When it ended, all three pirates had been reduced to unconsciousness. Well done, Thrawn said. Ensign Vonto, Tech Jakeeb, Captain Fitz, take their blasters and guard the access to this section. Ensign Barlin and Tech Lanio, the control system. Yes, sir, Barlin said. She hurried toward the control boards, Lanio and three of the Dromedar's crew behind him. We'll need more weapons if we're going to make a stand, Captain Fitz said. They will most likely be unnecessary, Thrawn said. The pirates still forward of the entrance hatch will not be joining us. What's going to stop them? Fitz asked. The internal hatch safety interlocks, Thrawn said. He pointed forward toward the flashing red lights in the distance. Even now, the entrance chamber and a midship section of the ship have been opened to vacuum. What? Fitz asked. Her muscles tense with surprise and puzzlement. How in the world? Relax, Captain, Banto said. He smiles with satisfaction and grim humor. Lieutenant Thrawn is always prepared. And as it happens, he also owns a second buzz droid. Fitz is silent two seconds. Then a slow smile spreads across her face. How very unfortunate for our pirates, she said. Lieutenant Thrawn, I believe this ship is yours. What course shall we set? Chapter 9 A great tactician creates plans. A good tactician recognizes the soundness of a plan presented to him. A fair tactician must see the plan succeed before offering approval. Those with no tactical ability at all may never understand or accept it nor will such people understand or accept the tactician. To those without that ability, those who possess it are a mystery. And when a mind is too deficient in understanding, the resulting gap is often filled with resentment. Let me get this straight, Captain Rossi growled, peering up at Thrawn and Eli. You're saying you let yourself be captured? Yes, ma'am, Thrawn said. It seemed the simplest way to find and rescue the Dromedar's crew. Damn stupid risk, Rossi said flatly. 
Especially when you didn't even know if they were still alive. I thought the chances were good that they were, ma'am, Thrawn said. Signy is not a malicious or casual killer. If he were, he would have simply shot the three of us once Ensign Barlin unlocked the hyperdrive. Our backs were to him, and he had a clear shot. Which makes two stupid risks, Rossi said. And not just of your own life, but also those of my crew! It was not a serious risk, Thrawn said. I was watching his reflection in the Tabana cylinders. If he had prepared to shoot, I would have noted the change in his stance in time to stop him. Rossi gave a snort. <laughs> you have an answer for everything, don't you? Part of my job is to anticipate the actions of our enemies. Rossi threw a look at Eli, as if daring him to say something. But Eli knew better. He'd seen the captain in this mood, and knew she was itching to find something she could throw back in Thrawn's face. Only in this case, she was out of luck. Thrawn had outmaneuvered Signy, he'd outmaneuvered the pirates, and he would outmaneuver Rossi, too. Sounds more like dumb luck than sound planning, the captain said, shifting her glare back to Thrawn and turning up the intensity a couple of notches. There's no way you could have known Signy wasn't exactly who he claimed until he pulled that blaster. On the contrary, ma'am. I knew he was a plant from the very beginning, Thrawn said calmly. His clothing was covered with dust, indicating he had been in the area of the Tabana cylinders and the engine room. A member of the crew would have warned us about the supposed reactor leak as soon as he realized we weren't pirates. Yet he didn't. Eli winced. He'd missed that one completely. Big mistake on his part. More of a calculated risk, Thrawn said. He knew there was a danger that someone would notice the lapse. But he also knew that if he drew our attention to the leak, we might wonder why he had mentioned that one specific danger. That might cause us to examine the reactor compartment more closely, which he could not afford. Because if we had, we'd have walked in on the rest of the pirates, Eli said, nodding. That would still have led to our capture, as they outnumbered us significantly, Thrawn said. But Signy would then have lost the chance to restart the hyperdrive and take the Tabana, which was his primary objective. Unless he forced Barlin and Lanio to do it at Blaster Point, Eli said, a shiver running up his back. Signy might have some moral limits, but Eli wouldn't put a bent credit on finding any such ethical standards in Angel or the rest of the pirates. He would not have succeeded. Maybe, maybe not, Rossi said. Which brings us to your sense of priorities. Ma'am? You had a decision to make, Lieutenant, Rossi said. The Dromadar and its cargo, or the pirate frigate and the Dromadar's crew. You chose the latter. She shook her head. Wrong choice. Thrawn's eyes flicked to Eli. We saved the crew, ma'am, he said, sounding as confused as Eli had ever seen him. And captured several pirates and their ship. None of which stacks up against even one tank of Tabana gas, let alone twenty, 
Rossi said bluntly. I'm waiting for a ruling from Coruscant, but until they send one, I have no choice but to suspend you from duty. Eli caught his breath. Ma'am, you're... He broke off as Rossi shifted her glare to him. You have something to say, Ensign? He does not, Thrawn said, throwing a warning look at Eli. I presume I will be left behind on Ancien while you continue your patrol? Yes, Rossi said, looking extra annoyed at the fact that she hadn't gotten to deliver that bit of the message herself. Whether you're confined to quarters will be up to Admiral Wiscovis. Dismissed! Eli clenched his teeth. This was completely unfair. He opened his mouth to say so. Rossi got there first. One word out of you, Ensign, she warned, and you'll stay here with him. That won't be necessary, Captain, Thrawn said. I am certain Ensign Vanto will be of great value to you on the remainder of your patrol. Are you now? Rossi said. On second thought, I can hardly deprive my special duty lieutenant of his aid. Now can I? Congratulations, Vanto. You've just been assigned shore leave. Extended shore leave. Eli felt his stomach knot. What the hell? Barlin will fly you down to the base, Rossi said. Her eyes were still on Eli, as if she still expected some comment or protest. Again, Eli knew better. I'll tell Wiscovis to expect you. Dismissed! They left the office, Thrawn silent, Eli silently seething. What had that been all about? Because it had been deliberate. Rossi might not realize it. But then she hadn't spent as much time with Thrawn as Eli had. To Eli, the signs had been clear as day. The Chiss had deliberately maneuvered the captain into kicking Eli off the blood crow along with him. But why? Why would he do that? Had he manipulated Rossi just for the fun or challenge of it? Or was there something else going on behind Thrawn's glowing red eyes? Could it be that he was so afraid of losing his aid that he didn't dare let Rossi or anyone else aboard the Blood Crow see what Eli could actually do? To be honest, Eli had only a vague idea himself what that could be. He was good with numbers and supply figures. Hell, he was extremely good with them. But whether he could show any of that talent during the presumably brief time he would be out from under Thrawn's shadow was questionable at best. My apologies, Ensign Vanto, Thrawn said quietly into Eli's tangled thoughts. I realize you wish to return to the Blood Crow. Under normal circumstances, I would have been pleased to allow you to show Captain Rossi and the others the depth and range of your abilities. But conditions here are not normal. Are conditions ever normal in the Imperial Navy, sir? Eli growled. Still, he could feel curiosity stirring through his resentment. There was an intensity in Thrawn's tone that was oddly contagious. What's particularly abnormal about this one? Captain Rossi is correct. The Tabanagas is of great value, and therefore of great interest, Thrawn said. 
If we are to find the dromedar before the cylinders are removed, we must move quickly. I heard the ISB is sending an interrogator, Eli said, his stomach tightening in distaste. The Imperial Security Bureau was a necessary part of keeping order, but it sometimes seemed to go out of its way to be disliked, mistrusted, and feared. I doubt the pirates will have many secrets left after he's done with them. That is indeed the ISB's reputation, Thrawn said. But the interrogator might not arrive in time, or may not extract the necessary information quickly enough. Remember, we have only four days before Angel will notice his ship's failure to reappear and become suspicious. Or at least get mad, Eli frowned sideways at Thrawn, as it suddenly hit him. You're going to interrogate them? Assuming I can persuade Admiral Wiscovis to permit me, Thrawn said. Tell me, what do we already know? Eli waved a hand. Pretty much nothing. Thrawn remained silent. Eli clenched his teeth. Fine, he said with a sigh. Another game that Thrawn was very good at. We know they were six days away from the rendezvous, including a stop to drop us and the other prisoners somewhere. As you said, that leaves us four days to get wherever they were going. But we don't even know which direction to look. We have captured the sensor data from the pirate ship, Thrawn reminded him. Eli shook his head. You can't tell from the departure vector where a ship is going. True, Thrawn said. But it would have been inefficient to leave in the entirely opposite direction. Especially as they know they have limited time before the Dromedar's disappearance becomes general knowledge. We may therefore make an initial assumption that their destination is within a cone of no more than ninety degrees centered around their departure vector. Eli pursed his lips. And that cone covered their current location at Ancien so at least getting to Signy's destination in four days wasn't completely out of the question. Wherever there was, on that they still didn't have a clue. What else do we know? Thrawn pressed. What did Angel call their rendezvous? Eli had to search his memory. He called it the Trapo, he said. I presume you've already looked for a planet by that name? Yes. Thrawn said. There is no planet or major city listed in the registry, but note that he called it the Trapo, not simply Trapo. That may imply a colloquial or slang term. A term for what? I do not yet know, Thrawn said. But I believe that with the right questions, we may learn that. What else do we know? Eli shrugged. We have the faces of our prisoners. But even if they haven't altered or deleted their data files, and a lot of criminals do exactly that, it would take days or weeks to sort through all the planetary records and figure out who they are. We may also have the pirates' own name for themselves, Thrawn pointed out. Do you remember? I asked you about it at the time. You mean Q-loss? Eli asked, frowning. I thought that was just some slang word. I believe it is more than that, Thrawn said. Angel reacted too strongly to my interest in the word 
for it to have been innocent or harmless. I didn't notice any reaction. It was somewhat subtle. I'll take your word for it, Eli said, starting to feel some cautious excitement. A mid-rim base like Ancien might not have complete files on the Empire citizens, but it should have a list of the major criminal organizations within its jurisdiction. Have you looked them up? I have, Thrawn said. There is nothing listed under that name. Oh, Eli said, feeling his excitement fade. But there are several possible connections I may be able to exploit, Thrawn continued. We shall see once I am able to speak with them. So what do you want me to do? Eli asked. I assume you've maneuvered Rossi into leaving me here for a reason. Two reasons, Thrawn said. I need you to monitor my interrogation. There may be a point where you will be uniquely useful. All right, Eli said, wondering what Thrawn could possibly mean by that. Uniquely useful wasn't a term anyone had ever applied to him. And the second reason? Thrawn was silent a moment. For what I am planning, I may need a witness, he said quietly. You, Ensign Vanto, will be that witness. The three pirates are expressionless as they walk into their side of the interrogation room in single file. Each looks around the room as he enters, noting the gray metal walls, ceiling, and floor. Each also quickly spots the interrogation desk beyond the transparent barrier that bisects the room. Thrawn waited until they were seated. Then he touched the intercom control set into his desk. On both sides of the barrier, indicator lights blinked on. Good evening, he said, speaking toward the microphone. I am Lieutenant Thrawn. None of the three speak in response, but their facial heat increases. The muscles in their cheeks and throats and around their eyes shift between sullenness and hostility. The larger body muscles beneath their prison clothing twitch and tighten in distinct patterns. You are no doubt wondering why you are here, Thrawn continued. I wish to offer you a deal. Their facial glows briefly intensify, then fade to their previous levels. You don't believe me, of course, Thrawn said, but it is true. We have a saying, grasp the useful, let the useless fly. You three are the useless. And you can go plop yourself straight back to Pantora, the tallest of the three retorted. There is a distinctive twang to his voice, a twang that had become apparent during the passage to Ancien. It is not identical to Vanto's accent, but with strong similarities likely indicating similar wild space routes. If you came here to insult us, you're wasting your time. I intended no insults, Thrawn said. On the contrary, I am impressed that successors of the Pirate Queen Ka'ana still operate throughout the galaxy. The pirate's facial heat increases dramatically. Their eyes widen 
their throat muscles stiffen. They immediately try to hide their reactions, but they are only partially successful. And it is already too late. You surely did not believe that you were unnoticed, Thrawn continued. Indeed, Grand Moff Tarkin has long noted that remnants of Ka'ana's marauders had escaped their captain's fate. I have been in contact with Tarkin, and he has expressed a desire to come to Ancyon and deal personally with this last trace of his old enemy. We have no idea what you're talking about, the pirate spokesman said. A brave but useless bluff, Thrawn said. However, as I stated, I would prefer to trade you for your leader. Grand Moff Tarkin might not agree, but I am here, and he is not. The true irony is that your leader, Angel, holds much the same philosophy as I do. What do you mean? You surely noted which of your colleagues were selected to travel with him to Signy's rendezvous, Thrawn said. More important, you surely noted which of you were not chosen. You and the remainder who were left to die. One of the pirates looks at their spokesman. His expression tense. The spokesman ignores him, but his own facial glow intensifies. From both short-term and long-term perspectives, it was a reasonable decision, Thrawn continued. In the short term, Angel loses several experienced crew. But your capture and interrogation gain him additional time to remove the Tabana cylinders from the Dromedar. In the long term, he pairs away those he deems no longer useful to his goals. And the Marauder? The spokesman shot back. Sorry, Blueface. But Angel's not stupid enough to dump a perfectly good frigate for nothing. As I said, long-term perspective, Thrawn replied. Now they had the pirate ship's name. Signy has demonstrated the efficiency of his more subtle approach to ship capture. He has no doubt persuaded Angel that the Dromedar will serve him better than the Marauder. Certainly a freighter permits a more stealthy approach to its victims than an armed frigate. On the desk, his datapad lit up with a message. Frigate Marauder linked to five hijackings under ID code Elegens Hope. Especially one that has come under as much scrutiny as Elegens Hope. He added. You're talking Parth spit. The pirate spokesman's voice is low and contemptuous. I applaud your tenacity, Thrawn said, but surely you can see it is of no value. I already know too much for you to save yourselves. And once Tarkin arrives, we will know everything. Unless you choose to accept my offer, you are lost. The three pirates look urgently at one another. Let's hear the deal, the spokesman said. I will give you and your fellow prisoners a civilian transport, Thrawn said. It is partially derelict, but it should safely convey you from this sector before requiring repairs. In return, 
You will identify the system where Signy and Angel have taken the Dromedar to remove the Tabana. What guarantee do we have that you won't take the information and turn us over to Tarkin anyway? I offer my word, Thrawn said. I also offer simple logic. You three are too young to have been any of Ka'ana's original pirates. Tarkin's lingering vengeance will not therefore be directed specifically toward you. More important, I know Tarkin. He will take extra pleasure in the fact that Angel will know you were freed as a reward for betraying him. You can't know Tarkin very well if you think he ever shows mercy to anyone. Precisely, Thrawn said. His reputation does not permit such actions. That is why I will release you on my own initiative. He will thus be able to take full pleasure in delivering the news to Angel without the need to make the decision himself. He paused. The pirates did not speak. That is my offer, Thrawn said. I will wait while you discuss it among yourselves. He touched the intercom switch again, and the indicator lights went out. The pirates weren't fooled. They had probably been interrogated in such places before, and knew that the intercom remained live despite the evidence of the indicators. Thrawn had played all his cards, but the pirates had a card of their own to play. Leaning close, they began speaking softly together in a language they would have learned growing up in wild space. A language that was used only there and in the unknown regions. A language that had never been programmed into Republic or Imperial translators or protocol droids. A language they could reasonably expect no Imperial had ever even heard of. Cybisti. What do you think? The spokesman asked the others. You think we can trust them? He's an Imperial, the second scoffed. Of course not. Who cares? The third retorted. You heard him. Tarkin's coming. The spokesman snorts. You listen too much to Angel's ghost stories. Even Tarkin can't be that bad. No. How come Angel keeps telling the stories? I tell you, Tarkin's pure evil. Speaking of evil, the second man said, What do you think Angel's going to do if he finds out we sold him to Blueface? Good point, the spokesman said. Maybe we can have this both ways. Let's take the offer, spin Blueface some froth, then hightail it to the Trapo and warn Angel. If we're fast enough, we should be able to get there before Tarkin or even Blueface can chase us down. Unless they've already cracked the static lock, the third man warned. Then we'd get there just in time for our ship to fall apart and leave us stuck until Tarkin catches up with us. You think they're gonna find an ub-dub squash who can do slice work like that? The spokesman countered, his voice heavy with contempt. Not a chance. Angel's gonna have to bring in someone from outside. Maybe Signy already did. Signy was supposed to get the static lock off before we ever came aboard, 
the spokesman said. Don't worry. We've got plenty of time to get there. Then let's take the offer, the second man said. Give him, I don't know, give him something and get the hell out of here. Before Tarkin gets here, the spokesman suggested. Go ahead and laugh, the third man growled. I'm not. Fine. The spokesman looked up at Thrawn and lifted his hand. Hey, he called in basic. You, Imperial. Thrawn tapped the intercom switch. Have you made a decision? We'll take your offer, the spokesman said. Angel and Signy went to Carthurston on a planet named Kytum. Need coordinates? Thank you. We can find it. Thrawn assured him. Anything else? Just that you better hurry if you're going to catch them, the spokesman warned. They won't be there any longer than they have to. I agree, Thrawn said. Thank you for your cooperation. The guards waiting outside will escort you to your new transport. And the rest of the crew? The spokesman asked. Your companions are already on their way, Thrawn said. One more thing. You have been given a second chance. I suggest you use it to remake your lives for the better. No need to preach, brother, the spokesman said as they rose from their chairs. Trust me, you'll never hear from us again. They filed out. Thrawn watched them leave, and as the door closed behind them, he stood and faced the door, exiting his side of the room. It slid open to reveal Vanto and Admiral Wiscovis. Admiral? Lieutenant, Wiscovis nodded in return. That was about as impressive a performance as I've ever seen. Thank you, sir, Thrawn said. Do we have it? We do. Vanto said with satisfaction. Uba, in Barsa Sector. It's a nice quiet place to park a freighter for a while. It's the right distance from where they nabbed the Dromedar, and the insulting slang term for it is Ubdub. Squalsh is also the local slang term for the inhabitants, who are not generally considered technological geniuses. He smiled tightly. And there are a bunch of major merchant centers on the northern continent which local slang refers to as trading posts, or for short, trepos. We have it all right, Wiscovis agreed. Not that I have the slightest idea why we have it. How did you know this group used to work with Ka'ana? I did not know for certain, Thrawn said. It was only a guess, based on their name. What name? Vanto asked. He frowns in confusion. Angel? Kulos, Thrawn said. The name Angel gave their group. I heard that as Q-less, or a group without a Q. After we arrived, while we were waiting for Captain Rossi to return, I did a search of known criminal groups. There were a number that included a Q reference, but Ka'ana's marauders seemed the most likely to have their resources, the history, and the contacts to deal with the stolen Tabanagas. Seems like kind of a long shot. It was, 
Thrawn agreed. But Keana used to sign her thefts with a coded reference to her name. It seemed reasonable that the remnant of her gang would also enjoy leaving such clues. Still a long shot. Wiskovis shakes his head. What if you'd been wrong? There would have been no loss, Thrawn said. The ISB interrogator would have arrived, and the questioning would have proceeded on schedule. All would have been as if I had not made an attempt. Except you wouldn't have left yourself wide open to a court-martial, Wiskobis said. His voice is grim. I should at least release the transport myself. I cannot allow you to do that, Thrawn said. Excuse me? Wiskovis draws himself up stiffly. His expression hardens, his throat muscles tightening. Vanto's expression holds sudden discomfort. You can't let me do that. I think what Lieutenant Thrawn meant, sir, is that he strongly urges you to remain as far outside the situation as possible. Vanto put in quickly. I believe his goal is to bring any blowback on himself, leaving everyone else out of it. Very noble, Wiskovis said. His expression is still stiff and angry. And if I choose to do otherwise, this is my base, Lieutenant. What happens here is ultimately my responsibility. True, Thrawn acknowledged. But there is still much that can go wrong, and the balance of success and failure is still undetermined. I would not wish you to bear any blame for my plan and actions. Or accept any acclaim for its success? Vanto winces. I don't think that's what Lieutenant Thrawn meant, sir, he said. Well, then maybe I should hear that from the Lieutenant himself. Wiskovis said. If this succeeds, I would of course freely acknowledge your support, Thrawn said. But if it fails, be advised that when I am brought before court-martial, Ensign Vanto will testify that I acted alone. Excuse me, Wiskovis said again. His eyes widen as he looks at Vanto. His facial heat increases, and the muscles in his cheeks tighten. Did he just say you were prepared to commit perjury, Ensign? Yes, sir. He did, Vanto said. The tension in his voice increases, his expression showing extreme discomfort. As I said, his goal is to protect you and your career from whatever comes of this. For three seconds, Wiskovis remains silent. There is no easing of his tension and anger. This discussion is not over, he said at last. But right now we have work to do. When do you want me to send a force to Uba? You should wait until the released prisoners have made the jump to light speed, Thrawn said. We do not want them noting the preparations and becoming suspicious. You should also contact the ISB agent and alert him to reroute his ship to Uber. And then? Lieutenant Thrawn only promised to let them go, Vanto said. His tension also is not eased. He never said we wouldn't recapture them if they went to Uber. Fine, 
Wiscovis said. Anything else? I would also suggest you send a force to the other site they mentioned. The city Carthurston, on Kytum. I thought they just said that to throw us off track. That was certainly its primary purpose, Thrawn said. But the name came too quickly and too easily. We may find that Kytum was where the Dromedar's crew was to be released. And Signy said his people would be watching, Vento said. Yes, Thrawn said. It may be possible to learn who exactly his people are. If we can catch them. Wiscovis started to turn back to the doorway, then paused. You didn't really contact Grand Moff Tarkin, did you? No, Thrawn said. I've never met the man. Probably a good thing, Wiscovis said. And if this is the way you talk to superiors, Lieutenant, you'd better hope you never do. Come on, we have some pirates to capture. Chapter 10 One whose path has taken a new turn is often initially disoriented. But as time passes, and the path continues steadily in its new direction, there is a tendency to believe that it will remain so forever, with no further turns. Nothing is further from the truth. A path once bent is always susceptible to new changes, particularly when the original change came from manipulation by an outside force. So, Juahir Madras said, taking a careful sip of the calf Arinda had poured for her. Are you going to Core Square for the weekend? Or are you going to be a stickly and just hang out and bash? Probably a stickly, Arinda said regretfully, sniffing at her own mug. Juahir liked her calf much hotter than Arinda did, so that was how she always prepared it when her friend dropped into the office. Easier to let hers cool than watch Juahir trying not to complain about the tepidness of her own drink. Core Square is awfully expensive. That it is, Juahir agreed soberly. I thought you used to sleep in your airspeeder when you went there. That was before Wapsburg got caught doing spice in a public parking area, Orinda reminded her. After that... Ranking banned us from sleeping or living in any of his vehicles. I didn't realize it was a complete ban, Juahir said. I thought he just wanted his people not to get caught doing anything illegal or embarrassing. Arinda shrugged. A complete ban is always easier. And more brainless, Juahir said. And you can't stay in his main office? The office sleeps ten if you push it, Arinda said. I'm currently number 18 on the waiting list, so no. Ah, Juahir said again. Well, Ascension Week's kind of a big deal. Orinda nodded, sniffing again at her calf. A big deal for the average Coruscant resident, but even more of a big deal for the political elite. Grand events like this were the perfect screen for the high and powerful to mingle with one another and Ascension Week was the ultimate in such things. 
The week-long festivities that climaxed in Empire Day drew swarms of people to the center of imperial society as politicians made quiet contacts and deals without the obviousness of going to one another's offices or the less obvious but theoretically traceable route of calm calls. A million people and a million possibilities, and Dorinda had worked very hard to take full advantage of both. She'd started small, making conversation with other senatorial aides and assistants. But over the last couple of festivals, she'd also made contact with a low-level journalist and the office manager from one of the mid-rim moths. This year, she'd hoped to leverage both of those one step up to their respective bosses. Now, with Ranking's new ban on what his staff had jokingly referred to as portable housing, it looked like that wasn't going to happen. And she couldn't help but wonder how much of the ban had been Wapsper's indiscretion, and how much was Rankings finally noticing Arinda's own political machinations and taking steps to block them. Though to be honest, she had to admit that it was highly unlikely. But then, so much on Coruscant tended toward the unlikely. Her work at Rankings' citizen assistance office in Bartanish 4 known universally to its inhabitants as Bash 4, had started off a little rocky. The mostly working-class population was very much in the same mold as the miners of Lothal, but even with such commonplace people, her outer rim accent and lack of Coruscant breeding had opened her up to both amusement and contempt. But Arinda had kept at it, and slowly she'd gained their acceptance and trust. And most unlikely of all, along the way, she'd even made a genuine friend. So I guess we're going to have to do something about that, Juahir said. She took another sip, then set down her mug. Okay, I concede. It is possible to make this stuff too hot. Told you, Orinda said, smiling. She'd been in Bash 4 over a year, and was just starting to win over the populace when Juahir had come in asking for help finding an apartment. Orinda had located one in her own building, and later that week had helped carry in her meager collection of belongings. Juahir had thanked her with dinner at an incredible little blink-and-miss-it restaurant Orinda hadn't even known existed, and from then on, they'd been inseparable. Not worth stressing about. There will be celebrations here, too, you know. Juahir burbled a rude sound through her lips. <laughs> right. Bash 4's Empire Day festivities? Ten minutes worth of fireworks, two minutes of which are duds from last year, and three minutes of all the airspeeders honking their horns. Listen to Palpatine's pre-recorded speech, two more minutes of honking, and everyone goes home. Big whoop. She shook her head. It's too bad you don't have a friend who has a friend who has an apartment within view of the Imperial Palace. Arinda gave a little snort. <laughs> if you mean Senator Ranking... Oh, wait. Juahir interrupted, brightening. That's right. You do. She pointed a finger at herself. Me. What in the world are you talking about? Arinda asked, frowning. I'm talking about Core Square, 
Juahir said, clearly enjoying herself immensely. I know a guy who just snagged a place in Sestra Towers. Sestra Towers? Arinda gasped. Sestra was a luxury apartment complex, close enough to the center of Federal District that it was visible from Ranking's main office. You're joking. Nope, Juahir assured her. It'll be a little cozy, but we can fit you in. You're serious? Arinda said, almost not daring to believe it. You sure your friend won't mind? Already cleared it with him, Juahir said. There's one catch, though. She leveled a finger at Arinda. We'll be responsible for transportation and lodging. You'll be responsible for getting us into at least one exclusive party or reception. Deal? Deal, Arinda said, smiling back. Not a problem. I can get up to two other guests in on my senator's aid pass. No, 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 Juahir chided. You never tell the crowd how the trick is done. So, can you sneak out a little early? Sure. Arinda checked her chrono. As boss of this office, I'm giving myself the rest of the day off. I wish I had friends in high places. You do. Sestra Towers. And don't you forget it, Juahir said. How long will it take you to pack a bag? Five minutes, Arinda promised, shutting down her computer and keying for messages to forward to her calm. Come on, I'll drive us over. You can get your bag while I pack, and we'll meet back at my airspeeder. I said I'd provide transportation, Juahir reminded her. I know, Arinda said. I've also seen your airspeeder. We're taking mine. The Federal District, known informally as the core of Coruscant, or even more informally, Core Square, was the undisputed center of the galaxy, both politically and socially. The Senate was there, as were the Imperial Palace, all the major ministries, and the combined headquarters of the Army and the Imperial Navy. The elite of the Empire lived and worked here. So did those who had ambitions of joining that noble society, as well as those who carried out the elite's will. So, what's your excuse? Orinda asked Driller Mardap as they rode the crowded Airbus toward the Alessandre Hotel. She means, how did you score an apartment here? Juahir translated. As in, whose pet Tuca did you have to feed, walk, and polish? Oh, is that what she meant? <laughs> Driller asked, grinning. He grinned a lot, Orinda had noticed in the brief time she'd known him. Fortunately, he had the teeth and dimples for it. Sorry to disappoint you, but no Tuca was involved. I happen to have an uncle who's a senior staff officer at Royal Imperial, and who happens to be off-planet for three months. Being as I'm his favorite nephew... Translation, he's the nephew who got in his bid before any of the other relatives did. Juahir interjected. Favorite nephew of all those who asked him. Driller amended dryly. I got to move in. So what are you doing? Arinda asked. Work-wise, I mean. Nothing fancy, I'm afraid. 
I'm with an advocacy group that petitions senators and ministers on behalf of ordinary citizens. Ah, Orinda said, mentally crossing him off her checklist. Advocacy groups sometimes had access to the powerful, but they had no power of their own. Nothing there for her to cultivate. Sounds a lot like what Arinda does in Bash 4, Juahir said. Pretty similar, yes, Driller said. Except that you're handling local people and problems, while we speak on behalf of people from other planets. Sometimes on behalf of the whole planet, in fact. I thought that was what senators were supposed to do, Arinda said. Emphasis on the supposed to part, Driller said. Oh, I'm sorry. That sounded nastier than I meant it to. You know better than anyone how easy it is for someone to fall through the cracks. That's our job. Filling in cracks. Sounds so exciting when you put it that way, Juahir said. So, any idea which of these parties the Emperor is supposed to be hosting? I'm not sure he's going to host any of them, Orinda said. That rumor goes around every year. She squinted toward the hotel they were rapidly approaching. I don't see any Imperial Guards anywhere, so if it's happening, it's not happening here. That's okay, Juahir said. We're going to hit a lot more parties before the week's up, right? As many as you can handle, Orinda promised. Or at least until we get thrown out. Hey, that can be fun too. The Alessandre's Grand Ballroom was supposed to be one of the biggest in Core Square, with a cluster of smaller rooms surrounding it. The arrangement made it ideal for both large gatherings and the smaller, more intimate get-togethers that inevitably spun off from big crowds. The security men at the door gave Orinda's ID a good, hard look, and gave Juahir and Driller even harder ones, but passed all three of them without comment. Wow! Juahir breathed, looked around as Arinda led the way through the meandering flow of people. I feel very underdressed. You're the guest of a lowly senator's aide, Arinda reminded her. You're not expected to have a thousand credit gown. I'm sure there are plenty of us around, Driller added. You just can't see them for the glare of the gems from everyone else. So, who exactly is here, Arinda? It's a pretty fair mix, Orinda said, studying the little conversational knots that had formed amid the eddies and flows of partygoers. Over there are the governors of a couple of the minor core worlds. There's a mid-rim moth over there, and I see at least six or seven senators. And you know all of them? Driller asked. Can you introduce me? I don't really know them, but I've met a lot of them, Orinda said though she'd certainly been trying to know most of them better. Senator Ranking sometimes sends me out to deliver confidential data cards when I'm here in Core Square. So that's where you disappear to all the time, Juahir commented. It's hardly all the time, Orinda corrected her severely. Maybe four days a month if I'm lucky. Yeah, but for every one of those days, I get 20 calls wondering why you're not in your office fixing someone's problem. What are they calling you for? Orinda asked, frowning. 
This was the first she'd heard about this. You don't work there. No, but a surprising number of people in our building know we're friends. Jewy here said dryly. They figure that I'm responsible for you or some such. Ridiculous, Orinda said. You're barely responsible for yourself. If you two could stop bickering for just a minute, Driller cut in. Would one of you care to explain that? Orinda followed his pointing finger. Across the room was another conversation knot, this one consisting of just four people, but they were definitely an eye-catching group. One of them was a white-haired man with a matching mustache, wearing the white tunic and insignia plaque of an ISB colonel. The second man had his back toward Orinda, but his formal outfit matched one owned by Senator Rankin. The third man was young and wore the uniform and plaque of a Navy ensign. And the fourth man wasn't a man at all. He was human-shaped and had human features, but his skin was blue. His hair was blue-black and his eyes were glowing red. And his insignia plaque identified him as a senior lieutenant. I've never seen anything like that before. Driller continued. What is he? Some kind of Pantoran with an eye condition? Now that's just rude, Juahir chided him. But she was staring at the strange being just as hard as he was. Arinda, any ideas? Sure, Arinda said. Let's go over and ask. Juahir's gasp was audible even over the hum of conversation filling the ballroom. You're kidding. Not at all, Orinda said. Actually, I think that's Senator Ranking, so I can just pretend I was checking in to see if he needed anything. I thought you were off duty. Senator's aides are never off duty, Orinda said. Come on. And if it wasn't Ranking, she decided, his outfit tagged him as someone of similar status. Easy enough to flip a humorous case of mistaken identity into a new contact among the elite. The contingency plan proved unnecessary. The man was, in fact, Senator Rankin. The first thing Arinda had learned as his aide was to never interrupt a conversation. The second thing she'd learned was how to edge herself into those conversations. In this case, the best approach was to position herself at a discreet distance outside the group, but inside the edge of the senator's peripheral vision. Eventually, she knew, he would notice her. In this instance, the wait was barely ten seconds. Ah, Arinda, Ranking said, interrupting himself and holding out an inviting hand. I was hoping to run into you. Your calm said you were here, but I didn't want to interrupt you with a call unless I had to. Not a problem, Senator, Orinda said. What can I do for you? I need a favor. Ranking half-turned to the other three people. But I'm forgetting my manners. Colonel, Lieutenant, Ensign, this is Orinda Price, one of my aides. Miss Price, this is Colonel Wolf Ularin of the Imperial Security Bureau. Senior Lieutenant Thrawn, a rising star in the Navy, and Ensign Eli Vanto, 
the lieutenant's aide and translator. Honored, noble sirs, Orinda said, bowing respectfully. Colonel Ularan was just telling me about an intriguing operation the lieutenant and Ensign were recently involved with out in the mid-rim, Rankin continued. Really? Orinda said, putting some fascination, most of it genuine, into her voice. The elite loved to hear themselves talk, but most of the time their stories were worth listening to. Really? Ularan confirmed his eyes flickering over her shoulder to Juahir and Driller, probably making sure they were out of eavesdropping range. The lieutenant more or less single-handedly captured a pirate ship and most of its crew, and saved a valuable shipment of Tabana gas on top of it. It was hardly single-handed, Colonel, the non-human said. His voice was calm and respectful, with a quiet underpinning of confidence and intelligence. You had only four crew with you, including Ensign Vanto, Yularen said. I call that close enough to single-handed. What do you say, Ensign? Was I overstating the case? Not at all, sir, Ensign Vanto said politely. He looked and sounded a little pained, as if he had no idea what he was doing here and just wanted to go home. Which, from his distinctive accent, Arinda guessed to be somewhere in the Outer Rim, or even Wild Space, which likely made his forced presence here among the elite even more awkward and uncomfortable. Arinda herself had worked very hard to get rid of her own Outer Rim accent, but she still felt self-conscious about her roots. Ensign Vanto is perhaps too modest about his and the others' contributions, Thrawn said. But what matters is the result. Well, however it untangles, congratulations to you both, Ranking said. I presume you're here on Coruscant for commendation? He raised his eyebrows. Or promotions? Not exactly, Yularen said. There's some additional data work, shall we say, that needs to be looked at. How serious are we talking? Ranking asked, eyeing Thrawn. Serious enough, Yularen said. But I'm not particularly worried. I was an admiral during the Clone Wars, and I still have friends in high places. And are no doubt making a few more tonight, Arinda murmured. Yularen looked at her with fresh interest. Very perceptive, Ms. Price. He complimented her. Yes, that's exactly why I'm putting the lieutenant through the Coruscant social grinder. I think he did a remarkable job, and I want to make sure as much of the Senate knows about it as possible. Well, I personally will be sure to look into the details when I get a chance, Ranking said. But right now, as I said, I need Ms. Price to run an errand for me. Arinda, I need to leave, but I also need to get a data card to Moff Gotti. You know who he is, right? Yes, sir, of course, Arinda said. Actually, she'd made quite a few private deliveries to Gotti over the past two years. Gotti was always too busy to talk to her during those visits, but she'd always made a point of engaging his reception and staff people in friendly conversation. 
This might finally be her chance to make contact with the Moth himself. Good, Ranking said. You'll need to load it into a secure data pad, download the files, then return the card to you. Understood, Orinda said. A slightly unusual procedure, but still one she'd occasionally done before. Do you want me to take it to your office when he's finished? Please, Ranking said. Just put it in the drop slot. He nodded to Yularen and the others. And now I really must take my leave. Uh, Colonel, good luck. Lieutenant and Ensign, even better luck. <laughs> he turned and began weaving his way through the crowd toward the main entrance. If you'll excuse us, Miss Price, Yularen said with a courteous bow. I have a few more people I want to introduce Senior Lieutenant Thrawn to before we head across Core Square to the next reception. Of course, Colonel, Arinda said, bowing in return. Lieutenant, Ensign. She turned and headed away, noting that Yularen and the other officers were heading toward a knot of other senators. I thought you were going to introduce us, Driller complained, as he and here came up beside her. Sorry, Arinda apologized. Wasn't really an opportunity. Next group. So, who is he? Juahir asked. And what is he? Mostly what he is, is in trouble with the High Command, Orinda said. We didn't get any further than that. Interesting, Driller said. High Command doesn't usually bother with junior officers. Wonder who's Tuka he ran over. You can ask your uncle when he gets back, Orinda said. All I know is that when someone like Colonel Yularen says additional data work, with a pause between the words, he's talking about something serious. Or more precisely, not talking about it, Driller said. Exactly, Orinda said. But that's Thrawn's problem. My problem is that I have to go to work. Yeah, we saw the handoff, Juahir said. Delivery, right? Right. And during an Ascension Week party, too? Juahir shook her head. Ranking's a slave driver. You want us to come with you? No, that's okay, Arinda said, craning her neck. She couldn't see Gotti, but if he was here, it shouldn't take long to track him down. I'll be back as quick as I can. Have fun. Enjoy yourselves. And don't get drunk on the swirly dips. Swirly dips have alcohol in them? Juahir asked, brightening. <laughs> they do here, Orinda said. Stay out of trouble, okay? Ranking had been right about seeing Gaudi earlier. With the moth's distinctive appearance, Orinda spotted him within three minutes of starting her search. So, Ranking has you working tonight, does he? Gotti asked, fingering the data card. His eyes were bright and intense. Orinda noted a little uneasily. Swirly dips are something stronger. Hopefully he was functional enough to get this over with quickly so she could get back to working the party. Yes, Your Excellency she said. 
but I'm sure he wouldn't have interrupted you if it wasn't important. And he even sent you, Gotti said, smiling crookedly. Well, come on. He turned, sending his patterned red and yellow cloak swirling through the air around him as he headed for the lifts. My secure data pads in my suite, he added as Arinda hurried to catch up. It'll just take a minute, and then you can get back to enjoying yourself. Yes, Your Excellency, Arinda said, glancing around as they worked their way through the crowd. She'd never even seen pictures of what the Alessandre suites looked like. If the ballroom was anything to go by, Gotti's suite would be well worth a quick visit. It was. Get yourself a drink if you'd like, Gotti said as he crossed the plush carpet of the main living area toward one of the side doors. The droid can fix anything you can name. Thank you, Your Excellency, Arinda said eyeing the extensive bar off to one side and the exquisitely restored classic Leisure Mech C5 bartender droid standing motionless beside it. She was tempted, but for the moment at least, she was officially on duty. Instead, she contented herself with looking at the carvings, the artwork, and the decorative panel inlays. This room alone was twice the size of her apartment, and probably cost her entire year's salary per night. I'm glad it was you he sent, Gotti called from the other room. I've seen you in my office several times over the past few months, usually playing courier. Ranking obviously has a high opinion of you. Thank you, Your Excellency. As of course do I, Gotti added. A very high opinion indeed. Tell me, have you enjoyed working for him? It's been very interesting, Arinda said, frowning. That wasn't the kind of question she was usually asked. Was Gotti just making conversation, or was something else going on? Of course, interesting, Gotti said. The most diplomatic word possible, as well as the most insipid. He stepped back into the living area, Ranking's data card in hand, and walked back across the carpet to her. Here you go, he said, handing it to her. You may take it back to him now. Thank you, Your Excellency, she said, frowning down at it. It looked like the one Ranking had given her, but at the same time, something about it seemed different. The color was right, and the senator's logo on the upper corner seemed correct. Could it be the weight? She hefted it gently, trying to decide. No, she realized suddenly. It was the logo. Senator Rankin's logo was etched into the surface of all the office's data cards, but the logo on this card was embossed rather than etched. This wasn't the same card she just handed Gotti. She looked up at the moth, to find him gazing back at her, a hard-edged half-smile on his face. Very good, Miss Price, Gotti said quietly. Too bad, really. Your Excellency? She asked carefully. 
You noticed there was something different about the data card, Gotti said. A shame. If you'd just taken it back to him, as I say, too bad. Without warning, his hand snapped out toward her. She had just enough time to see a small tube concealed in his palm as a spray of fine powder showered her face and chest. She flinched back, reflexively squeezing her eyes shut. So now we have to do it the hard way, Gotti continued. That, Ms. Price, is Polstein Spice. Highly prized, highly expensive, and highly legal. And you, my dear, have enough of it on you to guarantee that you spend the rest of your life in prison. Chapter 11 Military leadership is a journey, not a destination. It is continually challenged and must continually prove itself anew against fresh obstacles. Sometimes those obstacles are external events. Other times, they are the doubts of those being led. Still other times, they are a result of the leader's own failures and shortcomings. Political power and influence are different. Once certain levels have been reached, there is no need to prove leadership or competence. A person with such power is accustomed to having every word carefully considered, and every whim treated as an order, and all who recognize that power know to bow to it. A few have the courage or the foolishness to resist. Some succeed in standing firm against the storm. More often, they find their paths yet again turned from their hoped-for goal. But such a turn does not always mean that the victim has lost, or that the victor has won. Eli had no business being here. He knew it. Ylaren surely knew it. And he was pretty sure everyone else in the ballroom knew it too. It just made no sense. He was too backwater for these core people. He was just too junior in rank for the scattering of admirals and generals in attendance. And he was far too lower class to be rubbing shoulders with the elite of the Empire. The same drawbacks also applied to Thrawn, of course. Plus the added one of being a non-human in a society that, while tolerant for the most part, wasn't exactly welcoming. But at least there was a reason why Ularen had dragged him here to show off to the men and women of power. If the High Command decided to get serious over their threatened court-martial, an interested civilian base could be useful as a counterweight against offended admirals. Thrawn needed to be here. Eli's presence was completely unnecessary. Though even with Thrawn, he couldn't avoid the sense that the Chiss were being seen less as unfairly charged officer and more as an unusual prize fish. Interesting, Ularen murmured. Eli turned back from the shimmering, color-changing gown he'd been eyeing to find the colonel gazing at his data pad. Sir? he asked. A note from HQ, Ularen said. 
Lieutenant Thrawn's latest suggestion seems to have paid off. Eli looked at Thrawn. Is this the backtrack of Signe you suggested a couple of days ago? No, Thrawn said, eyeing Ularan closely. As it turns out, Colonel Ularan was unable to establish enough data points with that inquiry to yield useful results. In this case, I noted that the planet Krildor, a known source of Tabanagas, is quite close to the Uber system. It occurred to me that if Signy intended to simply sell the cylinders, he would have taken the Dromedar there, where extra Tabana could easily and invisibly be added into their own distribution channels. Which suggested that his intended recipients wanted the Tabana as is, Ularan said. Which immediately pointed to either arms dealers or people who already have blasters and wanted to be able to shoot them. Eli winced. Criminals or insurgents? Yes, Thrawn confirmed. We have been profiling many of them, looking for indicators and markers. Really? Eli said, frowning. He hadn't heard anything about criminal profiling work. When have you been doing all this? Thrawn inclined his head. You sleep more than I do. Eli felt his face warm. Sorry. Don't apologize, Ularan said with a grunt. And don't worry. A career with the Navy will knock that out of you soon enough. The point is that if you throw Thrawn's latest filter in with all the rest, here's what pops up. He handed the data pad to Thrawn. Eli leaned close to the Chiss and peered at the display. There was a full report there. But in the center, Ularan had highlighted a single word. Night Swan. We've been hearing rumors about someone calling himself Night Swan for the past year or so, Ularan continued. At first, he seemed to be some sort of consultant, planning jobs like this for various groups. And now? Thrawn asked, handing back the data pad. Now we're not sure, Ularan said, his eyes darting back and forth as he skimmed the report. A couple of the analysts are suggesting he may have settled down with a single organization. I'm not sure I buy that myself. He pursed his lips. Well, we'll keep an eye out for him. At least now we know one of his aliases. Which the man would probably never use again, Eli knew. No one had yet figured out how Signy had slipped through the cordon that Admiral Wiscovis had thrown around Uba. But somehow he'd gotten away. Maybe the interrogations of the surviving pirates would give them some clues. Eli rather doubted it. Anyway, this came through while you were talking with that last group of senators, and I thought you'd like to know, Ularan said. I appreciate that, Colonel, Thrawn said. Thank you. No thanks needed. It was your suggestion that got us there, Ularan reminded him. He started to put the data pad away, paused as something caught his eye. Wait a moment. Something new coming through. The Tabana cylinders. He trailed off. Is there trouble, Colonel? Thrawn asked. You could say that, Lieutenant. Ularan took a deep breath. It seems that 12 of the 20 cylinders we recovered along with the Dromedar. Again, 
He offered Thrawn the data pad. We're empty. Eli felt his mouth drop open. Empty? But that's impossible. They were still static locked. Our friend Signy apparently found a way to get the gas out anyway. Yularen growled. Looks like he went in through the cylinder's backs. Eli winced. The very technique that Thrawn had suggested. Terrific. Through the hull? The hull was untouched, Yularen said, shaking his head. No. They're going to have to pull everything apart to figure out how he did it. For a long moment, the three of them just looked at one another. You still saved the ship, Yularen said at last. Along with almost half the Tabana and the Dromadar's crew. And you caught most of the pirates. Considering the value the High Command places on Tabana, Thrawn said, they may not consider that a sufficient victory. His voice was calm enough, but the expression on his face sent a shiver up Eli's back. Some of the myths talked about what happened when Chiss were defeated or outsmarted. None of those stories ended well. If they don't, they should, Yularen said flatly. Never mind. There's still a long way to go. And I, for one, have always considered half a loaf far superior to no loaf at all. We'll make this work. He gave Thrawn a twisted smile. And if the Navy decides to toss you out, the ISB would be more than happy to take you. He tapped his white tunic. I dare say you'd look good in white. Thank you, Colonel, Thrawn said. But my skills and aptitudes are best suited for ships and open warfare. Then let's make sure you stay there. Yularen looked around. I believe that's the Minister of War over there. No point aiming low when you can aim high. If we're lucky, and if he's been drinking, we might get him to drop the court-martial completely. Your Excellency, please! Orinda said carefully, backing toward the door, her lungs alternately burning and icing with the bits of spice she'd accidentally inhaled. What the hell was going on? Whatever it was, there was precious little she could do about it. The door was presumably locked. The windows were unbreakable, and she was on the 5,000th floor anyway. He's very clever, your Senator Ranking, Gotti said. His voice was cool, almost conversational. Did he really think he could get away with this? Orinda shook her head. I'm sorry, Your Excellency, but I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm talking about planting false data in a senior Imperial official's computer, Gotti said, his voice going soft and menacing. Apparently, Ranking expected me to be so taken with you that I'd just load the data card without checking it first. Orinda felt her eyes widen. Wait a minute! Planting false data? What kind of false data? So here's what you're going to do, Gotti continued, ignoring her question. You're going to take that data card. He pointed languidly toward the card in her hand and do whatever Ranking told you to do with it. 
Leave it on his desk. File it. Hide it under the carpet. Whatever he said. And you will never, ever tell him about the switch or about this conversation. Gotti raised his eyebrows. Follow my instructions, and that'll be the end of it. Deviate from them, and I'll see that you're arrested for possession. Your choice. Orinda's lungs were slowly starting to clear, but at the same time, the room was starting to take on a strange clarity, with colors and textures more and more sharply defined, and light and shadow pulsing back and forth. What is this stuff doing to me? She asked. Her voice, she noticed, was throbbing in time with the light shadow dance. Nothing much, Gotti said. It needs to be cooked to release its full potency. Of course, the fact that it's raw means you'd be identified as a dealer or courier instead of simply a user. Much harsher sentence. I need your decision. Orinda squeezed her eyes shut. Even through closed lids, she seemed able to see the room's new vibrancy. How do I know you'll keep your word? She asked, opening her eyes again. Why wouldn't I? Gotti countered with a shrug. You're a very small fish. Not worth the time and effort of gutting. I see, Orinda said. What was on the data card I gave you? Gotti frowned. You ask a lot of questions, Ms. Price, he said thoughtfully. Are you trying to make me think you're worth gutting? You're asking me to do to Ranking the same thing he tried to do to you, Arinda pointed out. I don't want to escape your bonfire just to get dropped into his. Do your job, and you'll never know it was you, Gotti said. Besides, you don't really have a choice, do you? Orinda looked at the powder Gotti had thrown on her tunic. The bright white was fading as the dust was absorbed into the fabric. But she knew that with the right equipment, it would be detectable for days. I suppose not. And don't forget it. Gotti smiled a tight, bitter, evil smile. Welcome to politics, Miss Price. Welcome to the real Coruscant. Orinda managed to slip out of the ballroom without Juahir or Driller spotting her. She caught an air taxi, rode to Ranking's office, and put Gotti's data card in the slot in the desk safe as she'd been instructed. Then, calling another air taxi, she returned to Driller's borrowed apartment. The last thing she wanted to do was stay in Core Square a second longer than she had to, but she knew that running would make her look guilty. Besides, her lungs and vision were still showing the effects of the spice, and there were probably other visual cues that would tag her to anyone who knew what to look for. It would be the height of irony if Gotti kept his word not to turn her in, only to have some random security guard do it for him. She lay awake on the daybed for the next three hours, waiting for the symptoms to fade, wondering what was on the card, wondering what it would do, wondering what she would do. 
She had no answers. It was after two in the morning when Juahir and Driller finally returned. Orinda brushed off Juahir's questions with a story about not feeling well, then fended off Driller's efforts to help. Eventually, Juahir gave up, and she and Driller drifted off to their own beds. It wasn't until dawn was starting to lighten the sky that Orinda finally nodded off. Her last thought as she fell asleep was to wonder when the blow would fall. It fell very quickly. The general calm call came at 0900, barely three hours after Orinda fell asleep. She arrived at Ranking's office to find most of the local staff already assembled, whispering urgently and apprehensively among themselves. Ranking arrived a few minutes later, his eyes cold, his face dark and stiff. I have some bad news, he said without preamble. His gaze moved across the crowd as he talked, but Arinda noted that his eyes never seemed to touch her face. Some allegations have recently arisen of financial and corporate discrepancies coming from my office. While these allegations are categorically false, I must nonetheless address them as quickly as possible. I will therefore be returning to Lothal for a time, and will probably need to make brief visits to other worlds before I return. Unfortunately, until the situation has been straightened out, my funding levels will be severely restricted. I have no choice but to close several of my outlying offices and relieve those assigned there of your duties. Here are the offices affected. He read off a list of seven offices from his datapad. It wasn't coincidence, Orinda suspected, that he saved Bash 4 for the very end. Thank you all for coming, he concluded. My apologies to those of you who I'm no longer able to employ. But I'm certain you'll find other positions soon. Enjoy the rest of your Ascension Week festivities. Ms. Price, if you'd stay a moment. Arinda remained standing beside the wall as the others filed out. Ranking busied himself with his datapad, or at least pretended to do so, until the two of them were alone. And then, for the first time since entering the office, he looked at her. Arinda had expected to see anger in his eyes. She saw only ice. She expected him to shout or curse. His voice, when he finally spoke, was soft and infinitely more frightening. I hope you're proud of yourself. I didn't have any choice, Orinda said, silently cursing the shaking that had suddenly afflicted her voice. She'd promised herself that she would match him tone for tone, but an imperial senator in full-blown anger was more intimidating than she'd expected. He said he would have me arrested. And you believed him? Ranking demanded. You honestly believed you were important enough to waste even the time of a single police call on? He shook his head. You really are a fool, aren't you? What about you? Arinda countered. How is this her fault? Whatever you were trying to do, you must not have disguised it very well. 
If I'd known what was going on, I would at least have been ready for him. Oh, right, he bit back. A wet-eared Lothal yokel would have been ready for a morph? Yes, I'd have paid good money to watch that match. He held out his hand. Your airspeed a key. Orinda handed it over, clamping her mouth shut against the retort that wanted to come out. I assume you will be taking back my apartment too, she said instead. I'll go over and start clearing it out. It's already being emptied, Ranking said. Your things will be waiting in the outer office tomorrow. His lip twisted. We could have done great things together, Arinda. I'm sorry I couldn't rely on you. I'm sorry I couldn't trust you either, Arinda said. Trust? Ranking snorted. Don't be a fool. There's no trust in politics. Never has been, never will be. Now get out! I'm sure you'll be very happy back on Lothal. To Orinda's surprise, Juahir and Driller were waiting outside the office. Are you all right? Juahir asked anxiously. I got a call from the landlady that a group of Ugnaughts were in your apartment packing everything up and figured you were here. I just got fired, Orinda told her. The trembling was starting to creep back into her voice. Ruthlessly, she forced it down. The apartment disappeared when the job did. Ouch. Juahir peered closely at her. Does this have anything to do with why you bailed on us last night? Yes, and I don't want to talk about it. Arinda looked around at the cityscape rising all around them, at the majestic buildings and the never-ending flow of airspeeder traffic. When she'd first arrived, she found the view exotic and exciting. Later it had become familiar and commonplace. Now it was ominous. Billions of humans and non-humans were crammed together out there, all jockeying for the same jobs and the same living space. And Dorinda was now one of them. Okay, Juahir said briskly. Well, you can stay with me for a moment. A little cramped, but we'll make do. Work-wise, well, you know what Topol's clientele is like, so you might not want to even consider it. But the server droids are always breaking down, so Walt's always hiring. Yes, Orinda murmured. Ranking's words, I'm sorry I couldn't rely on you, echoed accusingly through her mind. Maybe that was the trick to surviving on Coruscant. Never relying on anyone. If that was what it took, Orinda could do it. Or you could stay with me for the next two months if you'd rather, Driller offered. Closer to the center of things and the fancier jobs, though it's probably hard to get one of those. Probably, Orinda said. She took a deep breath. She could do this. Thanks for your offers. What I need, Driller, if you're willing, is to stay with you and Jua here for the rest of Ascension Week. After that, I'll be out of your hair. Jua here and Driller exchanged glances. Okay. Juahir said carefully. You sure you don't want to come back with me? No, Orinda said. 
Thank you. Isn't there anything else we can do for you? Driller pressed. Nothing else you need? Just one more thing, Orinda said, pulling out her data pad. The data pad, at least, was hers, not rankings. I need the address of the nearest citizen assistance office. And it is therefore the decision of this panel that Lieutenant Thrawn be cleared of all charges. Eli took a deep breath. So that was that. The court-martial panel had taken the full details of the Dromedar incident into account, specifically made note of Captain Rossi's pettiness, and rendered the correct decision. It was a solid vindication. Still, Eli found himself having mixed feelings as he and Thrawn walked together from the room. He himself had been under the edge of the cloud on this one, but as a subordinate officer, his career hadn't been at risk nearly as much as Thrawn's. If Thrawn had been convicted and discharged from the Navy, would Eli have been returned to his old supply officer career path? And if he had, would he have been pleased or disappointed? He scowled at the flat gray walls around them. He hadn't asked for the role that had been thrust upon him, and he definitely hadn't wanted it. As he'd long suspected, his position as Thrawn's aide was having a dampening effect on his own advancement. And there were many times over the past couple of years when he would have given anything to be free and clear of the Chiss. But then there were the other times. The times when Thrawn made some connection or noticed some small fact that nailed a smuggler or racketeer red-handed. The times when the Chiss suggested a tactical maneuver that pulled an unexpected victory out of defeat. The times, as with Signy and his pirates, when Thrawn was two steps ahead of the enemy at every turn. Or at least most of the turns. The lost Tabana still rankled him. It rankled Thrawn even more, he could tell. So what did Eli really want? A calm, safe pathway that utilized his talents and skills to their maximum potential and took him to the top of his chosen field? or a path where he nearly always felt like a fish flopping on the shore, but where he got to see true genius in action. He'd been mulling that question ever since Royal Imperial. He still didn't have an answer. Your family still engages in private shipping, does it not? Thrawn asked into his thoughts. Yes, sir, Eli confirmed, wincing a little. He still wasn't sure how he felt about being Thrawn's aide, but his parents had made their thoughts about his stagnating career very clear. It had gotten so bad that he no longer looked forward to their letters and calls. I assume that such work also includes a knowledge of supply and demand. Shipping by itself doesn't, Eli said, but they also do a lot of purchasing, and that definitely does. Why, is there something you need? Thrawn was silent another few steps. Dunium, he said. Signy identified my buzzdroid as a Mark I model and clearly recognized its value. That can only be due to its Dunium content. Eli shrugged. No surprise there. The price of Dunium has gone through the roof since the Navy started its latest shipbuilding surge. That is the tale, Thrawn agreed. But I wonder, 
Do you know how many ships are being constructed? And how much dunium they require? Not offhand, but I could probably find out, Eli said, frowning. Are you thinking the Navy might be stockpiling the stuff? That is one possibility, Thrawn said. The other possibility is more intriguing. That possibility being some other project, Thrawn said thoughtfully. Something large and unannounced. Militaries sometimes have off-the-list projects going on, Eli pointed out. But I don't know how large it could be. I suppose the first step would be to check the Senate and Finance Ministry's public records. Unless the project has been made invisible even to them. That would argue something even smaller, Eli said. Secret project or not, the money has to come from somewhere. Not just material costs, but engineering, worker payments, and resource transport. The bigger it is, the harder all that is to hide. But not impossible. My parents always said that nothing was impossible, Eli said. If you'd like, I can look into it. I would be most appreciative, Thrawn said. Thank you. He gestured to a door ahead. I was told our new orders would be waiting for us here. Ah, Eli said. That was fast. Apparently the High Command had known in advance what the panel's verdict would be. At least he and Thrawn wouldn't just be sitting around in limbo. Still, the news was likely to be mixed. From what he'd read, courts martial were the ultimate in career killers. Even if the officer was acquitted, he was usually given only ground or orbital assignments for the next few years. Given the Navy's attitude toward non-humans, and given the way Thrawn had ruffled both Admiral Wiscovis's and Captain Rossi's feathers on his way to scoring only half a victory, he doubted it would be one of the nicer or more prestigious ground assignments either. And where Thrawn went, would Eli follow? Ensign Eli Vanto, a voice came from behind them. Yes, ma'am, Eli confirmed, turning around. The woman striding toward them was middle-aged, dressed in a quiet but expensive-looking business outfit topped by a short cloak. Her expression was cool, her skin smooth with the look of someone who rarely, if ever, walked beneath an open sky. A word, if you please, she asked. Eli looked at Thrawn. You may speak with her, Thrawn said. I will get our orders and return. He sent the newcomer a brief look, then continued on toward the door he'd indicated. It slid open, and he disappeared inside. You may speak with her, the woman echoed. I didn't know even ensigns needed permission from the superiors to talk with people. That's just the way he talks, Eli said, feeling his face warming. Thrawn had long since become fluent and basic, but his ability to phrase his comments in polite or diplomatic ways was still sometimes woefully lacking. You are... My name is Culpa, the woman said. I'm an aide to Moff Gotti. Her eyebrows lifted slightly. You do know who Moff Gotti is, I assume? Of course, Eli said. He actually had heard of Gotti, the Moff of the important Tanganine sector here in the core. He vaguely remembered. Beyond that one fact, though, 
The details of Gotti's life and position were somewhat fuzzy. Good, Culper said briskly. His Excellency has been following this case with some interest. He concurs with the outcome, but is somewhat displeased that your role in the lieutenant's success was not more fully acknowledged. Not hard to explain, Eli said. Lieutenant Throne was the one who identified the imposter Signy as a plant, laid out a plan to capture him, then executed that plan with skill and efficiency. But hardly alone, Culper pointed out. You and the other members of the Blood Crow's crew were vital to his achieving that result. Which has been stated time and again, Eli reminded her. Mostly by Lieutenant Thrawn himself, who I believe has also recommended commendations for all of us. But not promotions. Junior officers don't get to tell senior officers how to do their job, Eli said. I trust High Command and the Imperial Navy to do what is right and proper. Culper smiled thinly. Ah, yes. Right and proper. Two high-sounding but meaningless words. One doesn't get what one deserves in this universe, Ensign Vanto. One certainly shouldn't wait for what someone else considers right or proper. No, one must be alert for opportunities and take firm grasp of them. She lifted a hand, closed it emphatically into a fist. Is there an opportunity out there that I'm missing? Indeed, Culper said. His Excellency Moff Gotti has many contacts and associates across the Empire. One of them, a governor in a prestigious inner rim system, is in need of an assistant military attaché. A single word from His Excellency, and the job is yours. Another thin smile. And you would certainly be promoted to lieutenant along the way, with promotion to captain soon following. Interesting, Eli said. Unfortunately, I'm committed to three more years of service to the Navy before I could even consider such an offer. Not a problem, Culper assured him. In the particular system at issue, the attaché's office is an extension of the Imperial Navy. You'd be serving out your Imperial commitment even while establishing yourself in the local hierarchy. Sounds even better, Eli said. I appreciate the offer, but I'm not yet ready for a desk job. This would hardly be a desk job, Culper said, her lips twisting just slightly with amusement or contempt. Apparently, Eli was even less well-informed about such things than he'd realized. You'd liaison with the Imperial Navy, yes, but you'd also be an officer in the system's fleet's own defense force. Before you know it, you'd have a command of your own. A patrol craft to start with, then a frigate, up to a light or even heavy cruiser. Sounds intriguing, Eli said. More than simply intriguing, I would hope. Culper said, her smooth forehead wrinkling. You seem oddly hesitant, Henson. I trust you realize that there are senior officers throughout the Navy who would jump at a chance like this. For His Excellency to offer it to an officer as junior as you is unheard of. I don't doubt it, Eli agreed. Which leads to the obvious question. Why me? Culper shrugged. One might just as well ask, why not you? You've proved yourself capable in an unusual situation. You've made a name for yourself. She paused, 
her eyes flicking to the door through which Thrawn had just exited. And it's not like the Navy has your future in mind. Eli looked away, a knot forming in his stomach. Culper was right on that one anyway. Thrawn was on his way to a desk assignment of his own, with his aide likely falling meteor-like alongside him. Or instead, Eli could take Moff Gotti up on his offer and command his own ship. He'd never considered that as a possibility for his future. He'd been in supply at the Academy, and the best that career track had to offer was Chief Supply Officer on a Star Destroyer, or possibly command of a major ground-based depot. But that career track was long gone. Now, he was an officer's aide. And if there were ever a path that led nowhere, that was it. He might end up a captain, possibly even a lieutenant commander, but he would always be standing in the shadow of a full commander, an admiral, or a grand admiral. Or instead, he could be captain of his own ship. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. He would be a fool to turn it down. But could he really pull this off? Could he command an entire ship, even one as small as a system patrol craft? He didn't have the training or the experience. He certainly didn't have the gifts of leadership or charisma. But still, captain of his own ship. I trust the location is not a problem, Culper said into his hesitation. To be perfectly honest, an interim assignment is more than generous. Eli's thoughts froze. What do you mean, more than generous? Culper's lips compressed briefly. I mean that for a wild space person like yourself, the inner rim is an incredible move upward. I see, Eli said, a trickle of anger tugging at him. He'd seen plenty of superiority and disdain from the Corps cadets at the Royal Imperial Academy, but he'd never thought he would hear that same prejudice from a senior government official. Tell me, Miss Culper, why exactly have I been singled out for this honor? Because His Excellency considers you worthy of promotion. So you said, Eli agreed. What's the real reason? Culper's lips compressed again. If you don't wish to avail yourself of this opportunity, it's because of Thrawn, isn't it? Eli cut in as he suddenly understood. Moff Gotti doesn't care if I succeed. What he wants is for Thrawn to fail. His Excellency has no interest in what happens to a lowly senior lieutenant. Eli looked at the door ahead with a sudden flash of understanding. Only he's not a senior lieutenant anymore, is he? He's been promoted to captain. Culper's lip twitched. Not much, but enough to show that Eli had hit the mark. Fine, she said, her smooth voice going dark. Yes, he's being promoted. And yes, there are a few of us who aren't pleased by all the attention the alien is getting. His actions cost the Empire hundreds of thousands of credits worth of lost Tabana gas. He saved half of it. Forty percent, Culper said frostily. And that was Admiral Wiscovis' doing, not his. All your alien friend cared about was showing how clever he was. He also rescued the freighter crew, three of whom were aliens. Eli felt his skin prickle. 
What difference does that make? Do you really not understand? Culper demanded. The Empire's priority was to retrieve the Tabana. That was what was valuable. That was what a good Imperial officer should have focused on. Instead, he risked the lives of you and the other Blood Crow crew to rescue some aliens. What do you think you'll do the next time such a decision is required? I see, Eli said. So there it was. He wasn't being cited for ability and groomed for a prestigious post. He was nothing more than a tool with which Gotti and his friends hoped to topple the non-elite, non-human threat to their comfortable little universe. I appreciate your honesty, Ms. Culper. Please thank His Excellency Moff Gotti for his offer, but I'm happy right where I am. Then you're a fool, Culper said acidly. He will go down someday. Even with you there to smooth the political path for him, he'll go down. He was lucky this time. But luck never lasts. And when he goes down, anyone too close will go down with him. Moff Gotti will make sure of that? Culper smiled. Good day, Ensign, she said. She started to turn away, then paused. Oh, and if I were you, I'd get comfortable with that title. You'll be holding it for quite some time. She turned again, swirling her cape this time, and strode toward the exit. Eli watched her go, the emotional tangle emerging again as the disgust receded. But while his feelings were still mixed, his course was now clear. One way or another, his career was linked to Thrawn's. You are disturbed. Thrawn's voice came from behind him. I'm fine, Eli growled. Was it too much to ask the people stop sneaking up on him? Did you get your orders? Yes, Thrawn said. What did she want from you? She was offering me a job, Eli said shortly. What's your new assignment? Thrawn looked down at the data pad in his hand. First officer aboard the Thunder Wasp. It is listed as an Aquagens-class light cruiser currently on patrol duty in the mid-rim. And you've been promoted to captain? Thrawn inclined his head, his glowing eyes narrowing slightly. How did you know? Lucky guess, Eli said. I assume you picked up my orders while you were at it? Yes. Thrawn held out a data card. Also the Thunder Wasp, as my aide-de-camp. With no promotion. No, Thrawn said. My apologies, Ensign. I had recommended you for both promotion and for a combat station, which I'm not really trained for, Eli pointed out. Where I should be is in supply. Thrawn was silent a moment. This job you were offered, was it better than the one the Navy has assigned you? Eli looked over just in time to see Culper leave the room. Captain of his own ship. No, he said. Not really. It took Orinda four tries to find what she was looking for, but it was time well spent. The place she was now in was without a doubt the most poorly staffed citizen assistance office she'd ever seen. 
Only four of the twelve desks were occupied, two by humans, one each by a Rodian and a Duros. There was a light coming from the supervisor's office door, so apparently there was at least one other person here. The lack of personnel was likely an artifact of the timing, with the Ascension Week festivities having taken their toll on the office's staff. The obvious corollary was that the ones who were here would be the ones who couldn't get time off, which likely meant the newest and least competent. Of course, since ordinary citizens didn't get week-long holidays off either, the line was just as long as usual. Longer, really, since only a third of the staff was here to handle their problems. Arinda smiled to herself. Perfect. She had plenty of time during her wait in line to evaluate the workers. She finally settled on one of the humans, a squat woman whose face and body language silently proclaimed the fact that she didn't want to be there. Rinda deftly tweaked her position in line just enough to make sure that Grouchy's desk was the one she finally sat down at. Welcome to Prome Avenue Citizen Assistance, the woman said in a voice that was more mechanical than that of some droids Arinda had worked with. My name is Nariba. How can I help you? I'm Arinda. Arinda said. I recently lost my job, and I need another one. Something interesting and fun would be the best. Oh, and I also need a place to stay. Is that all? Nariba said with a grunt, peering down at her computer. References, qualifications, job history. Come on, come on. I don't have all day. I used to work for a senator, Arinda said brightly. But all I've been offered since then was a waitress job. And you didn't take it? Nariba growled. Not smart. You're not going to get anything better around here. But I used to work for a senator. Hey, honey, look around you, Nariba said in a voice of strained patience. Half the people in Core Square used to work for a senator. You're lucky you didn't have to work under a senator, if you know what I mean. She peered a little more closely. Well, maybe you did. You're the type a lot of them would like. Are you suggesting my senator would act immorally? Arinda asked, a small part of her appreciating the irony of the question. What? You just fall off the remit transport? Nariba puckered her lips in a condescending smile. Of course you did. Worked on your accent, I see. Need to work a little harder. I will, Arinda promised. But about my job and an apartment? Nariba rolled her eyes. Sure, why not? There are still people who believe in miracles. Give me your comm number and I'll put you on the list. Arinda did so. Thanking Nariba, she stood up and waved over the next person in line, and then headed straight to the supervisor's office. There was a buzzer by the door. Arinda tapped it and waited a moment. She tapped it again and again. On the fourth buzz, the door slid open. The office was smaller than Arinda would have guessed. Not much bigger than the medium-sized desk and full-walled data card shelves filling most of the space. Behind the desk sat a harried-looking middle-aged man. Who are you and what do you want? 
he growled. My name is Arinda Price, Arinda said, stepping inside and glancing at the name plaque on the desk. Alistair Sinclair. You have a problem, Mr. Sinclair, and I have the solution. Sinclair blinked. Excuse me? I just spoke with Nariba, Arinda said. Your employee at desk three? She's not very good at her job. She's rude and insulting, and worst of all, she isn't helpful. Between you and me, she needs to be fired. Does she now? Sinclair said. I hardly think you're in a position to make that kind of judgment. No, but you are, Arinda said. That's where my solution comes in. Hire me to replace her. Sinclair raised his eyebrows. Your credentials? I worked for the past two years in Senator Rankings' assistance office in Bash 4, Arinda said. And I was very good at my job. Sinclair pursed his lips. Working for a senator is a bit insular. I've dealt with angry landlords, angry tenants, reluctant employers, and panicky job seekers, Arinda continued. Also union bosses, would-be union bosses, striking miners, strike-breaking miners, angry men and women who wanted to tear up my office, low-level criminals, high-level criminals, and politicians from the rawest tack to the most entrenched fossil. She stopped for air. From the look on Sinclair's face, he probably hadn't heard anyone throw quite this depth of a list at him before. Really? He said, a bit lamely. Really? She assured him. But don't take my word for it. She nodded toward the main office behind her. You have eight empty desks out there. Let me work the rest of Ascension Week for free. After that, you can decide for yourself which of us you want to keep. Sinclair smiled. You are brash, aren't you? I am, Orinda agreed. But I've been told that it isn't brashness if you succeed. Interesting point. Sinclair stood up and offered his hand across the desk. You're on, Miss Price. Take desk eight. Let's see if you're as good as you think. Chapter 12 No one can say where his path will take him, even for the duration of a single day. More difficult still is to see where one's path will intersect that of another warrior. A warrior must always be alert for such meetings. Some are generated by happenstance, and those may be benign, but others are arranged with purpose. Those must never be underestimated. Fortunately, there are always signs. Before any trap is sprung, it must be prepared and primed and armed. If one reads the signs properly, the pattern of the attack will be clear. But one must always remember that launching a trap is easier than defeating it. The smugglers had been escorted aboard, scowling or cursing, and sent one by one into the brig. Commander Alfred Chino stood by the brig's outer hatch, fingering a large grist mollusk shell. Shells, 
he said flatly. They were smuggling iridium inside shells. Yes, sir, Eli said. Chino was an old school type, having risen to the peak of his ability as captain of the Thunder Wasp. He was probably destined to end his career aboard it, or another ship just like it. Given the captain's age and upbringing, Eli had feared that he would show either the prejudices of Moff Gotti's patronizing mouthpiece Culper or the disdain of the Blood Crow's Captain Rossi. Instead, Chino had taken Thrawn's assignment in stride, though with a certain degree of quiet yet unmistakable misgiving. But over time, the Chiss had slowly won him over with his ability to see through the clutter to the heart of whatever matter they were dealing with. Still, the commander had never lost his ability to be dumbfounded, which was what made moments like this so entertaining. They were taking the stolen iridium from the mines to an old surplus underwater transport, sir, Eli explained. Possibly Gungan. We still haven't positively identified the vehicle. They then transported it to a group of fishing boats where they formed it into small disks and hid them inside the shells for shipment off-planet. The discrepancy in weight didn't give the show away? There wasn't any, sir, Eli said. The disks were small, and the grist mullet meat is unusually dense. They had the whole thing down to a science. Hmm. Chino puckered his lips. Dare I ask who tumbled the scheme? Do you really need to, sir? <laughs> I suppose not, Chino said. Fine. How did he do it? As recently as a year ago, Eli mused, when he and Thrawn had first come aboard the Thunder Wasp, it had hurt a little to have to explain how Thrawn had pulled off the most recent of his long string of miracles. Now Eli was so used to it that it was almost fun. Rather like being the assistant of an illusionist who knew the secrets of how the tricks worked which wasn't to say that he would ever be able to pull off the tricks himself. But he was becoming surprisingly okay with that. It was the Maycor, sir, he said. One of the local water predator species. Captain Thrawn noticed that they were unusually active near these particular boats. Something seemed to be drawing them. That mysterious lure being free food, Chino said, nodding understanding. The smugglers had to get rid of the mollusk meat to make room for the iridium, and they simply dumped it overboard. He shook his head. <laughs> it's really quite simple once you see it. Yes, sir, Eli said, illusionist's assistant. Most things are. The hatch slid open, and Thrawn appeared. Captain... Chino greeted him. Our guests all packed away for the night? Yes, sir, Thrawn said. They seem somewhat bewildered, though. Good, Chino said. I like bewildered prisoners. Gives them something to think about besides escape. Speaking of packing, I understand we have more antiques on their way. Yes, sir, Thrawn said. My apologies for not informing you sooner. No problem, Chino said. What is it this time? Another piece of hyperdrive ring? No, sir. 
a piece of a buzz droid, and a section of an attack weapon I believe was called a vulture droid. Chino grunted. <laughs> Clone Wars material again, he said, eyeing Thrawn closely. Something about that era that interests you? In point of fact, sir, everything about that era interests me, Thrawn said. May I continue to store the items in the aft hangar bay? Absolutely, Chino said. Mind you, if we ever get those new TIE fighters they keep promising us, we'll need to come to some other arrangement. But until then, I see no reason why the space can't be yours. Thank you, sir, Thrawn said. With your permission, I will go and see about getting them properly stowed. Of course, Chino said. Carry on, Captain. Ensign. With a nod to each of them, he turned and headed toward the bridge. Would you walk with me, Ensign? Thrawn invited, gesturing in the direction of the unused hangar bay. Certainly, sir, Eli said as they headed out. Bewildered, you say? They are angry at the manner in which they were captured. I'll bet they are, Eli said. Maybe the next group will be smart enough to save up the mollusk meat and dump it in bits and pieces the whole length of the way back to port. That way they won't draw a crowd. Excellent, Thrawn said. Eli frowned. What's excellent? Your growing aptitude for the arts of tactics. Thrawn handed him his datapad. What do you make of this? What is it? Eli asked as he took the device. It was hardly tactics to see the stupid moves a group of overconfident smugglers had made. As Chino had said, everything was obvious in hindsight. A listing of the prices of various Clone War artifacts in various antique shops, surplus stores, and salvage yards over the past three years. Eli frowned. You mean all the way back to when you started collecting them on the Blood Crow? Yes, Thrawn said. The oldest numbers are at the top. Study them, and tell me what you see. Eli peered at the list. It was an impressive document, long and detailed. It wasn't just the items Thrawn had bought either, but an entire spectrum of Clone Wars weaponry and equipment. He gazed at the list, his mind slipping automatically into the supply and shipping mode that he hadn't had much opportunity to use since graduating from the Academy. Well, the Mark I buzz droids are through the roof, he said. But with the price of Dunium still going up, that one was inevitable. Indeed, Thrawn said. Continue scrolling down the list, if you would. Search for a pattern. Eli nodded absently, already ahead of the suggestion. Items, prices, dates... And there it was. The Vulture Droids, he said, tapping the data pad. The prices have been stable until five months ago. When they suddenly began moving upward, Thrawn said, nodding. What do you conclude from that? Obviously someone's buying them. Someone's buying a lot of them. Eli raised his eyebrows. More Dunium? Not with these droids, Thrawn said. But you remind me, have you made any progress in your analysis of the Navy's warship program? 
Some, Eli said cautiously. In truth, they'd been so busy over the past few months that he only had occasional moments to devote to that project. There are a lot of nooks and crannies in that kind of matrix sheet, so I can't say for certain. But right now, I can't find any building project that could be absorbing anywhere near the amount of dunium that's been disappearing from the markets. And the finances themselves? Again, nothing obvious. If something's going on, it's being very well hidden. Interesting, Thrawn murmured. I trust you will continue your investigation. He gestured toward the data pad. In the meantime, we have these Vulture droids to consider. You say they are being purchased? Yes, Eli said. And the vibe's not just local either. You can't get numbers rising this fast unless all the surrounding sectors are being drained too. That was my assumption as well, Thrawn agreed. And with no other obvious value to the droids, the likely conclusion is that the buyer intends to use them. Not much a vulture droid can be used for except to shoot at other people, Eli pointed out. And their tech has to be at least a couple of decades old. I was under the impression that we'd pretty much learned how to deal with them. It is possible we have forgotten, Thrawn pointed out. As weaponry advances, the techniques used against obsolete ordnance may be neglected or lost. Possibly, Eli said. Takes a pretty confident person to think he can beat modern turbo lasers with blaster cannons, though. Thrawn shrugged. I could. Right, but you're on our side, Eli said dryly. Who else could? Thrawn raised his eyebrows in silent question. Eli frowned. Let me guess. Night Swan? The Rodian who sold me the vulture droid part had an order for more such parts under the name Night Swan, Thrawn confirmed. The merchant let you see his order requests? He was unaware that I did so. Ah, Eli said, peering closely at him. Ever since Uba and the lost Tabana, Thrawn had a subtle but strong focus. Eli refused to call it an obsession, even in the privacy of his own mind. Toward Night Swan. Over the past year, Thrawn had been summoned back to Coruscant four times to consult with the Emperor. And during each of those visits, he'd made time to visit Colonel Yularen for a private and unofficial update on Night Swan's activities. I don't suppose there could be a second Night Swan out there. That is always possible, Thrawn said. But consider, we know our Night Swan specializes in clever strategies. We know he has seen firsthand the effectiveness of old technology and weapons that no one expects to face. And along with the name, the request specified that payment would be in Iridium. So you're also tagging him for the operation we just took down? Eli shook his head. I don't know. Night Swan is smart. These guys are idiots. Indeed, they are, Thrawn agreed. Which is why I asked one of them about the mollusk meat as they were being locked away. He admitted that the man who set up the scheme specifically told them to disperse the meat over their entire path. They told him that was too much trouble. 
Interesting, Eli said. Still doesn't qualify as proof. True, but it bears further examination, Thrawn said. I will inform the commander of my thoughts and speculations. Meanwhile, perhaps you could track the smuggled metals and look for a connection to Vultradroid purchases. I'll do what I can, Eli said. But lines like that are pretty easy to cover up. I trust your abilities, Thrawn said. We must also watch for reports of trouble on the planet Umbara. Why Umbara? The smugglers remember that the man who instructed them mentioned that world. Sounds like misdirection, Eli warned. Umbara was one of the major separatist planets. The locals fought pretty hard and got stomped pretty solidly. Hard to believe they want to go through that again. Agreed, Thrawn said. But we will watch for reports from there just the same. His expression hardened. Night Swan escaped the Empire once. I'm sure the Empire would appreciate it if we remedied that failure. Art. For some it was a measure of culture. For others it was a measure of wealth. For most it was a matter of simple enjoyment. For Thrawn, it was an invaluable tool. The Thunder Wasp's computer library had only a limited catalog of art reproductions, and only three pieces of those were from Umbara. Fortunately, Thrawn had spent the past three years building up an extensive collection of data cards that rivaled the best art archives in the Empire. He sat in his cabin surrounded by holograms of sculptures, flats, mobiles, kinetics, interactives, and other art forms that Umbarans had developed and explored over the centuries. Of particular interest were the subtle changes that had taken place between works created before and after the Clone Wars. The other Chiss didn't understand. They never had. He'd been asked innumerable times how he was able to build such detailed tactical knowledge from such obscure and insignificant ingredients. The question carried its own answer. To Thrawn, nothing in a species' art was obscure or insignificant. All the threads tied together. All the brushstrokes spoke to him. All the light curves told the story of their creator. Artists were individuals, but they were also products of their culture and history and philosophy. The weave of artist and culture was evident to the discerning eye. The fundamental pattern of a species could be sketched, then drawn, then fully fleshed out. Most important of all, the relationships among art, culture, and military doctrine could be deduced. And what could be deduced? could be countered. Distantly, Thrawn became aware that a new image had entered the pattern of Umbaran art flowing around him. Reluctantly, he withdrew his mind from contemplation and reflection and narrowed his focus. Ensign Vanto had entered his cabin. Ensign, Thrawn said, you disturb my solitude. You worried us, Vanto countered. His expression is concerned. 
Commander Chino has been trying to reach you by intercom for the past ten minutes. We've entered the Umbara system, and he wants you on the bridge. My apologies, Thrawn said. I was more focused than I realized. Sure, Vanto said. He looks around at the artwork. The commander thought you might have become ill. What's all this? Art of the Umbaran people, Thrawn said. Has the rest of the task force arrived? Our Star Destroyer has, Vanto said. He continues to study the artwork with interest. The ISD foremost, Admiral Carlu Gendling commanding. He has two of his four corvettes with him, but he sent the other two and his light cruiser off to investigate a problem that just cropped up in another system. Is Admiral Gendling planning to wait for the other ships? He seems confident that we can handle the matter without their help, Vanto said. I'm assuming that once we reach orbit, he'll order the dissidents to proceed to the nearest garrison or police station and surrender themselves and their weapons. Commander Chino wants you on the bridge just in case they don't. Understood, Thrawn said. Please convey my apologies to the commander and tell him I shall join him momentarily. He reached the bridge to find the combat crew assembled and at their proper stations. All indicators showed the Thunder Wasp at full battle readiness. Reporting for duty, Commander, he said. My apologies for the delay. No problem, Gino said. He peers closely at Thrawn's face. Are you all right? I thought you might have been taken ill. I'm well. Thrawn assured him. I understand Admiral Gendling is preparing to deliver an ultimatum. Yes, Chino said. His expression indicates apprehension. I advised him to wait for the rest of the task force, but Gendling is an impatient sort. He steps closer to Thrawn and lowers the volume of his voice. He also has a somewhat overinflated view of himself and his capabilities, he added. Well, that's just my opinion. Not simply your opinion, sir, Thrawn said. The overall pattern of his career validates your assessment. Really? Chino said. He is surprised. You've studied his career? I've given it a cursory examination. Really? Have you made the same cursory examination of my career? You have not been offered the same opportunities as Admiral Gendling, Thrawn said. Without such, there is little chance for you to prove your abilities. Even if I could, Chino said. His expression is wry and understanding. No, don't try to spare my feelings. You're a brilliant officer. I'm an adequate one. You'll rise through the ranks. I'll end my career quietly. He turned back to the forward viewport. But maybe we'll be lucky. Maybe we'll have to fight a battle, and you'll win it for me. At least the Thunder Wasp will finally get some recognition. He nodded aft. The starboard turbo laser targeting system has been giving us some problems. Go see if Ensign Vanto needs assistance checking the diagnostics, if you would.
Ersa. Vanta was standing by the weapons diagnostic station when Thrawn arrived. Ensign, Thrawn greeted him. Report on the starboard targeting system. They just ran a diagnostic, Vanto said. No obvious problem, but the thing's been twitchy, so we're running it again. Did I hear Commander Chino hoping the Umbarans take a shot at us? You did, Thrawn confirmed. But his hope will likely remain unfulfilled. The Umbarans will not attack. Really, sir? Vanto said, his tone one of surprise. Because they attacked just fine during the Clone Wars. But only when they perceive themselves as having an advantage in numbers or position or command capability, Thrawn said. Those factors do not exist here. Furthermore, their homeworld stands to absorb severe damage from orbital bombardment if they initiate combat. Ah, Vanto said. Too bad for Commander Chino, I guess. On the main comm display, Admiral Gendling's face appeared. People of Umbara, he said. His voice is strong and proud, carrying both challenge and contempt. Or perhaps I should say insurgents of Umbara. This is Admiral Karlu Gendling of the Imperial Star Destroyer Foremost. You have engaged in sedition and gathered weapons in defiance of Imperial law. In the name of the Emperor, I order you to turn in yourselves and your weapons to the nearest military garrison or police station. Your leaders will be charged according to the severity of their crimes. Those who simply followed out of ignorance or family ties will be permitted to return to their homes and lives without punishment. If you do not comply, your world will face the full destructive force that an Imperial Star Destroyer can bring to bear. I give you one hour. And that's that, Vanto said. There is a level of regret in his voice. As Commander Chino wishes to test himself in full combat, so too does Vanto. He'll probably end up sending in a few stormtrooper squads to keep order and make sure the troublemakers remember what's sitting over their heads. But for us... Incoming! Senior Lieutenant Hammerley called from the sensor station. Her voice held surprise and tension. Numerous craft incoming from behind the outer moon. Two hundred, three hundred, four hundred. Four hundred craft incoming on our starboard off quarter. Moving on attack vectors. Identification. Vulture droids. Chapter 13 No battle plan can anticipate all contingencies. There are always unexpected factors, including those stemming from the opponent's initiative. A battle thus becomes a balance between plan and improvisation, between intellect and reflex, between error and correction. It is a narrow line, but it is a line one's opponent must also walk. For all the balance of experience and cleverness, it is often the warrior who acts quickest who will prevail. 
All ships disperse! Admiral Gendling's voice boomed across the bridge. 180 degree turn! Prepare for combat! Eli snarled under his breath. What did the overblown excuse for an admiral think they'd been doing? But one of the Thunder Wasp's officers, at least, didn't seem to hear any implied slight in the order. Commander Chino was standing stiff and tall on the command walkway, his head held high, his shoulders back. This was his chance, maybe his last chance to shine in combat. Turbolasers, stand ready, he called. Helm, bring us aft and above the foremost. Gunners, your job is to intercept and destroy enemy fighters targeting the foremost's dorsal surfaces. A chorus of acknowledgments came from the crew pits. Looks like he got his wish after all, sir, Eli murmured to Thrawn. No, Thrawn said. Excuse me? He wished to meet the Umbarans in combat, but this attack is not theirs. It's coming from an Umbaran moon, Eli pointed out, trying to filter the sarcasm out of his voice. Thrawn's unshakable confidence still sometimes got to him. The whole system is full of Umbarans. The Umbaran leaders aren't screaming to Gendling that it's not them, and please don't shoot. Because they do not yet see themselves in a position of weakness, Thrawn said. They are watching the attack to see if we are weakened sufficiently for them to engage us. Eli shook his head. How do you know all this? All weapons, fire! Chino called. The Thunder Wasp's bridge lit up with flickers of green light as turbo laser bolts shot outward toward the incoming fighters. A few of the vulture droids were hit shattering instantly into brilliant explosions of smoke and debris. But most of them avoided the cruiser's attack with ease. Fire again! Chino bit out. And this time, hit them! They're too small, sir, weapons officer Osgood called back. We're going to have to wait until they're closer. Before Chino could answer, the vulture droids opened up with their own volley of return fire. Deflectors! Chino snapped. His voice, Eli noted, was starting to sound strained. Small wonder. Theoretically, vulture droids should be no match for Imperial ships of the line, but there were a hell of a lot of them. The cruiser's gunners tried their best, but they could do little against the incoming swarm. The smaller craft were too fast, too distant, and too nimble. The Thunder Wasp kept firing, but only a few of the bolts found their targets. Meanwhile, the Vulture Droid's own return fire was tearing into the Thunder Wasp's hull, penetrating gaps in overloaded shields to destroy sensors, weapons emplacements, and a small but rapidly growing number of outer hull plates. Eli looked at the tactical display. So far, the foremost seemed to be holding its own, but the two Raider-class corvettes were being pummeled even harder than the Thunder Wasp. And still, Commander Chino stood on the command walkway, Unmoving, silent, in over his head, helpless. Eli stole a look at Thrawn. The Chiss was also standing motionless, his face as impassive as Chino's. But there was something about him that sent a shiver up Eli's back. Thrawn saw something. Somewhere in all that chaos and destruction, he saw something. Abruptly, he seemed to come to a decision. 
Who here has had combat experience with vulture droids? He called. I have, sir. Hammerly called back, raising her hand. Turbo Laser Station One, Lieutenant, Thrawn ordered. Commander? Hammerly asked, looking at Chino for confirmation. Go, Chino ordered her, his voice grim. Secondary Sensor Officer? I will take the Chief Sensor Officer's position, Thrawn interrupted. Ensign Vanto, with me. A few seconds later, Thrawn was seated at Hammerly's console. Eli stood behind him, trying very hard not to look as nervous as he felt. Bad enough that they were being taken apart by an attacking force they couldn't stop. But by throwing orders around without Chino's approval, Thrawn had effectively usurped command. Eli's mind flashed back to Captain Rossi and Admiral Wiscovis and their reactions to Thrawn's casual disregard for chain-of-command protocol. Now what? He asked in a low voice. Did you already know Hammerly had been in combat? I needed a reason to take her station, Thrawn replied quietly. I have studied Vulture Droids, Ensign. They do not normally fight this effectively. Eli looked at the display. The fighters had closed with the four Imperial ships and were swarming around them, pouring in continual fire while still largely managing to dodge the defender's counterattack. Well, they weren't designed to be very smart on their own, he pointed out. A few simple pre-programmed maneuvers and combat patterns, throw in huge numbers to overwhelm their targets. There, Thrawn jabbed a finger. That group of four, did you see it? Eli frowned. No. Their drive emissions suddenly increased, allowing them to speed up, Thrawn said. But there was no reason for extra speed. They were already evading our attack quite effectively. Okay, Eli said, frowning harder. The group Thrawn had tagged were weaving through the turbo laser blasts and coming around for another volley. He stiffened. There it was. I saw it. Good, Thrawn said. Note how their combat style also changes. Instead of firing with deliberation at vulnerable spots, they fire indiscriminately, whether the target point is worth shooting at or not. Got it, Eli said. The shifts in combat style were subtle, but now that he knew what to look for, they were quite visible. So what does it mean? You said yourself that these droids are not clever, Thrawn said. Their creators assumed a given fighter would not survive long, and so programmed them to be swarming weapons. So burning through their resources as fast as possible, without any long-term considerations? Eli asked, frowning. You sure? Look at the curve of the combat pods, Thrawn said. The shape of the stripes, the position of the blaster barrels. Weapons such as this not only are functional, but also incorporate the artistry of their creators. The beings who created and built these fighters believe in short, quick answers to questions and problems. I'll take your word for it, Eli said. The explanation sounded ridiculous, but he'd seen Thrawn pull equally obscure facts out of equally imperceptible visuals. Where does that leave us? They are designed to swarm, Thrawn said. But they only briefly show that tactic. That leads to the conclusion... He paused expectantly. 
that the rest of the time they're under direct command from somewhere, Eli said, as it suddenly clicked. Somewhere on the outer moon? They were launched from there, Thrawn agreed. But they are not being controlled from there. The changes occur when the fighters fly through the transmission shadow of one of our ships. So if we can find and analyze all the shadows, we can backtrack to the transmitter, Eli said with a sudden surge of hope. And you came here because you needed the sensor station to power through that kind of calculation? Precisely, Thrawn said. Eli felt his lip twitch as the final element fell into place. By masking his insight and revelation this way, Thrawn was hoping to pass on more of the credit to the rest of the Thunder Wasp's crew, and by logical extension, to Commander Chino. One last chance for him to shine in combat. What do you want me to do? I will run the calculations and coordinate the locations and vectors, Thrawn said. You will watch for other shadows and mark them. Right. Eli glanced at the tactical, wincing at all the spots of red that marked major damage to the Imperial ships. Work fast. The next two minutes dragged by. Eli looked back and forth across the battle, catching three more of the subtle changes that marked a fighter briefly running on its own programming. He had no idea how many Thrawn spotted in that same time period, but the Chiss turned abruptly to his board no fewer than ten times. Corvette down! Eli looked at the tactical, his stomach nodding. Where one of the Raider Corvettes had been, there was now a roiling cloud of shattered metal and fire-tinged debris. Sir, he murmured urgently. Done. Thrawn touched a final key. And abruptly, bright yellow crosshairs appeared on the planetary display. Commander Chino, Thrawn called up toward the command walkway. I believe we have isolated the ground-based transmitter that is coordinating the attack. I recommend that you pass this information to Admiral Gendling and request he target and destroy it. What are you talking about? Chino asked, frowning down at him. What transmitter? The one feeding tactical data to the Vulture droids, Thrawn said. The foremost turbolasers are the only ones that can reach effectively to the surface. I see. Chino said. He didn't, Eli suspected, but he knew better than to ignore his first officer's advice. Come, contact the foremost. Inform the Admiral that I need to speak with him immediately. Eli huffed out a long sigh. And with that, it was over. Thrawn had come through again, and it was over. Only this time, it wasn't. Ridiculous. Admiral Gendling scoffed. Even if these fighters are being controlled and haven't simply been reprogrammed, there's no possible way for you to have located the transmitter. Sir, as I explained... And I'm not about to go shooting at random into a civilian city on the strength of some mid-level officer's wild guesswork. Let's talk, Commander. More fighting. Eli winced. In general, not shooting into a civilian population was a perfectly sensible approach to combat. More sensible, in fact, than he would have expected from a lot of Imperial officers. But in this case, the proposed attack was hardly random, and failing to act was likely to be very costly. Now what? 
he asked Thrawn. For a moment, Thrawn stared at the tactical in silence. Then, reaching to the board again, he keyed in a new order. And on both the sensor and tactical displays, a set of moving gray wedges appeared. Signal all ships, he ordered the comm officer. The gray wedges mark the transmission shadows where the vulture droids rely on their own programming. Within those shadows, they will be most vulnerable, and therefore most easily destroyed. He raised his voice. Senior Lieutenant Hamily? On it, sir! She called back. On the tactical, four droids flying through the Thunder Wasp's shadow disintegrated in four bursts of turbolaser fire. That's what you had in mind, sir? It is indeed, Thrawn confirmed. Well done. All ships acknowledge our transmission! The comm officer added. Gunners are switching tactics. And with that, the tide finally began to turn. But it was bloody. In the end, Genling's remaining corvette was severely damaged, nearly half its crew dead or wounded. The Thunder Wasp and Foremost were in better shape, but both ships would need time in a shipyard before they would be combat ready again. The Vulture droids were all destroyed. The Umbarans had surrendered unconditionally. The foremost stormtrooper squads were on the surface and supervising the surrender of the insurgents. And Admiral Gendling was furious. You're lucky I don't bring you up on charges right here and now, Commander, the Admiral said. His expression holds embarrassment and guilt. His tone holds harshness and anger. You do not, do not usurp an Admiral's authority and command that way! I speak for my crew and to my crew! I'm sorry you feel that way, Admiral, Commander Chino said. His tone holds tension, but also resolve. I was simply trying to recapture the initiative in the most efficient way possible and save the battle. And with it, a few lives. Are you mocking me, Commander? Admiral Gendling demanded. Because if you are, as the Emperor as my witness, I'll take you down so hard and so fast, they'll have to scrape up what's left of your career with a flat cake turner. Whose bright idea was it, anyway? I know you didn't come up with any of that yourself. Commander Chino's expression remains resolved. I ordered the information past the foremost and the remaining corvette. There is a small emphasis on the word remaining. As for the discovery of the enemy's weakness, that was a joint effort of my bridge crew. With slow deliberation, Admiral Gendling turned his eyes to Thrawn. His arm and torso muscles are rigid. Your first officer has built himself quite a reputation, he said to Chino. Maybe I should ask him who came up with the transmitter idea. Or maybe you should speak directly with me, Chino said. As you said, the commander speaks for his crew. For three seconds, Genling continues to stare. Then he turns back to Chino. I'll have your career, commander, he said. I'd take your ship too, but it's clear that some upstart half your age will do that. If the upstart is deserving, 
more power to him, Chino said. Genling smiles with malice and pride. This isn't over, Commander. You can be very sure of that. I'll see you at your court-martial. Dismissed! Commander Chino is silent while returning to the shuttle. Only once aboard and in flight does he speak. Well? He said. His voice holds weariness. It looks as if I may not be ending my career quite as quietly as I expected. There is no need to protect me, Thrawn said. The Thunder Wasp's log will answer all his suspicions. Perhaps, Chino said. Logs can be altered, you know. I did not know that. Not easily, of course, Chino said. He offers a small smile. Certainly not legally. Doesn't matter. As he said, you have a reputation. More to the point, he can't really bring up all the details of this supposed breach of protocol without exposing his own ineptitude. No, he'll satisfy himself with destroying my career and leave you and the rest of the Thunder Wasp's crew alone. That is not right or proper. No, but it is reality, Chino said. As I said, my career isn't important. What's important is the future of the Imperial Navy. He gestures with respect and admiration. You're that future Thrawn. It's been a privilege to be your commander. Thank you, sir, Thrawn said. I've learned a great deal serving under you. I doubt that, Chino said. His tone holds dry humor, with no bitterness or resentment. But I thank you, and I too have learned a great deal. Eli had half expected the shuttle to return empty, with both of its passengers consigned to the foremost's brig. To his relief, both Chino and Thrawn emerged from the docking bay. Chino murmured something to Thrawn, and then headed toward the bridge. Thrawn watched until the commander's turbolift car departed, then beckoned Eli to join him. Ensign, he greeted Eli quietly. I presume you wish to know how our meeting with Admiral Gendling went. In brief, not very well. I'm not surprised, Eli said, wincing. The look on Chino's face as he left the docking bay I take it the commander took the brunt of it? Yes, Thrawn said. Partly because he was in command during the battle. Partly because he attempted to shield my role in the outcome. So because Genlink screwed up, he's taken it out on you. Eli growled. I thought only politicians were that level of stupid and nasty. I've found those characteristics in all fields of endeavor, Thrawn said. Has your research uncovered anything of use? Maybe. Eli handed Thrawn his data pad. The building the transmitter was operating from is owned by a group of humans. The locals don't know their names and can't give anything useful in the way of descriptions. But it's clear you were right about Noam Barnes being directly involved in the attack. 
I doubt Admiral Gentling will take that into consideration. No one's taken that into consideration, Eli said sourly. Since most of the unrest and turmoil was concentrated in the mining districts, Gendling's already called for the Empire to take direct control of Umbara's entire mining and refining sector. Interesting, Thrawn said. Did you find any indication that Night Swan was directly involved? The transmitter was run by humans, Eli said. That's as close as we've gotten right now. Still, we know that Night Swan has been involved in mining and metal smuggling elsewhere, Thrawn said. Tell me, how valuable are the Embaran mineral deposits? Very, Banto said. He took his data pad and keyed in a few commands. Several important ones. Key among them, Dunium. Thrawn pondered a moment. Is there any way to calculate a system's success rate against smugglers? You can get a rough figure anyway, Eli said. You take the amount of legitimate shipping on some easily identifiable product, those Paclar and Grist mollusks, for example, and compare it with the amount being sold elsewhere. The numbers are a little loose, and they obviously don't apply to every product type, but as I said, it gives you a rough figure. Understood, Thrawn said. Do you have that figure for Umbara? If possible, I would like it for the success rate of smugglers of rare metals or rare metal ores. Eli called up the relevant numbers, ran a quick mental calculation. It's very good, he said. Somewhere in the 90% range. And the number for a comparable Imperial-controlled world? Eli nodded and busied himself with his data pad. Looks like... Whoa. 65 to 70%. Though from personal family experience, I'd guess it could actually be as low as 40 or 45. It would seem we have found the reason for the attack, Franz said. The purpose for a clearly futile assault upon an Imperial force. Night Swan wished for the Empire to take control of Umbara's mines. Because it's easier for him and his smugglers to cheat material past Imperial inspectors than past the Umbarans. Eli huffed out a breath. I'll grant that it sounds like Night Swan's brand of deviousness, but we don't even know for sure that he was involved. He was, Thrawn said. He is. Who else would invite me here to demonstrate his handiwork? Eli blinked. He what? Surely it is clear, Thrawn said. He set up his mollusk smuggling group in an area he knew the Thunder Wasp was patrolling. He made certain the Umbara was mentioned within the smuggler's hearing. He knew of my interest in Clone War weaponry, and made certain the name Night Swan was on at least one order. Interesting, Eli murmured. On the surface, for Thrawn to even suggest such a thing bordered on the egomaniacal. Still, the Chiss was seldom wrong about tactical matters. And Night Swan wasn't exactly an ordinary mastermind, either. It was entirely possible that he would do such a thing simply for the challenge of it all. Well, if it is him, he lost this one. Not at all, Thrawn said, his voice grim. I defeated his vulture droid attack, 
But winning that encounter was not his true goal. The Imperial Takeover? Or perhaps the Imperial Takeover itself was merely a step, Thrawn said. It may have been his final goal if he was merely a smuggler. But he is more. So if he's not a smuggler, what is he? I do not yet know, Thrawn said. Possibly his activities are building to a political confrontation or resolution on some planet or system. Possibly he seeks vengeance or humiliation against some person or organization. But whatever his goals and motivations, he is a person of extreme interest. I guess we'd better keep an eye out for him then, Eli said. Sooner or later, he has to surface. Incorrect, Ensign. Sooner or later, he will choose to surface. Chapter 14 One is born with a unique set of talents and abilities. One must choose which of those talents to nurture, which to set aside for a time, which to ignore completely. Sometimes the choice is obvious. Other times, the hints and proddings are more obscure. Then one may need to undergo several regimens of training and sample several different professions before determining where one's strongest talents lie. This is the driving force behind many life path alterations. There are few sets of skills that match only one specific job. More often they are adaptable to many different professions. Sometimes one can plan such a change. Other times the change appears without warning. In both instances, one must be alert and carefully consider all options. Not every change is a step forward. It had been a hard day, full of desperate and petty people with desperate and petty problems. By all rights, Arinda should be exhausted. At the same time, it had been a resoundingly successful day, with solutions for nearly all those problems and gushings of heartfelt gratitude. By all rights, she should be ecstatic. She was trying to decide which feeling would dominate her evening and anticipating the start of that evening when there was a warning beep from the outer door. She glanced at the chrono, suppressing a sigh. Technically, the office still had two minutes to go. Realistically, none of today's problems had been solved in less than 20. Her evening was evidently going to start later than she'd hoped. But this was her job, and she was good at it. And there wasn't anything better for 10 kilometers in any direction, including up or down. So, however long this took... Hey, stranger, Juahir said cheerfully as she walked through the inner door. How are you doing? Juahir, Arinda all but gasped, feeling her face light up in a smile. I'm fine. What are you doing in the pricey end of the planet? Oh, this is the pricey end, is it? Driller asked, walking in behind her. Hey, at least you make enough to actually live here. Just barely. 
Orinda said, feeling her smile grow a little brighter. Driller had dropped in on the office a couple of times before his uncle came back to reclaim his apartment, but she hadn't seen him since. As for Jua here, she'd come by only once, and that had been nearly six months ago. They'd talked a few times on the comm, though, and Jua here had a standing invitation to tour the Federal District if she ever found the time to come to this side of the planet. Apparently, she just had. It's great to see both of you, Arinda said, coming around her desk and giving each of them a quick hug. How long are you going to be here? Do you have plans for the evening? I'm off duty in about a minute and a half. You sure they can do without you? Driller asked, looking pointedly at the line of empty desks. Or did the supervisor decide you were so good they didn't need anyone else? No, we're still a fully staffed and thoroughly overworked office, Arinda said. Everyone else just happened to have evening plans, and I volunteered to do the last half hour alone. Well, that's not fair, Juhir said with mock outrage. Serve them right if someone came in here and swept you off your feet. It's not so bad, Orinda said. Actually, I do my best work when I'm alone. You like the extra pressure? Driller asked. I like the lack of witnesses. He gave her a sideways look. You're kidding, right? Orinda shrugged. You'd be amazed how far a little insinuation will get you with an apartment owner. What kind of insinuation? Juahir asked. Hints that you know what she did last night, Orinda said. Or last month, or last year. Throw out a few vague comments, and most people will fill in the rest. Once they do, they're a lot more open to settling the problem the tenant is having. Assuming they have some hidden dirt to fill in, Juahir pointed out. Everyone has hidden dirt, Orinda said. You never said how long you would be here. You never answered my comment about someone sweeping you off your feet, Juahir countered. I thought you were joking, Orinda said, aware of the permanent hollow spot in the core of her being. She'd met many men over the past year, some of whom had tried to befriend or romance her. She'd tried with a few of them, really, really tried, but nothing had worked out. Nor had she met anyone, man or woman, whom she could call a friend. In her line of work, everyone she encountered started by thinking of her as a helper, champion, or even mother figure. None of those was a good basis for a balanced emotional connection. I never joke about food, Juahir said solemnly. We're hungry. And we bet you are, too. So shut this place down and let's go. I'm with you, Orinda said, starting her computer's lockdown procedure. Fair warning, I can't afford to take you anywhere near as fancy as the Alessandre Hotel this time around. Don't worry, we've got it covered, Juahir said with an impish smile. We already have reservations. At the Alessandre? Seriously? No, 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 Juahir pointed upward. At the pinnacle. Arinda felt her eyes widen. The pinnacle? You're joking. Nope, Juahir said, grinning even more broadly. You game? 
sure. Arinda looked down at her clothing. In that case, I need to change. No problem, Juahir said. We budgeted time for that. The pinnacle wasn't the highest point on Coruscant, but it was the highest point in the Federal District, and it provided magnificent views of the palace, the Senate building, and the various ministries and monuments clustered around them. The clientele matched the view. Every third table, it seemed, sported a face Orinda remembered from her days working for Senator Ranking. It was exhilarating, but at the same time it was vaguely depressing. She'd come to Coruscant to gain connections and influence and to work her way up the political ladder. Instead, she'd ended up stuck, barely a few rungs from the bottom. And as she gazed across the room and up the ladder looming mockingly over her, her one-time goal of regaining price mining faded ever more into the mists of never. But the food was good enough to almost drive away the wistful pangs of resentment at how she'd been treated. Once or twice along the way, she wondered how Juahir and Driller were paying for all this. But what with the excitement, the memories, and the sheer taste sensations, she didn't wonder very much or very hard. So, how does it feel being back in the skylines of power? Juahir asked as the waiter delivered their dessert plates. Very nice, Lorinda said. I thought I'd put all this behind me, but there really is a lure to it all. So if you could come back to this life, you would? Arinda gave a little snort. <laughs> what, is Senator Ranking hiring? Probably not. Juahir nodded sideways to Driller. But Driller is. Arinda frowned at him. Really? For what? For a position with my advocacy group, he said. You do remember that's what I do, right? Of course, Arinda said. I just assumed that people like you were on a hook-string budget. You're really hiring? We really are, he said, nodding. And you didn't snatch it up? Arinda asked, looking at Jua here. Whatever it is has to be a hundred steps up from waitressing at Topples. I'm not waitressing anymore, Juahir said, frowning. You know that. I dusted off my old martial arts stuff and got into bodyguard training, remember? Since when? Arinda asked, frowning right back. Juahir had sometimes talked about her school-age hand-to-hand combat work, but she'd never even hinted she might want to do that sort of thing professionally. Since about four months after you moved here from Bash 4, Juahir said. I started part-time with a little dojo 400 levels down from my apartment. And when a full-time position opened up... <laughs> Look, I told you all this. You most certainly did not, Arinda said. But... <laughs> Juahir looked entreatingly at Driller. Hey, don't look at me, he said quickly. You told me you told her. I'm so sorry, Rinda, Juahir said, wincing. I would have sworn. Anyway, I've moved over here and have a job at the Yin Cham Dojo now. We do civilian training, 
but we're also licensed to train government bodyguards. We've got a handful of guards from the Senate with some good word of mouth bringing in new ones. There are 130 levels down from your office, but thinking of looking for someplace higher, Driller added. Pluses and minuses, Juahir said. The lower levels are more discreet for aides and assistants whose senators want them to double as bodyguards, but don't want the whole world to know they've been training. The higher levels are more prestigious and might draw more people who are supposed to look like guards. And are more expensive, Driller murmured. A lot more expensive, <laughs> Juahir agreed, crinkling her nose. Anyway, to get back to your original question, that's one reason Driller didn't offer me the job. Orinda had almost forgotten that was where this conversation had started. And the other reason? We're looking for an expert in mines, mining and refining, Driller said. Jua here doesn't know the first thing about that stuff, while you know the first thing, the last thing, and all the things in between. I wouldn't go that far, Orinda said modestly, her mind racing. Working for an advocacy group wasn't a huge step up, status-wise, but it would once again take her into the centers of political power. That alone made it worth pursuing. Not to mention it would get her away from desperate citizens and their desperate problems. The downside of the job is that it doesn't come with an apartment like your assistance office job does. Driller continued. But Joey here's got a decent-sized place. It's closer to the Senate building, and she's already told me she'd love a roommate. Absolutely, Joey here confirmed. You have no idea how many times I've collapsed onto the couch, every muscle aching, and wish there was someone there to make dinner without me having to move. I'm pretty good with dinner, Orinda said with a shrug. In politics, she'd learned it never paid to look too eager. And I'm definitely ready to move on to something else. Where and when do I apply for the job? You just did, Driller said with a grin. Seriously, I've already floated your name, and the rest of the group has already vetted you. If you want the job, it's yours. Arinda took a deep breath. The hell with not looking too eager. I want the job. Great! Driller picked up his dessert, frowning a little at Jua here. So, is it proper etiquette to toast a momentous event with a dessert plate? I don't know, Jua here said, picking up her own plate. Let's find out. And just like that, Orinda was back. It was like waking up from a bad dream. Suddenly, she was among the elite again walking the ornate hallways of the Senate and office buildings, speaking to the people who ruled the Empire. Not just speaking, either, but actually being listened to. Back when she'd been delivering data card packets for Senator Ranking, most of the recipients had barely noticed her. But licensed advocacy groups had prestige, if not any actual power, and they were noticed. Now, suddenly, it seemed like everyone knew her face and her advocacy group. Some of them even remembered her name. Orinda had survived the lower levels of the federal district. But up here, where the sun shone and the brightest lights glittered, was where she wanted to be. She was back 
and she would never leave it. Ever. Whatever it took to stay in the sky lanes of power, she would do it. Okay, Driller said, sitting Arinda down in front of the Higher Skies Advocacy Group's main computer. Last job of the day, I promise. You promised that two jobs ago, she reminded him. Who, me? He said, looking innocent. I know, I know. What can I say? You're the mining expert. That means you get all the mining expert jobs. Right, Arinda agreed. It wasn't like anyone else could do it, after all. Mainly because there never seemed to be anyone else around. At first, she puzzled about that. Driller had explained that most of the time the other members were out of the office, talking to senators or aides, visiting the various ministries, or traveling off-planet to talk with governors or moths, or just gather first-hand information. He'd also reminded Arinda that she herself was often out of the office, and suggested that it was simple bad luck that she'd missed crossing paths with any of the others. It was a lie, of course. Arinda had figured that out very early on. Either the rest of the staff was off doing nefarious things, or else there was no other staff. But she didn't care. Driller paid on time, and he had enough spare credits to keep her in outfits suitable for the rarefied company she kept these days. More important, his license continued to give her access to the Empire's powerful. Ultimately, that was all that mattered. So, here's what we need, Driller said, reaching over her shoulder and tapping a few keys. There seems to have been an unusual number of Imperial takeovers lately, mining facilities and sometimes whole planets. I want you to pull up the list and evaluate it for the importance of the mines in question, the circumstances of the Imperial takeover, and anything else that might establish a pattern as to what's going on. What? What do you mean, what? Arinda asked. Your face went all puckered just then, Driller said. Is there a problem? Uh, no, Arinda said. She hadn't realized she'd reacted. Sorry, I was just thinking about the Empire taking over our family's mind three years ago. Oh, sorry. I'd forgotten about that. Driller apologized. If it's too uncomfortable for you to do this... No, no, I'm fine, Arinda assured him. Okay, he said. And don't feel like you have to finish tonight. I've got a late appointment. You okay with closing up alone? Sure, Arinda said. The apartment she shared with Jua here was 200 levels down, and not in the best part of the district. But the rowdies usually didn't come out into the walkways and platforms until the sunlight had faded from the bits of clear sky above. At this time of year, that was a good two hours away. Enjoy. Right he said dryly. A meeting with a Senate doorkeeper? It's going to be so much fun. He headed out, locking the door behind him, and Rinda settled in to read. She had assumed Driller was imagining things, seeing patterns and conspiracies that turned out to be figments of his overblown imagination. He had a tendency to do that. But in this case, he was right on the mark. There were 28 mines on the list. 
28 imperial takeovers dating back to a year before Ranking had ripped price mining out of Arinda's hands. The majority of them, though, 21 to be precise, had occurred during the past year. She dug through the list, scanning the basic elements, occasionally digging into or at least skimming the accompanying subfiles, looking for common threads. She reached the entry on the most recent event, an attack on an Imperial task force off Umbara. She paused, frowning, as one of the names in the report caught her eye. Captain Thrawn. No, she murmured under her breath. Surely it couldn't be the same blue-skinned non-human she'd met at the Alessandra Hotel a year ago. That Thrawn had been a lieutenant, and this one was a captain. And she'd heard somewhere that it typically took 10 to 15 years in the Navy to ladder that far up the ranks. But it was him, all right. There was a subfile attached, giving the details of the battle, and the accompanying images left no doubt. The lowly lieutenant that Colonel Ularin had been trying to rescue had leapt to command rank in less than two years. Mentally, she shook her head. Either he was amazingly competent, or he had impressively powerful friends. Interesting, but not her concern. Putting him out of her mind, she got back to work. Focused on her analysis, she didn't notice the time slipping away. And it was a shock when she looked at the chrono and realized the sun had been down for over half an hour. The rowdies would be starting to gather. But the trip back to her apartment should still be safe, if she hurried. She closed down the computer system and headed out, locking the door behind her. The faint daylight from overhead had long since vanished, but the increased intensity from the street lamps and brassy advertising signs more than made up for it. Still, the lack of sun somehow created a psychological illusion of darkness. Up here, where the police were vigilant, things were all right. But in the lower parts of the district, the rowdies would be gathering to drink, spice up, and make noise. Some of them, eventually, would also start making trouble. The turbolift car, when it arrived, was packed. The next car might be more comfortable, but Arinda wasn't in the mood to wait. Fortunately, the passengers began filing out almost immediately as the car stopped at the more elite residence levels, just below the government offices. Twenty levels above hers, her last companion got out, leaving her alone. Not an ideal situation. Certainly not at this hour and this deep. But she should be all right. And as long as she had the car to herself, she might as well take advantage of the unexpected privacy. Pulling out her comm, she keyed for Juahir. Hey! Juahir answered cheerfully. What's up? You got dinner going? Not exactly, Arinda said. I got tied up at the office, and I'm just heading home now. Oh, Juahir said, her voice going serious. You okay? Where are you? In the turbo lift heading down, Arinda said, watching the indicator. I'm almost... She broke off, her breath catching in her throat. The car had reached her level, but instead of stopping, 
it continued moving down. Do you hear? It didn't stop, Orinda said, fighting to keep her voice even. Belatedly, she lunged for the control board and punched the next button down. Too late. The car had already passed that level. She tried again, picking a button ten levels farther down this time. Again, the car reached the landing and continued on without stopping. Orinda? Orinda? It's not stopping, Orinda ground out. This time, she ran her finger down the whole column of buttons. The car ignored all of them, and it was picking up speed. Jua here, I can't stop it, she said. It's heading down, and I can't stop it. Okay, don't panic, Jua here said firmly. There's an emergency stop button. You see it? Yes, Arinda said. It was at the very bottom of the panel, protected by a faded orange cover. After years of uneventful travel, she'd forgotten it was even there. She flipped up the cover, revealing a less faded orange button underneath, and pressed it. And grabbed for the handrail as the car screeched to a sudden halt. For a moment, all was silence. Arinda? Juahir called tentatively. Arinda found her voice. I'm okay, she said. It stopped, finally. Where are you? Arinda peered at the indicator. Level 4120. Juahir whistled softly. A thousand from the top. Okay. You took your usual turbo lift, right? Right. The car doors slid open. Cautiously, Orinda peered outside. She'd never been this far down before, but it looked exactly the way the vids and hollows portrayed it. Garish display signs blazed everywhere, much brighter and more strident than the ones higher up, promoting shops or advertising products, or flickering with the visual static of malfunction or unpaid bills. Contrasting with the bright colors, was the stolid, faded white of the street lamps, about three-quarters of them working, the rest struggling to maintain illumination or gone completely dark. The walkways beneath the lights, like the lights themselves, were mostly fine, but there were enough broken and missing tiles to emphasize that she was no longer in the city's upper levels. The building fronts behind the signs ran the gamut from carefully maintained and almost cheerful to struggling and faded, to dilapidated and slum-like. And everything, even the bravely painted storefronts, seemed dirty. And then there were the people. There weren't many pedestrians on the walkways right now. Most of them were traveling in groups of three or more, as if no one wanted or dared to be alone and all of them were walking in the odd gait of people who wanted to hurry, but didn't want to look like they were hurrying. Like the buildings and the walkways, the people also seemed dirty. Okay. Juahir's voice came from the comm. You're going to have to move. That turbolift's obviously broken, and you don't want to wait there until someone comes to fix it. There's another turbolift about six blocks to the west. Can you see the sign? Rinda squinted down the walkway, but the turbolift indicator sign, if it was even theoretically visible from this angle, was completely swallowed up by the glare of the display signs. No, but I can get there. 
Okay, go. Jewa here ordered. We're on our way. We'll try to meet you before you get there. Arinda frowned. We? Is Driller with you? Just get moving. Hide your comm. It'll tag you as top class, and you don't want that. And be careful. I will. Keying off, Arinda tucked her comm back into her pocket. She took a final look around, then headed down the walkway, trying to match the not-hurrying pace of the others. It wasn't too bad, actually. The people were rough-edged and a little on the skittish side, and she had no doubt they were both willing and able to engage in rough stuff if the mood struck them. But back in Bash 4, she'd learned tricks of expression and body language that made people think twice before engaging with her. Luckily, the pattern here seemed to be the same as it had back there. The handful of people who got close enough to get a good look at her passed by without comment and without slowing. She'd made it four blocks and could finally see the turbolift indicator sign when it all fell apart. They came without warning, six of them. Gangly youths hopped on spice or something worse, boiling out of a pair of dark doorways between two broken lights. Two of them carried long chains. The other four had short blades held casually in their hands. Hey, sweets! One of the chain carriers called. Looking for some fun? Arinda threw a quick look over her shoulder. Two more thugs had emerged from concealment behind her. With a sinking feeling, she realized she was trapped. To her left were the windows and doorways of small businesses already shut for the night. To her right was a two-meter-high railing between the walkway and a sheer drop of at least 20 levels before she even hit anything solid. Not interested, thanks, she called back, trying to keep her voice steady. She'd tussled with friends when she was growing up and had had to deal with the occasional drunk or spice head back on Lothal, but she'd never faced anything like this. She could call the police, but they were spread all over the district, and the thugs were right here. Trouble would reach her long before any help could. She could turn and run, and hope she could somehow get past the two men behind her. But there was nothing back there but unfamiliar walkways and a broken turbo lift. Ah, oh, don't be like that, the thug said, mock sweetly. You want a drink? Sure you do. So do we. You can buy us all one. You got money, right? Arinda felt her stomach tighten into a knot. What the hell was she going to do? Behind the six thugs, a man and woman had come into view, striding toward the confrontation through the shadows of another pair of broken street lamps. Arinda watched them, feeling a surge of hope. This was her chance. If the couple got too close before they realized what was happening, she might be able to point the thugs in that direction and get away while they were occupied with more interesting prey too late. The man came to a stop ten meters behind the thugs as he apparently spotted the trouble. If he and the woman turned and ran right now, they'd probably make it back to the turbo lift before the rowdies could catch them. Except that the woman hadn't stopped when her companion did. She was still walking toward the thugs as if she didn't even see them, 
Orinda braced herself. The thug's spokesman must have heard the approaching footsteps. He started to turn as the woman reached him. Without even pausing, the woman snapped her leg up, jabbing the edge of her foot into the back of his knee. The leg collapsed beneath him. He got one hand on the pavement, howling in rage and pain as he flailed for balance. His cursing abruptly cut off as the woman slammed the back of her fist into the side of his neck. He collapsed to the walkway and lay still. For a single second, the other thugs froze, gaping in bewilderment. The woman didn't give them time to recover from their shock. Even as her first target fell, she snatched the chain from his nerveless fingers and threw it at the heads of the three youths on her right. Two of them managed to dodge. The third caught the chain squarely across his throat and dropped with a tortured gurgle as the chain rattled onto the pavement beside him. The woman spun to face the two standing on her left, but the gang had had enough. The four still on their feet took off at top speed, sprinting past Arinda on either side without even a glance. Arinda spun around as they passed, saw that the two who'd been behind her were already tearing into the garish lights of the night. You all right? Arinda turned back, feeling her jaw drop. Jewy here? Yeah, hi. You okay? Jewy here gripped Arinda's shoulder, looking her up and down. Did they get to you? No, Arinda managed. The man Juahir had been walking with had finally come unglued from the walkway and was walking toward them. I was... You surprised me. I said we were coming, Juahir reminded her, waving her companion forward. Arinda Price, meet Atlas Doss. Atlas is a bodyguard who's been taking some extra hand-to-hand -hand classes at the dojo. We just finished our session and were heading home when I got your call. He offered to come along in case I needed him. I guess you didn't, Arinda said, eyeing the man closely. He didn't look much like a bodyguard. Nope, <laughs> Jewy here said. And before you ask, he let me take them on by myself because I told him to. He's a government employee. If he beats someone down, there's a massive data work he has to fill out. Assuming the victims file a complaint, Arinda murmured. Well, there's that, Jewy here conceded. Regardless, as a private citizen, all I have to do is claim self-defense or defense of others, and I walk. Nice when the law works on the side of the people. You mean for a change? Atlas asked. His voice was smooth and resonant, pleasant and almost cheerful. Again, not the kind of voice Arinda would expect from a man who beat people bloody for a living. That's not what I said, Arinda protested. It's okay. Atlas has no illusions as to how imperial law is stacked, Juahir said. He works for... well, actually... He's not supposed to talk about his job or employer. <laughs> Sorry. Not a problem, Orinda said, taking a second look. That kind of mandated silence usually implied someone very high up the political ladder lurking behind the curtain. This Atlas character might be worth cultivating. 
we should get moving now, don't you think? Absolutely, Jewy here said. Whenever you're ready. I'm ready now, Arinda said. She took a step and found herself fighting unexpectedly for balance as one leg tried to collapse beneath her. Whoa, Jewy here said, catching her arm. Let me help. Thanks, Arinda said, her face heating with embarrassment. I'm not scared, you know. Just shaking. Don't worry. It happens to everyone, Juahir said, peering closely at her. Adrenaline and delayed shock. You ever think about taking some self-defense training? I've thought about it a lot, Arinda assured her as they started walking toward the turbo lift. Mostly in the past three minutes. How much does your dojo charge? Unfortunately, we're totally booked at the moment, Juahir said, wrinkling her nose in thought. We might be able to refer you to... She broke off and looked at Atlas, who'd taken up position on Arinda's other side. What about you? Would you be willing to give Arinda an hour's training before or after your classes? We could work out a discount. I couldn't ask you to do that, Arinda protested. Juhir, stop it. You're embarrassing him. Not at all, Atlas said, inclining his head to her. I'd be delighted to give you some instruction. It's been said that a man never truly understands a subject until he teaches it. But do you even have the time? Arinda pressed. Joey here said you were someone's bodyguard. Yes, but at the moment I'm just helping guard an empty office suite, Atlas said. My employer won't be arriving for his next visit for at least six more weeks. More than enough time to instruct you in the basics. He smiled, almost shyly, and perhaps a bit more. Arinda looked back at Jua here. There was an oddly innocent expression on the other woman's face. Was this maybe not just about self-defense training? And suddenly, Arinda realized she didn't care. She could really use another friend in this city. If Jua here wanted to play matchmaker, more power to her. Okay, you've got yourself a deal, she said. Both of you, she added, looking back and forth between them. On one condition. Which is? Atlas asked. I get to take you out to dinner tonight, Orinda said. Both of you. Chapter 15 Many of those skilled in technological warfare believe that physical training and discipline are unnecessary. With turbo lasers, hyperdrives, armor plating, and the mental resources to direct them, muscular strength and agility are thought to be merely conceits. They are wrong. The mind and body are linked together in a meshwork of oxygen. Nutrients, hormones, and neuron health Physical exercise drives that meshwork, stimulating the brain and freeing one's intellect. Simulated combat has the additional virtue of training the eye to spot small errors and exploit them. A change in focus can also allow the subconscious mind 
to focus on unresolved questions. Simulated combat often ends with the warrior discovering that one or more of those questions has been unexpectedly solved. And occasionally, such exercise can serve other purposes. I do not understand, Thrawn said, his usually impassive face troubled as he gazed at the datapad report. If Thrawn were a lesser being, Eli reflected, he would almost say the Chiss was confused. What's there to understand? Eli asked. It's the result everyone expected. The glowing red eyes bored into Eli's. Everyone? Mostly. Eli hedged. Yes, that was definitely what he might characterize as confusion. Really? It's just Navy politics as usual. But it violates all tactical reason, Thrawn objected. Commander Chino acquitted himself well, and the actions of his ship won the battle and saved many lives. How does High Command conclude that he must be relieved of duty? They didn't relieve him exactly. Eli pointed out. The communication stated that he'd been permitted to retire. Is there a difference in the result? Not really, Eli admitted. You're right. Letting him retire is mostly just a sweet shell. As I say, politics. Gendling's well-connected, and his delicate little pride got bruised, so he's taken it out on Chino. Thrawn looked again at the data pad. It is a foolish waste of resources. Agreed, Eli said. But it could have been worse. How so? Really? Eli asked, frowning. Was it really not obvious to him? You were the one Gendling really wanted to nail to the bulkhead. Chino might have been able to save himself if he told the panel you overreached your authority. But he didn't. Since they had nothing on you... They threw him to the wolves instead. Thrawn was silent another three steps. A foolish waste, he murmured again. Eli sighed. He might as well get used to it. Again, the glowing red eyes turned on him. What do you mean? Eli hesitated. It really wasn't his place to say this, but if he didn't, who else would? and for all Thrawn's military skill and insight, he seemed incapable of seeing this one on his own. I mean, sir, there's a good chance that you're going to leave a trail of damaged careers in your wake. In fact, you already have. Commander Chino, Admiral Wascovis, Commandant Deanlark, all of them have had official feathers ruffled in their direction. There was no such intent on my part. I know that, Eli said. It's not because of anything you've done. It's just the political reaction to, well, to you. That was never my intent in accepting the Emperor's service. Intent isn't the point, Eli said patiently. The problem is that you don't fit into the neat little box Navy officers are supposed to fill. You're not human. Worse, you're not from the core worlds. Neither are you or many others. 
but the rest of us wild space yokels aren't flying rings around all the politically connected elite who think they're such flaming hot stuff, Eli pointed out. You're showing them up, and they resent you for it. And if they can't take you down, they'll go after the people they think help make you who you are. People like you. Eli let his gaze drift away. Yes, people like him. People who still had the lowly rank they'd graduated the academy with while everyone else was energetically climbing the ladder. But this conversation wasn't about him. This conversation and warning were about Thrawn. They'd probably come after me if they thought I was worth the effort, he said, sidestepping the question. Do you suggest I try to be less capable? Of course not, Eli said firmly. You do that and more people will die and more bad guys get away. I'm just pointing out that you need to be aware that you're in the political crosshairs. I understand, Thrawn said. I will endeavor to learn the rules and tactics of this form of warfare. In the meantime, is there anything we can do for Commander Chino? Just wish him well, I guess, Eli said. Even if you could persuade someone to listen to an appeal, he'd never command a ship again. This way, at least he got to go out on a high note. Except as we know, it was only a partial victory. We suspect, Eli corrected, lowering his voice. We don't know that's what Night Swan was going for. He pointed to the door ahead. The door with the simple gold Imperial Security Bureau plaque above the smaller Colonel Wolf Yularen nameplate. Maybe this is where we'll get those answers. Colonel Yularen was waiting behind his desk when they arrived. Welcome, Captain Thrawn, Ensign Vanto, he greeted them. Sit down. Thank you, Colonel, Thrawn said. I trust you have news for us. Yes. But not the news you want, Ilarin said sourly. Speaking of news, I just heard that your commander Chino got stabbed in the back by the court-martial panel. I'm sorry. Thank you, Colonel, Thrawn said. He was a good officer. So I've heard, Ilarin said. Not great, but he didn't deserve to get bounced out that way. His eyes narrowed. Any blowback toward you, either of you? He added, looking at Eli. Not that we've heard, sir, Eli said. Good, Yularen said. They may not especially like you at high command, Thrawn, but they can't ignore the fact that you get results. He scowled. Unfortunately, our results aren't quite up to your standards. We've done a complete search of every document ISB can get its hands on. The name Night Swan has cropped up on everything from metal smuggling to antiques purchases to the organization of protests and unrest. But we still don't have the slightest idea who he really is. Interesting, Thrawn said. You said he organized protests. Protests against whom? Pretty much everyone. Yularen said. Mostly government, local and imperial both, but also corporations, manufacturing interests, even shipping companies. His eyes flicked back and forth as he read from his computer display. 
We haven't found anything in common among his various targets, either. Maybe he just likes making trouble. May I have a list of all activities he's associated with? Thrawn asked. Of course. Yularen picked up a data card and handed it across the desk. What are you hoping to find? A pattern, Thrawn said. You say his targets appear random. But I believe we will find something connecting the locations, timing, or personnel involved. Many of his schemes involve the theft of dunium or other precious metals. Is there a chance he is driven by what he considers theft, or... He looked at Eli. Gubudalu? Eli frowned. Gubudalu? What in the world was that one? Quickly, he ran the Cybisti route and modifiers. Ah, usurpation, he said. Thank you, Thrawn said. Could he be driven by the theft or usurpation of some personal or family mining interests? Interesting thought, Yularen said. Your typical smugglers, pirates, and thieves don't like to draw attention to themselves. But Night Swan slaps his name all over the place. He pursed his lips. Could be he's planning some major operation and wants to get everyone looking somewhere else. I remember a group of armed smugglers during the Clone Wars who liked to set fires on one side of a city to draw the police and firefighters there, then hit a weapons depot on the other side. Indeed, Thrawn said. What about Coruscant? Is there unrest here? You must be joking, Yularen said with a snort. Go down two thousand levels, and you'll find all the unrest you could ever want. Go down four thousand, and you might as well be in wild space. So this would be a fertile ground for anti-imperial protests? It would, Yularen agreed. Except that all the centers of power are up here, and we've got the best police, military, and private defense forces anywhere in the galaxy. Hell, we've got combat dojos that do nothing but train Senate and Ministry bodyguards. Night Swan could agitate from here until Ascension Week without making a single dent in anything that matters. One would think Nubia equally immune to such threats. Thrawn indicated an entry on his datapad. Yet this protest at the Circle Bay Mayor's office seems to have been quite effective. That was a unique case, Yularen growled. The perpetrators managed to get the entire kitchen staff fired, then infiltrated the new staff with their own people. Once you've got someone on the inside, you can pull off almost anything. Exactly. Thrawn said. You said there were dojos that specifically work with Senate bodyguards? Yes, Yularen murmured, frowning with sudden interest. Yes, I see where you're going. But most of the bodyguards who train at those places are already employed. I doubt a senator would go to one of the dojos to hire replacements or extra staff. He or she would probably get those from an accredited agency. Yalaren stood up. Still, it's been a long time since ISB looked at any of those places. 
might be worth taking a tour of the Federal District's combat subculture. Either of you care to join us? Welcome to the Yin Chom Dojo. The boy seated cross-legged on the floor to the right of the jaw rises to his feet. His voice has the clearness of youth, with cheerfulness beneath the solemnity. He bows at the waist toward Colonel Ularen, then repeats the gesture to each of the other four of the group. Abandon the tedium and cares of life, all who enter, and prepare your minds and bodies for the rigors and joys of combat. We will, Ularen said. His voice is calm and official. But there is a hint of humor beneath it, as well as appreciation for the boy's performance. I'm Colonel Ularen. I wish to speak to the owner of this place. Can you go and bring her to us? I can, the boy acknowledged. He bows again to Ularen. Please, come inside. The group filed into the dojo. The boy waited until all five were standing against the wall, then headed off around the edge of the training room. Not nearly as impressive as the last one, sir, Vanto murmured. No, Thrawn agreed. A little small and a little too far from sunlight to be considered top line, Ylaren agreed. He looked slowly across the training area, his eyes flicking back and forth, taking in the details. A sparring duo works in each of the central mat's corners. One duo empty hand, the second empty hand against blade, the third and fourth stick against stick. A young human female circles the center of the mat, calling occasional instructions and corrections to each of the pairs. On the other hand, Thirty senators have sent one or more of their bodyguards here for updated training or sparring over the past five years, Ularen continued. So the place must have something going for it. Owner's a Tagorian, named Hisishi. The boy, continuing around the room, passes a woman seated on a bench against the wall. Sir? Vanto said suddenly. He nods toward the woman. That woman. We've seen her someplace before. The boy passes the woman, and she stands and makes her way around the edge of the mat. An overly wide round kick comes near. She leans gracefully out of its path. An indication of moderate proficiency in skill. She reaches the Imperials and inclines her head. Welcome to the Incharm Dojo, Captain Thrawn she said, raising her voice to be heard over the clash of combat sticks. I'm Arinda Price. You probably won't remember, but we met once at an Ascension Week reception in the Alessandra Hotel, back when you were a senior lieutenant. Certainly I remember you, Miss Price, Thrawn said. You are an aide to Senator Domus Ranking. You have a remarkable memory, Captain, Price said. I'm no longer with Senator Ranking's office, though. I work now for an advocacy group. I see, Thrawn said. May I reintroduce my companions, Colonel Ularin and Ensign Vanto? I remember you both, 
Price said. She nods a greeting to each of them. Her eyes shift briefly to the two ISB agents standing silent watch behind them. How may I assist you? We wish to speak to the owner, Yularen said. The boy's gone to get her. Who is the woman overseeing the sparring? Thrawn asked. That's Juahir Madras, one of the instructors, Price said. Are you here for a class? Yularen asked. No, Price said. My boss thought I might be able to establish a few contacts with some of the high-level bodyguards who train here, so I've been hanging around for the past few days, chatting with people. Ah, here's Hisishi now. A large feline being appears in one of the doorways leading from the side of the main room. She is covered in short brown-white fur, and dressed in a combination kilt and bandolier. Her yellow eyes focus on each of the visitors in turn. She looks at each of the sparring duos, then at Instructor Madras. Cease! She called. Instantly, the sparring halted. In the silence, Hisishi strode across the mat, moving with grace on her back-jointed legs. She passed Instructor Madras without a glance and came to a halt beside Price. Good day to you, officers of the Empire, she said. Her voice is sibilant but clear. I am Hisishi, master of the Yinchom Dojo. How may I serve you? The sparring duo stand facing the visitors, their facial heat intense from heavy exercise. Instructor Madras's expression and stance show uneasiness. Her gaze is on Yularen's chest, not his face. I am Colonel Yularen, Yularen said. This is Captain Throng, Imsant Vanto, Officers Ronton and Brook. We're doing a routine spot check of the Tojos in the Federal District, with particular interest in government contracts and bodyguard training. I presume you have full records of both? Of course, Hisishi said. I will get them for you. Before you do, Thrawn said, we are also interested in trainers for a possible new urban combat unit. Do you teach advanced stick fighting? We do, Hisishi confirmed. Have you had training in that art? I've had the basics, Thrawn said. I would like to observe your best technique firsthand. Certainly, Hisishi said. Instructor Madras and I will offer you a demonstration. There is no need to involve any others, Thrawn said. Instructor Madras, please bring the sticks. Instructor Hisishi and I will spar. Sir? Vanto asked. His voice is surprised and wary, but there is no understanding in it. He doesn't see the patterns, nor has he woven together the facts and possibilities. Madras walks to the center of the mat, the fighting sticks in her hands. Her body stance holds uneasiness. Miss Price, please walk alongside me, Thrawn said. There is a question I wish to ask. 
Of course. Price moved to his side. Thrawn, Price, and Hisishi walked to the center of the mat. You said you worked for an advocacy group, Thrawn said. Which one? It's called the Higher Skies Group, Price said. Thank you, Thrawn said. Stand clear now. Instructor Hisishi, let us begin. Price and Madras stepped away. The timer is for three minutes. Hisishi said. She crossed her sticks in salute. Thrawn mirrored the gesture. They began. Hisishi is a good fighter, but her focus is solely on the combat, with no thought for other matters. She does not notice as the relative positions are slowly altered until Price and Madras are within view. Both watch the combat, neither speaking to the other, though a quick conversation could have occurred before they were fully in view. Their expressions are inconclusive. Both women are fascinated by the combat, with all fears, concerns, and thoughts submerged. With Hisishi herself, there are no longer doubts. The three minutes end. Hisishi steps back and again crosses her sticks. Excellent, Captain she said. Your style is unknown to me, but you have clearly been well trained. Thank you, Instructor, Thrawn said. He crossed his own sticks and then offered them to Madras. She walks forward and takes them, her eyes avoiding his gaze. Perhaps the next time I have duty on Coruscant you will teach me some of your style. It is of your species. Yes, a Tagorian form, she said. I hope you will find the time. I would welcome you as both student and teacher. And now, Colonel Ularan, I will retrieve the records you requested. They waited while she went to her office and returned with a data card. Ularan accepted it, then led the group back outside. Well... That was interesting, Ularn commented as they walked toward their air car. I assume, Captain, that you didn't simply feel the need for a little exercise? Indeed, Thrawn said. I presume you noted that Instructor Madras did not stop the sparring when we first entered. She didn't stop when Price came over to talk, either, Ularn said. His tone conveys thoughtfulness. And that despite the fact that the noise made conversation difficult. They didn't stop until Hisishi ordered them to, Vanto added. I assume you think it wasn't just rudeness? Ularan asked. I think she knows who I am, Thrawn said. She certainly knows who you are, Colonel. And so she stalled our meeting, wishing additional time to prepare herself. Interesting. Ularan said. Unfortunately, it's a reaction ISB agents see all the time. Everyone has dirty secrets. But not everyone has secrets concerning higher skies, Thrawn said. The advocacy group? Ularan asked. Yes, Thrawn said. It is the one with which Ms. Price works. I asked about it before the sparring. 
and watched instructor Madras as Ms. Price supplied me with the name. She reacted with discomfort. You're sure? Yes, Thrawn said. For one reason or another, the group bears investigation. So once you had the name and Madras's reaction, why did you go ahead with the fight? Vanto asked. I have developed a certain skill for reading human emotions, Thrawn said. I do not have such a baseline for Tagorians. I wish to know if Hisishi, too, was concerned that I know of Ms. Price's connection with Higher Skies. So you gave her the chance to take you out, Vanto said slowly. His tone holds growing understanding. You were the only one of us who'd heard the name. So if she wanted to, she could knock you down, claim it was an accident, and buy herself and the group some time. Correct, Thrawn said. To be more precise, I offered what looked like opportunities to injure me. They were, of course, illusory. Of course, Vanto said. His tone is properly respectful, but also holds irony. So, when you were attacked at Royal Imperial Academy? I wish to study the attacker's capabilities, Thrawn said. I would have protected you from serious harm, as indeed I protected myself. You'll have to tell me all about that one sometime, Captain. Yularen pulls out his comling. I'll get ISB started on higher skies and see what we can dig up. I would caution that the investigation be careful and low-key, Thrawn said. They will be alert now to such a probe, and we do not wish to drive them away. Yes, we do know how to handle investigations, thank you. I meant no offense, Thrawn said. I would also consider it a favor if you would allow me to observe your progress. Sorry, but that won't be possible, Yularen said. New orders came in while you were batting sticks with Hisishi. Ensign Vanto picked them up. He gestures to Vanto. Ensign? Yes, sir, Vanto said. His voice holds hidden frustration. For the next four weeks, while the Thunder Wasp undergoes repairs, you'll be at the palace with Emperor Palpatine. Once the repairs are complete, it'll return to Mid-Rim and Outer Rim patrol duties. He pauses, his frustration growing deeper. Under the authority of its newly appointed captain, Commander Thrawn. Congratulations, Commander, Yularen murmured. Thank you. Thrawn said. He had been promoted, yet Vanto had not. That wasn't as it should be. Vanto had held the rank of Ensign a full year longer than was customary. Yet there was nothing Vanto had done or failed to do that should have delayed his promotion. Impressive achievement, Yularen continued. His gaze switches between Thrawn and Vanto. He too recognizes something is amiss. Usually a captain warms that position for at least six years. I understand that during the Clone War, promotions occurred more quickly. More time will do that, Yularen said. His voice holds grim memories. 
Good luck with your new assignment, and your new command. And don't worry about higher skies. Whatever's there, we'll find it.